I'm Chuck Todd, and Chris Matthews has always been a gentleman to me. The results of Super Tuesday are in, and the Democrats have spoken. They said, we'll take the guy who was a big joke three days ago, please. Here's how Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders addressed their supporters. Folks, we did it, folks! That's what we've done, we did it, we done did it! This scrappy kid from Scranton beat all the odds he repeatedly stacked against himself! <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Okay, so we tried the fair election thing. Time for plan B. Let's start pounding nails into baseball bats. Holy crap! I didn't even campaign in half these states. Always a good sign when the people who know you the least like you the best. Thanks to my fervent supporters, I crossed the street to avoid. Your enthusiasm continues to shock and annoy the nation. I want to thank my fellow Democrats for their endorsements. Amy Charizard, Major Peep, and all the way from Texas, Buca de Pepo. Together, we mopped the floor with Mike Bloomberg. Oh, I put Bloomberg in the ground, you ungrateful bastards. Liz, I thought you were dropping out. Now you're dropping in? What are we doing? Put me in your cabinet, Bernie. I'll overachieve harder than anybody. I took selfies with a million sweaty strangers for this. I'm coronavirus patient zero, bitch! Anyway, my campaign team says my best path forward is shut the hell up. So I'm done talking policy. Here's my new platform. Down, 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 Alright, let's wrap this up. Hey, I forgot to thank Mike Boomberg for sucking big time. Thanks, Boomberg. You are. Thank you, American Samoa. My only Super Tuesday win. Okay, I think we're good here. Hey, Boomberg! The DNC sent me here till November! We're gonna be best friends! Down, 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 this is still down, better than me paying down, 2% more in taxes. Down, down, down. Okay, that was. Oh. What is this? What is this in the background? That's not supposed to come on. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You heard the little clip from Showtime's uh, cartoon president show. Our cartoon president is what it's called. About Super Tuesday, we're going to talk about that later in the show. It had some betting implications for me. I have some regret. You know when you know what's going to happen? And when you doubt yourself and bet the other way? When it turned out you had an incredibly clear picture of what was going to happen months ago, that happened to me. I'm going to talk about that near the end of the show. Anyway, we were gone for a while, as I'm sure you noticed. Today is March 6th, 2020. The time right now, pretty late, a little after 10.30 p.m. And this is the first show we've had since February 23rd for a variety of reasons. And I'll get into those, too, what happened. But we're back tonight, and we should be back, uh, I'm not sure if it'll be Friday, probably won't be Friday next week, but we will have a show for sure next week, and the week after, and the week after. So, never fear, we are back. Poker Fraud Alert Radio is not going down or disappearing, we just had a week we just couldn't come on. We have a free roll tonight, which you may have thought we would not have because of how late we're starting, but uh, we're going to have a free roll anyway, so for you that can stay up late, this will be... A relatively small field, and your chances of winning will be highest. Even if you're a donkey, you have a reasonable chance of cashing in this one. $50 free roll already started at 10.25 Pacific Time. You have until 10.50 Pacific Time to register on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, 25, 15, and 10. You can find all the information about the free roll and qualifying for the free money 
on PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. If you win, I can pay you by Cash App, by Bitcoin, by bank transfer, a lot of different ways I can pay you. So just uh, let me know if you win, and uh, we'll see if we can work out a payment plan of some sort. Not a plan, a, a payment format. You can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, that's most preferred. But you can also text me, 775-372-8355. Message me on Twitter, at Todd Wittelis, W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S. Or you can uh, email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, to claim your money that you've won. Payment may not be swift or quick, but it will come. And it won't be, it won't be a super slow pay, it just may be a slow pay. But it's free, and the site loses money every month, so be happy you're going to be paid at all. The money this week came from Eric Benzamokin, $35. That's the remainder of what he gave a while back. And William McFML gave $12. That adds up to 47 I threw in the other three for my Jew wallet. I took out three singles, and I threw them into this. So bend down and kiss my feet that I am contributing to this free roll, even if it's three bucks. It's three bucks more than I wanted to, but I, I did anyway to not have the embarrassment of a $47 free roll. But you can get in for another 15 minutes with a full stack on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can chat in the chat room if you're listening live. If you're one of the live listeners able to stay up late and play the free roll, go in the chat room. You need a Poker Fraud Alert form account in good standing and validated to get in the chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads can get in there. And you should only bother to go in the chat room if we are broadcasting live. If you're listening to this in the archives, then don't bother. Speaking of the archives, you can catch this show via iTunes, via Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app. All of these are ways you can listen in the archives. The Bullhorn app will also work. You can also use Amazon Alexa to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will play. Um, if it gives you some kind of trouble, then say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn, and then it'll play for sure. They're always changing things. They're always changing things at Alexa. There's only so much I can do. If you want to listen live, you can go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, and there's a little player there. It may start on its own. It may not. If it doesn't start on its own, play, press the little play button or click on the link of whatever device you're using. I have different links there where you can click on to listen to the show live. Or you can use the TuneIn app. The TuneIn app has both a way to listen live and in the archives, two different entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You'll figure out which is which. And the call to listen line, which is a phone number you can call and listen to the show live whenever you want. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. Does not require a data plan, a smartphone, a computer, the internet. No, just a phone that can dial anywhere in the U.S., Use that phone, dial it up. You can listen. It will never pause or freeze or buffer. Once it starts playing, it will continue playing, and it will never stop till you hang up. That's my promise to you. Well, until you hang up or until I turn it off, which I only do in preparation for the next show. I usually turn it off a few hours before the show starts, just so there's no confusion of what is live and what is not live. And when we're not live, aside from those few hours before the show, it will stream reruns of Poker Fraud Alert Radio that it chooses at random. From our past eight years, and yes, we've been on for eight years, our past eight years on the air with well over 300 episodes it chooses from. It just does it randomly and runs them in full. 
You can also listen to the streaming reruns using the live segment of the TuneIn app or by just going to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com and listening as if it's live. You'll just hear the streaming reruns. We always have something broadcasting on here with the exception of those few hours right before the show. And surprisingly, people listen. I sometimes wonder, does anyone want to even bother listening to old reruns of the show? But yes, people do listen. Sometimes to the random reruns it presents you, and sometimes people will actually go back through old archives and listen to old shows, especially people who have found the show new. I got texted by someone this past week who told me that about eight months ago he found the show and has gone through and listened to every episode we've done since 2016. That's... uh very flattering that people want to do that, because some of the stuff in those older shows is no longer relevant today. Some of it is. Some of it's still interesting and relevant, and really, it doesn't matter when the story was told. It's still an interesting story today in 2020, but some of it is old and not very relevant anymore, such as when I'm talking about what World Series events I'm going to play or things like that. But I guess we, we had a fan in the show there that found it eight months ago and not only wanted to hear the present shows, but wanted to go back four years. Great. That's why I make it all available. If you want to hear, you can always find it. I leave up everything. So uh, we're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight, in case you're wondering. Even though it's later, we're going to have him on. And uh, let's call up, uh, let's find Trader Ruski right now. Just get that over with. Get him on the line. What's happening, Draft? Trader Ruski, welcome. Glad to have you on the show here. Thank you. Good to see there was a show tonight. That means you're feeling better, right? Yes. So let me tell you guys what happened. Um, I, I couldn't make it on Friday night last week. I planned to do the show on Saturday or Sunday. And what happened was uh, I developed what I think was a stomach virus. I'm still not sure, but I think it was a stomach virus. My stomach was hurting. I had some stomach virus type symptoms and I had a lot of fatigue and I had body aches. So I felt that I don't think I can do the show. This is especially Sunday. Um, That was kind of the day I was focusing on to probably do the show. And then Sunday, I just did not have the energy for it. It was, there was something wrong with me on Sunday. And one of the weird symptoms I had that kept increasing and getting worse was left shoulder pain. Now, I did hurt my left shoulder in August on a trip, but uh, that was all or mostly better. And it started hurting again as if I had just hurt it. But I didn't recall doing anything this past week that would have hurt my shoulder like that. And it started getting worse and worse. And finally, on Tuesday morning... My left shoulder was in really, really bad pain, but more concerning was the combination of that left shoulder pain and chest pain. I think that sound effect was too loud. Let me turn that down. If I blew out your ear, I'm sorry. It won't happen again until next show when I probably leave the sound effect at the wrong volume. But yes, I had chest pain and left shoulder pain. And if you know anything about heart issues, that's what they tell you to watch for. That if you have left arm pain and chest pain, that combo could mean that you're having some kind of cardiac issue. 
and you must get it checked out immediately. Now, most of the time when you feel that, it's actually nothing. So I'm not saying if you have that, that for sure you're having heart problems. But when you feel that, you can't ignore it unless you're young and it's so unlikely you're having a heart attack, you can safely just say, no, probably not it. But I'm not that young anymore. I'm about 48 years old. And that's too old to ignore this. So I texted my brother, who's a cardiologist, and asked him, should I go into the ER? I really don't want to go to the ER. Like, I really didn't want to go to the ER. I, I hate going to the ER. I'm not an ER person. There's some people who just love the ER. They, they find any excuse to go to the ER. If there's a problem, they don't want to wait till the next morning at 8 a.m. to see the regular doctor. They, they just want to go to the ER and get it taken care of now. They feel anything that makes them uncomfortable, they go to the ER. I'm the opposite. I try to avoid the ER. There have been times when I haven't gone to the ER when I probably should have. Well, this was one of those times that I was really leaning toward not going, even though I knew what could happen if I didn't. I was trying to talk myself into just going to sleep for a while and going to the ER if it still hurt later because I was just feeling so tired. I just didn't feel like doing it. But my brother said, no, you need to go. So I got myself out of the house and did it. I went to the ER to have this checked out. My first time in my life, by the way, first time in my life ever going to the ER for any kind of uh, suspected heart issues. Now, to be clear, I did not believe I was having a heart attack. I did not believe this was a heart issue. This was really a better safe than sorry type of hospital visit. Why did I go to the ER? Because they're the ones with the equipment to test and to test fast. If I went to the regular doctor, which I could have, it was a weekday, but this is on Tuesday. I could have, but they would have sent me right to the ER, so there was no point. The correct move was to go to the ER. But this was really a better safe than sorry thing where there was a low probability that this was a heart problem, but that I had to still do it anyway because if it was, if that low probability was happening, then the results of that would be catastrophic. Like, I could die. So you have to do it. I explained on the forum what happened, and uh, I got some annoying responses. I really did. You guys know about my anxiety and depression problems from a year and a half ago. And whenever people hear anxiety, they get the wrong idea in their head. They think it means you're worried all the time. They think it means that uh, everything is making you overly concerned and panicky. I didn't have that type of anxiety. The type of anxiety I had was a generalized anxiety where there was a pressure on my brain. It's very hard to describe, but it felt like a pressure on my brain to where not only I couldn't relax, but everything, I, I felt super tense and stressed constantly, even without a reason for it. The best way I can describe it to those who have never experienced it is it felt like the aftermath of something really terrible happening, like terrible and shocking and bad. It felt like the aftermath of that when nothing actually had happened. I didn't believe anything had happened. I'm just saying that that was the emotional feeling I had, and there was no way to overrule it. I couldn't just say, oh, nothing's happened. Everything should be normal. Just feel okay. I couldn't do it. There was no way to overrule it. That was the way I was 24-7. And that was the type of anxiety I had. Now, I had other manifestations uh, of it. Uh, I, I had it where I felt like I couldn't breathe uh, unless I was outside. Even though I was in a big room, I felt like I couldn't breathe. But that it, I wasn't feeling like I really, like, rationally, I knew there was nothing wrong with me. And I did not go to the ER at any point during any of that back in 2018. Uh, I knew it was irrational to have to go outside to breathe. But I would go outside to breathe because that's uh, – uh, I, I was feeling like I, my brain was telling me I can't breathe if I'm indoors. Like that type of thing was happening. But uh, 
It wasn't the type of anxiety like, oh my God, I think I have chest pain. Oh my God, I think I'm having a heart attack. Oh my God, I think this is it. I better go to the ER. That was never me. Even at my very, very worst point, I had severe anxiety, severe depression at the same time. Never once did I go to the ER or even consider going to the ER. Never once was it even on my mind because I didn't have that kind of anxiety. Now today, the depression is all gone and the anxiety is like 90 to 95% gone. There's occasional low-grade, uh, kind of low-grade reappearances of it, but it's nothing like it was. I can live my life normally. So I was trying to explain to people, if I was going to go to the ER in a panic, if this was anxiety or if the anxiety was causing me to imagine symptoms that didn't exist, like imagining heart trouble or imagining chest pain or imagining the shoulder pain, that would have happened a year and a half ago. That wouldn't have happened now after I've gotten past over everything, almost everything. It wouldn't be happening now. I guarantee this was not anxiety, zero percent to do with anxiety. This was shoulder pain for unknown reasons. Maybe I heard it in my sleep. I don't know. Like I must have re-aggravated or re-injured something at some point. So there was that plus probably the chest pain and the other pains I was having was from whatever virus I had last week. And that would make sense. And probably the shoulder pain felt even worse because the virus was making everything feel worse. I have had it before where I have a virus of some sort and old pains I haven't felt in years come back. Because everything in your body, there's more inflammation, everything feels more sensitive. Pains you thought were never going to be felt again are suddenly back. Oh, I remember I heard this three years ago. Well, I don't. I never feel that anymore. Now I feel it right there again. And then a few days later, it's gone again when, when you feel better. It was something like that. And, and the ER agreed, by the way. The ER, they ran all the tests and everything was normal. So there's no trouble with my heart. And this was a false alarm, but there was no way to know when I was feeling it. And I couldn't just ignore it. And I was told by my cardiologist brother to do it, to go into the ER when I actually did not want to and was trying to text him reasons about why I don't feel like it and why I don't think it's a big deal. And he was the one telling me, no, you need to go. So I did. That's what happened. Not anxiety, I promise you. I'm not in denial. I'm not one of these people who has anxiety and won't admit it or won't admit that the anxiety caused such and such. It was not anxiety. But there's some people, there's some people on the forum who just uh, will not allow themselves to be convinced. They just, they've just stuck to this. Well, you had anxiety a year and a half ago. This was anxiety. No. And I'll tell you something. And if you've experienced anxiety yourself, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The most annoying thing when you're dealing with other people, whether it's doctors or whether it's uh, other people in your life, when it's known you've had anxiety issues in the past or present, the most annoying thing is when they try to blame everything on anxiety. You're upset about something. Oh, it's just anxiety. You're feeling some kind of, uh, Ailment, oh, it's just anxiety. You're feeling some kind of pain, oh, it's just anxiety. And it's, it's so frustrating to hear because it's dismissive. And just because there are some people with anxiety who do imagine pains and who do imagine uh, problems with their health and who do run to the ER for every little thing, that doesn't mean that that's you. And someone cited a statistic. Well, you know, some such and such percent of all visits to the ER about chest pain has to do with anxiety. And I said, I don't care. Like, if I got into a car accident on Saturday night at 2 a.m., that would be the time when a large percentage of those accidents are drunk driving related. But if I got into an accident at that time, and it was my fault, 
would it mean I was drunk just because a lot of them at that time are drunk? No, I don't even drink. So it couldn't be with me. So saying that if I got into an accident that was my fault at Saturday at 2 a.m., it must be a DUI. It's just as dumb to say that as it is to say, well, such and such percentage of visits to the hospital for chest pain or anxiety, so yours must be too because you have anxiety. It's, it's just – I know this is a rant. It's just something that pisses me off. And if you know somebody with anxiety, don't do that to them. Don't dismiss it and say, oh, this is just anxiety. Let, the, let them tell you. Now, if they're acting completely ridiculous, then you can tell that to them. Then you can say, hey, it's just your anxiety talking. Don't worry about it. I, I've had to tell this to people who I know that are like 23 years old, and they say, oh, I'm starting, my chest is hurting. I'm having a heart attack. I know it. I've got to go to the ER. I got to go. And then I say, no, 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 that's just your anxiety. And that is. And that's not being dismissive. It's a, obviously a, a healthy 23-year-old whose chest hurts a little bit is not having a heart attack, and if they think they are, then they're having anxiety. But uh, this was not. This was just I, I happened to have the bad luck of symptoms that matched that of heart problems, but I knew there was unlikely heart problems, but I had to check it anyway just to be safe. That's what happened. I had an interesting dilemma at the hospital. I'm going to ask you, Trader Ruski, what you would have done. So going to the hospital, I knew that there was a chance I either had to wait. Well, I knew I wouldn't have to wait to be seen, but I thought maybe after the initial test, I may have to wait. I thought there might be some chance of waiting involved. So I actually took my laptop with me and left it in the car. And I did not bring it in with me. I figured if I, if they're going to tell me there's some kind of wait for something to be done or for some kind of test results, then I'd go back and get it. So they were walking me around the hospital, do this test, do that test, and okay, fine. I, I did what they said. And then they kept walking me somewhere and then walking me back to the lobby to sit down. So on the fourth time that they got me out of the lobby to go walk somewhere, they bring me to a hospital bed. And I said, well, what's this? They said, oh, you got to lie down here. We're going to monitor you. And we're also waiting for some, te- for some test results. I said, oh, okay, well, how long is this monitoring? Is it like 10, 20 minutes or is it much longer? Well, we don't like to tell you how long it'll be. It can be anything. I said, well, okay, on average, what, what can I expect? Well, we don't like to give that – like they didn't want to answer. I said, okay, could it be hours? He says, yeah, it could be hours. I said, okay, well, now that I know that, before I lie down here, I'd like to go to my car and get my laptop. And they said, no. Why? Because this would be a liability to them because by walking me back to that hospital bed, now I was technically a patient there and – they wouldn't be discharging me. So if I just walk out to my car and if I were to have a heart attack there and drop dead, uh, they could be sued. Or if I didn't drop dead. If anything happened to me on the way to my car and back without being discharged, they they, they could be sued and they'd be liable. So they said, uh, can't do it. Now, you might wonder, well, what if I just say F you and get up and walk out? Well, I could. They can't hold me prisoner there, but they can also not treat me after that. They, they could say, okay, if you walk out, then the treatment's over. You can either follow our course of treatment and, and, and testing, and if you don't if you don't want to go along with our protocols, then you yes you can walk out and leave, but you can't just walk walk back in and continue. They could have said that, so I I was not going to just forcefully walk out. So I tried to reason with them. I tried to reason with them that I came here under my own power. I drove in myself. I walked in myself. I had been walking around. They were not wheeling me anywhere. I was walking around from test room to test room with no problem. Every test they had done so far had come back normal. So there's no danger. But I said, okay, if you are that concerned about liability, give me a waiver to sign that I waive liability. Or if you don't have such a thing, take a video of me. Take a video of me 
stating that I am taking the full risk and responsibility that they're advising against it, but that I am taking the full risk and responsibility of walking to and from my car and that I will not hold them liable. So I offered that. Well, they didn't know what to do. Trader Risky, um, two questions for you. Number one, do you think that I was, do you think this is reasonable what I was asking for? Or do you think that they had a right to just say, no, now that we've brought you to the bed, uh, you've got to stay here. And, and by the way, they didn't tell me they're bringing me to the bed. They, just, they were walking me from test place to test place and then just like, oh, okay, now, now here's your bed. You're going to be here for hours. So do you, do you think I had a point there that I should be able to go to my car or do you think, uh, they had a point that I should just be stuck there at that point? Well, I think you both had points because you should have been able to run out there. But if what they say is true about being admitted and then you're their responsibility till you check out, I mean, I guess they'd have to say that. I mean, I probably would have had my backpack with me from the get-go. Yeah, and I probably but, should have, but but I thought I was going to have a chance to go back. See, the, the the thing, the reason I felt in the right here was because they didn't tell me, okay, now we're bringing you back to this bed. They're just like, like during those tests, the first few tests they did, at that point, I could have walked out without any problem. It was that once I was brought over to the bed, it was like now I was checked into the hospital, and uh, now I'm officially a patient, and and now it, it causes a liability thing. They, they, they don't tell me. They're just like, oh, like, okay, we're bringing you here now. Do you need to get anything? Like they just walked me over there. Okay. Now you're stuck. And th- that's why I felt they didn't communicate with me. And, and I thought that they had to work with me. No, I hear you. So, and, you know, and I think, look, and you, you're right though. They kind of got at that point. I think you just got to say, I understand and deal with it. Yeah. If you have your phone, I mean, especially, especially if you have your iPhone, you have something. Well, so so I, I actually asked my brother about this. Now, he's not an ER expert because he doesn't work in the ER, but he knows more about it than me because he does uh, work in a hospital. Uh, and he, he told me that, you know, well, they might agree to it, but uh, I doubt it. It's doubtful you'll be able to convince them to let you go out. So that, was, that, was, that made me feel pretty pe- pessimistic about the situation, but I kept persisting. I was not rude or, or argumentative or loud about it or anything. I was just trying to calmly reason with them that I'll, I'll protect them. They can, I'll do whatever waiver they want to waive liability. And, and second, that I didn't know I was being walked back here. And nobody told me. So um, it took a little time, but they backed down. They, they actually sent a nurse, a male nurse to walk with me to my car so I could take the backpack and then bring it back there. So they actually oh, agreed. Oh, well, that was nice. Yes, yeah, so they agreed to it. Yes. Yeah. I think and they was sent it close, by the way, because like yes, if it was Cedars, I could understand, you know, it's so far. No, no, no. It was it was a very close walk to my car. So it was it. It, it was very easy to do. And that was one of my – I was reasoning that too. I said this is such a fast thing to go do. It's not like i got to walk far away. Uh, the male nurse, I figured they had a male nurse go with me so they protected themselves from any kind of like sexual harassment thing that could come up like a what if i walked out with a nurse and then like in the elevator with her i grabbed her or something like that. i guess they didn't even want to introduce that possibility so they brought a dude <laughs> but whatever i don't care uh but I, th- I think that wasn't a random selection of nurse but anyway uh, i brought my laptop in and i said now you guys are okay while you're monitoring me if i have a big laptop on my lap right they said yeah that's fine so I brought my laptop in and I, I played on uh, on ignition while I was being monitored. I was uh, f- first there was no limit hold'em game going, so I was playing like a lower limit uh, PLO eight, and then a thirty sixty limit hold'em got going. And I thought, I wonder if I'm the first person here who's being monitored for heart issues to be playing limit hold'em while doing so. 
But uh, I, I don't know if I was the first, but I was definitely one of them. They didn't see me playing. I, w- I was wondering what I'd say if they asked, like, are you playing poker right now? It just seems kind of weird. But I thought, yeah, I want to play poker right now. So I was playing poker. I actually won. I won like 1400 bucks. Well, I was going to say, you could be the first person that actually came out ahead after going to the emergency room. But I don't think I did. That's a sad I, Like, I finished 1400 up. I'm like, oh, that's not even going to cover the bill, though. I know it. I, I didn't get the bill yet, but I know it's going to be more than 1400 even after the insurance pays. So I thought, that kind of sucks. Even if I win 1400 I still don't win. But like if I lost, that would have been the, like, the one-two punch. I would have paid a big hospital bill and lost money while they're gambling. So at least I won. And yeah, so everything was fine. And here I am. And I'm not... No follow-ups, no going back for anything. It just appears to have been a bad collection of symptoms that kind of mimic something that wasn't actually happening, which I thought was most likely. And they and they agreed with me, by the way, that it was probably a, a viral thing and, and maybe complicated by an injury that happened that I didn't know. Like, a, like during while I was sleeping is probably when it happened, especially because the shoulder was injured before in uh, Rhode Island when I was on a trip last year. So all that is the reason that I did not have a show last week and why I couldn't really make up the show. But I'm feeling okay now, and the arm got better. Everything feels better. So here I am on March 6th, 2020. We didn't get our fifth show in February like I thought we would, but here we are with our first show in March. Okay, let's see what else. I'll give you the agenda, and then we will get going. See, people who skip past all the intro stuff, they miss this whole story, which may be good or bad for them. Some people like these stories and just hate all the like boring intro stuff. And some people just hate all this type of stuff and just want to hear the main content of the show. Oh, crap. Crap. I Am Greek's going to be so mad at me. Remember we were going to call the Wendover, the casino Wendover, where they closed that department at 11? And I'm like, oh, we're starting well before 11, so that'll be no problem. So I thought to myself, oh, we better make that call fast. Right now, it's exactly 11. <laughs> Whoops. Yes, it'll have to be next week. Oh, uh oh. Trader Risky, what happened there? Nah, you just said, oh God, you spaced. Yeah. Nah, I, I, got to, I was yeah. telling the story, got too into the story, and then, uh, yeah, made it 11 o'clock. Okay, so guess we won't be calling any casino on Wendover tonight. We will. I am Greek, remind me next week. He reminded me this week, and I said, okay, we'll do it, and then I let it get past 11. That's terrible. It's actually 11 o'clock on the dot right now. That's terrible luck. Okay. Well, our first topic tonight will be about the coronavirus, which is increasingly in the news, as I'm sure you know. But we're going to talk about not just the coronavirus itself, but also about the World Series of Poker, about other casinos. Are you in danger? Should you go to a casino? Should you play the World Series of Poker? And if you are planning to go to other major events, such as Coachella, which is coming up next month, or such as the uh, baseball season, which is coming up, or the NBA season, which is presently going, or the NHL, NHL season, which is presently going. Uh, can you expect that there's going to be cancellations of these events? What can you expect for the future? What about something like Disneyland? Is it safe to go there? Or should you just completely stay out of crowds? What about traveling, like flying on airplanes? Should you do that? I'm going to give you my opinion. I, of course, I can't tell you exactly what is or is not the correct thing to do. I can just tell you my opinion of the situation, and Trader Risky can give his. So that'll be our first topic. A lot of people wanted to hear me 
give my take on the coronavirus. I'm also going to tell you about some bets that are being offered by Doug Polk and uh, Michael McDonald regarding the World Series of Poker being canceled over the coronavirus. And I, I think these are still being offered, and I think you, if you want, can bet with them. I'll explain that when we get to that portion. Also, a casino in Oregon has been the first casino in the U.S. to close due to the coronavirus. I'll explain that. And in Las Vegas, they are very nervous right now because there's a fear that the coronavirus could be in the public schools. That's not being publicized very much either. Phil Galfond is trying to publicize what he managed to do. He abruptly decided he is going to continue with the challenge that it kind of looked like he was going to quit against Venny VD 1993 who was killing him. Phil Galfond returned, has played three different sessions, and the first of the three, he clobbered Venny VD and had the session he's been dreaming about. So we'll talk about where that stands and if maybe Phil Galfond has figured out his opponent that had been vexing him thus far. Bill Reaney, the former World Series of Poker.com uh, poker room manager, who is very disliked by most people, pretty much everybody who played on that site. He's been very quiet since leaving his position in September 2019. He had not tweeted since October, but he returned to Twitter with a barrage of tweets in what I can classify as a meltdown aimed at certain respected tournament pros just went off on them. And it's, I understand what he was trying to say, but it doesn't make very much sense to me. I'm going to read you the tweets, tell you what's going on, give you my opinion and we'll talk a bit more about Bill Reaney and just another stupid thing he's doing. <laughs> I have some updates on the Mike Possle case. I'll talk about what's going on with that. I have a few things to tell you with that. And maybe in the future we'll get on that Rounders Life owner who's in Florida, very pro-Possle guy. Uh, he seems to listen to this show sometimes, at least about the Possle segments, because he recently was even mentioning things I said on the show about Possle. So I think he might be someone who'd be willing to come on here. Not this show, but maybe next week, and we can hear what he has to say. I doubt he'll convince me of anything. But we'll talk about the, the weird people who are defending Mike Possel. There's a few of them out there. It doesn't make much sense to me, but there are a few of them out there. The 2018 WCOOP, known as the WCOOP on PokerStars, the 2018 WCOOP winner, Juan to Play, has been disqualified 18 months later after winning, and his money was confiscated. I'll explain how they could have confiscated his money 18 months later and why he got disqualified so much later. But then there's the question of, who is this? Who is Juan to Play? I will give you some clues, but I don't know the answer. If you know the answer, please let me know. A racist poker player freaked out at the Chinook Winds Indian Casino in Oregon, in the poker room there. He just completely flipped out with a racist tirade against uh, a black player there. I'm going to play you a video of him. And I will warn you in advance, by the way, not only is there some foul language, but there's some very racist language, but we're going to play it anyway. It's uh, This show is not for the faint of heart, and I don't censor things, and I don't bleep things out. So you're going to hear the N-word being said, but keep in mind, I'm not, I'm not playing this to be racist myself or to condone anything that's being said there. I just present the facts to you. Yeah, and so I'm going to play that. We'll 
have a little commentary about the guy, and I'll tell you about just some things I've seen over time in poker rooms of people just flipping out. The Venetian has raised their rake and jackpot drop to obscene levels, especially for the month of March 2020. Tell you about that and an unfortunate trend that is occurring involving jackpot drops in general. Alex Foxen is back in controversy, but this one not having to do with poker. He's being sued by another poker player involving a cryptocurrency mining operation that failed. And he's accused of some wrongdoing involving that. So I will tell you about that lawsuit. America's Card Room had another embarrassing failure during a major tournament. That seems to be commonplace there, but we'll talk about it briefly. Caesars is accused of tricking players regarding needing to be present to win a $50,000 drawing. And I'll tell you why that matters when I get to that segment. If you play on Ignition Poker, not Bovada, but Ignition, I want to tell you about two different types of bonuses that you should not let go unclaimed. You may be entitled to certain bonus money that you didn't know you could get and that will go away if you don't claim it. So I'll tell you about that. Finally, in November 2019, I predicted very closely to what actually happened regarding the Democratic primary in 2020. Not only did I say Joe Biden was going to be the winner, which is very likely he will be at this point, but I mentioned the way it was going to happen, and I was very, very close to what occurred. And not many people were saying this at that time. But did I put my money where my mouth was? Somewhat. But despite having that crystal ball-like knowledge, I still bet the wrong way on Super Tuesday and lost. How did that happen? I will explain in our final segment of the evening when I have to imagine Trader Ruski will be fast, fast asleep and dreaming of his next cup of tea. So let, Maybe. I did take a nap this afternoon. Oh, a nap. Oh, maybe, maybe you'll be awake. Maybe you'll surprise me. Okay, so we're not going to do our prank call. We'll have to table that till next week. Let's jump right into the coronavirus topic. And I know we had another coronavirus topic on the show. This is not the first time we've talked about it. But there's been more developments since then. And the coronavirus is a continuously developing story where every day there's something more to the puzzle. There's more things we're learning. Some th- some news that comes out about the coronavirus seems good or promising, and some news that comes out seems a little unnerving or scary. Right now, people still don't really know where it's going to go. A lot of people have theories. We, I have people saying this is pretty much just the flu. It's it's a version of the flu. It's not the same thing as the flu, but it's just it's as threatening as the flu, they say. This is being overblown. This is being... Exploited for political purposes, some people say. This is causing a hysteria which is not deserved, some people say. It's going to be very minor in the grand scheme of things, some people say. And then there's some people on the other side who feel this is going to be a horrible pandemic that kills a very, very large number of people and that we just don't realize it yet. We're not coming to grips with how bad this is and what it's going to do. And how not only is it going to kill a lot of people, but it's going to completely disrupt our way of life. But what is the truth? You're you're hearing, I'm sure, in a lot of different directions that 
a lot of different you're getting a lot of different information and a lot of different opinions and a lot of different predictions and you're probably scratching your head saying well should I be that worried and do I think that things are going to get canceled and should I not plan a trip this summer and should I not go to the World Series this summer and should I not go to a casino right now and should I not go to the opening day of baseball season, which I do every year because of the coronavirus? I don't do it every year. I'm saying, like, you may be saying that. So you may have a lot of these questions. You may have heard today that the South by Southwest Music Festival was canceled in Austin, Texas. And that's a pretty big deal. That's the first major music festival that was canceled in the U.S., to my knowledge. And, of course, once South by Southwest got canceled everybody's eyes turn towards Coachella, which is even bigger, and that's in April. Master Scaler is very, very obsessed with Coachella, and that would really devastate him if he couldn't go. Believe me, he's going to go if he can. He's not going to let the coronavirus keep him away. That's not the question. It's whether he can go at all, because there's a chance that it will not take place. But there's a lot to consider here. And I'll try to cover everything so maybe you have a better idea and then you'll have to make your own decision i'm not going to tell you that if you choose to do something different than what i'm doing or you choose a different approach to it than i am taking that you are wrong you may very well be right and i may be wrong but i'm just going to give you my take on it and we'll hear what trey ruski has to say so the coronavirus i don't agree that this is just the flu. You see people citing, oh, well, the flu kills this many people every year. The coronavirus has barely killed anyone in the U.S. Therefore, flu is much worse. People are just panicking about this because it's new. That's not a fair thing to say. That's not an accurate thing to say. The flu is known. The flu is understood well. The danger of the flu is understood well. And yes, it kills a lot of people, but the people it kills tend to be very, very young, like babies, very, very old, or already very sick. And you may say, well, wait a minute, that's what I heard about the coronavirus. Well, I'll, I'll get to that. So someone like me, someone like Trader Ruski, someone like you, the listener, if you catch the flu, the chance of you dying from the flu is very small. Maybe later on, when you're very sick or very old or both, it will kill you. But... Unless you're one of our oldest listeners, you're probably not much in danger of dying for the, from the flu. If I were to catch the flu, I would not be even in the slightest panic. I wouldn't be going, oh boy, there's a chance I'm going to die here. I'd say, no, it's not going to kill me. It's going to be an annoying thing to have, but it's not going to kill me. That's what I'd be thinking if I caught the flu, like tomorrow. And that's the right way to approach it. If you are a middle-aged man without any kind of major health condition at the moment. It's probably not going to kill you. So therefore, there, there's not a lot of panic about the flu. But it's been around for a very long time, since before we were born. And it's been well understood for a very long time. In 1918, it was not well understood. In 1918, it killed a lot of people. But that's because it was so poorly understood that they didn't even advise to wash your hands to prevent it. And when you did catch it, they didn't handle it right as far as what to do about it, and sometimes the treatment was was worse than the disease itself, and, and, and general hygiene and sanitation was not as good in 1918. The, the world was so different in, in 1918, and of course, none of us are old enough to not only remember 1918, none of us were alive in 1918. I don't think we have any 102-year-old listeners to this show. 
Even if we did, they still couldn't remember it. So in 1918, the world was so different, and the advancement of medicine was so different, the understanding of the flu was so different. So the 1918 flu pandemic could not happen again today unless it was some kind of totally different strain that was different than every other strain that we've known of. So the flu has been well known and understood for a long time and therefore is not scary. The coronavirus is scary because we still have a lot of unknown pieces. There are some theories at this point, but there are still a lot of unknown pieces. Nobody can say for certain that if you are healthy and not old, that the coronavirus won't kill you or is very unlikely to kill you. Let's say it's a 1% chance of killing you if you're healthy. Those aren't very good chances, to be honest. If you have a 99% chance to win a poker hand, that's great. Because if you lose, then the worst thing that has happened is you've lost some money. If there's a 1% chance you're going to die from something, that's pretty lousy, because if that 1% comes through, you're dead. That's a lot different. Like, if someone told me tomorrow I had an 0.1% chance of dying... I'd be very upset to hear that. Very upset. That means 999 out of 1,000 times I'm going to live, but one in a 1,000 is not such a minute chance that I would feel happy to hear that. I would be very nervous if tomorrow I had a one in 1,000 chance of dying. I don't. I have a much less chance of that to die tomorrow than a one in a 1,000. So similarly, if, if you catch a virus that's going around and has a 1% chance of killing you, that's, that's a pretty big deal. And that's going to kill a lot of people, too. So if that's the case with a coronavirus, or even if it's a half a percent or a quarter of a percent, that still can be very bad. Because the percentage, I even looked it up, but the percentage of healthy people who are not old or super young, and I mean like baby young, I don't even, like even Benjamin is too old to really, we don't have that much of a concern if he got the flu either. He's nine. So I'm talking about like a healthy adult or teenager or child that's not a baby catching the flu, I don't know what the chances are of them dying, but it's very low. Way less than 1%. Coronavirus, who knows? And if it is around 1%, that's pretty scary. Then you really don't want to get it. And if it's something that's not a rare disease, if it's something that can spread very easily, like the flu does, then that becomes a very big deal. Then you don't want to go places where you might catch it. You you don't want to go anywhere where you have a decent chance of catching a disease that there's a 1% chance it kills you. You just don't want that. So the question is, is it something like that, where it's going to spread very easily and have a 1% chance of killing you? Or is it something that, even if it spreads, if you're healthy and not really old, that you're not going to die from it and it'll kind of feel like the flu? If it's the latter, it's not a huge deal. If it's the former, it is a huge deal. If it's somewhere in between, then it's it's a deal, but not as big as some people are making it. And that part's not known yet. And that's the scary thing with the coronavirus. It's the unknown. And I've seen reasons on each side, on the hysteria side and the it's no big deal, it's no worse than the flu side. I've seen compelling arguments from each side. I've seen data presented from each side, which can make the situation look more dire or make it look like, oh, no big deal. Okay, looks like it's not going to be a problem. 
So what do you do? What do you do? First of all, I'm sure you've seen reports or maybe experienced this yourself of people attempting to stock up on water or non-perishable food in case there's a quarantine, in case they can't leave their houses, in case uh, all the food gets pretty much bought up and that uh, there's no opportunity to buy anything. So people are stocking up just in case they're holed up in their house for a long period of time. Trader Ruski, have you bought things to store in your house in case that happens? I have. Yeah, I have too. But uh, my dad went to Costco and he said they were out of toilet paper. Yes, that's uh, that's that's one of the things that's been disappearing. Toilet paper has been disappearing. Water, of course, is the big one that's been disappearing. Uh, rice has been disappearing. Beans have been disappearing. Things that people either will feel are essentials to have if they can't go shopping for a while or things that keep for a very long time and you could have uh, – that can – Something that you can buy a lot of and store without taking up that much room, and it can last you a long time food-wise. So so I, I've done it too, and actually more of it's been done by my girlfriend, but uh, I agree with it. Like I, It is, again, like, like what I did with the chest pain and the left arm pain going to the ER, a better safe than sorry sort of thing, because there have been quarantines. There, there have been things shut down. There is a lot of unknown to this where a government might order certain things to happen where you won't have the opportunity to get that stuff very easily. You, you never know. There, there could be government overreaction, too, that it's helpful to have these things so you don't have to worry about getting it when you no longer are allowed to do so or the stores are all closed. So it's actually a wise thing to stock up. At first, when... When I saw people were doing this, I was like, ah, okay, that's kind of paranoid. <laughs> and then as time passed, I was like, no, you know what? That's probably a good idea to do. I don't think you should stock up on things that you're not going to use. But if you're going to stock right. up on things that you're going to use anyway. The normal stuff, just get extra. If yes. buy cans of beans and you never eat beans or stuff like that. I think that's a little kooky. Right. But right. I'm going to Costco tomorrow. So, if, But if, if water, if, if toilet paper, you'll eventually use all that stuff. The toilet paper is funny because, like, you you can live with that toilet paper, but it wouldn't be very pleasant. <laughs> it's just just think you're stuck for months in your house and you just you can't wipe your ass. Like how frustrating that would be. Sending you back to the dark ages. So I, I do think it's a good idea to stock up on things, and uh, but don't do something stupid like if there's a tremendous line where you go. I saw some pictures of Las Vegas. I think it was Costco. This huge line to get in there. You know what you do if you see that? You either go at a really off hour, like just before closing or just be- – well, they don't close very late. Maybe just before opening. But but maybe then it's going to be jammed too. If you can't find a time to get in there without sending in a tremendous line, then go somewhere else. Even if it's a little more expensive, go somewhere else. It's not worth standing in an hours-long line to buy water or toilet paper at this point. We're not We're not there yet. We're not at such terrible shortages yet citywide to where you have to – Stand on a three-hour line just to get into Costco. So don't, just be sensible about it. We're, we're not at panic time yet. So stock up, but don't say I'll stock up under all circumstances. I don't care how long it takes me. Just go somewhere else. Go down the street. Go go to uh, the regular supermarket. Go to a convenience store if you have to. Just it's it's not worth it to wait in that type of line. But it's it's a smart thing to have to prepare yourself. 
But let's talk about what you should or shouldn't do. Let's talk about flying, first of all. I think at this point flying is okay, provided you're not flying into an area that is known to have a lot of coronavirus infections. So if you are just flying domestically in the U.S. or you're flying uh, even like U.S. to England or U.S. to Canada or just somewhere that you're flying somewhere that it's no worse than it is in the U.S., then that's fine. You may say, well, that plane may have just been used as one from Asia, may have been on it. Well, it's possible, but uh, I I don't think that planes are uh, a terrible – I don't think it's a high chance you're going to catch something on the plane because you're not there that long and you're not having direct exposure to that many people. Because think about it. You're, you're not going around the whole plane and touching everything else people are touching. You're, you're, you're mainly sitting in your seat. You can be careful when you go to the bathroom that you're just not touching things and – even with people breathing, it's, you know, no, no one's going to be. You're not going to have that many people who can breathe on you or cough on you. You're, you're confined to your seat for the most part in a plane, and I think that's why a plane is safer than people think. Even if they do recirculate the air, I still don't it, recirculating the air versus having someone directly cough on you or or cough on a surface that you go touch. That, that's a different story. I don't think the recirculating air a big, is a big deal. What about a cruise? Should you go on a cruise now? I bet a lot of you are not dying to go on a cruise at the moment. There was the Diamond Princess that was in Japan that had to just sit there parked off the coast for a long time with people with the coronavirus, and a number of people on that ship caught the coronavirus, including some Americans. And now there's a second princess ship, the Grand Princess, which is parked off of San Francisco right now because they also have found coronavirus on that cruise. Well, I will tell you, and by the way, I've been on the Grand Princess before. I was on the Grand Princess nine years ago. But I will tell you that I would not want to cruise right now because cruise ships are a place where illnesses spread very quickly. Think about the norovirus problem that cruise ships have had for quite some time. And it's because there's a lot of people on a cruise ship in a relatively small space and they are moving all around, and they are touching a lot of the same surfaces. And they are going to things like buffets, where you're eating things that other people touch, even if they're not supposed to be touching them. There, there's a lot of different ways that you can come into contact with infected surfaces that people have touched, or people can just directly cough or sneeze on you. It's it's a crowded environment. It's a Illnesses spread very quickly, especially very contagious ones like the neurovirus, and they have that problem on cruise ships. And that's what you don't want with something like coronavirus, which it's not known how quickly it spreads, but it it, it is contagious. It's, it's, it's at least fairly contagious. So that's a place you don't want to be because there's a large number of people, and unlike the airplane, you are moving around and coming into contact with them and services they touch. So I wouldn't want to go on a cruise right now, even if it were cheap. I, I was thinking, like, let's, someone, let's say someone said, hey, here's a free cruise to a place I want to go to. Would I take it? I probably wouldn't at this point. I think that's just putting yourself in a place where you're likely to get it. That's the same reason I stopped playing at Commerce and other L.A. card rooms. 
that's another place that you're more likely to get it. There, it's a little bit of a different story, but some similarities. But there's a lot of the biggest problem. There's a lot of Chinese nationals that deal at LA card rooms. So these people either came from China or more likely have had direct contact with relatives or friends or family you know, family members, whatever that have come from mainland China and may have brought the virus home. You just, I'm not trying to be racist here, but the truth is that for preventative sake, you do not want to come in contact with Chinese nationals right now. Your chance is higher than of catching the coronavirus. So I thought given their prevalence as dealers in places like commerce, that's just not a good place to go. That's why I stopped going after late January when I thought about it. I still feel that way. So I think cruise ships are kind of in that category too. So going on to casinos, casinos, you do have sort of the same problem as the cruise ships. You're touching a lot of things that others touch, mainly the chips. And you're also touching a lot of surfaces that others touch. You're also in close quarters with a number of people, not quite as much as a cruise ship, but you are. And this puts you in danger of catching the coronavirus much more than other types of places. But at the same time, one thing I'll say with casinos is that uh, some people don't understand how long germs live on surfaces. And the truth is that it varies, but a lot of times germs on surfaces will die within a few hours. And some people don't know that. Some people think that, let's say you cough on a casino chip and you're contagious. If somebody uses that same casino chip in four days, they're not going to catch it from you. They could lick that casino chip, they won't catch it from you. Why? Because the, the virus can only live so long on the surface. Viruses need to be in a body to continually survive. So they, they don't die instantly on a surface, but they don't have a very long lifespan. Kind of think of it like a fish that's out of water. Now, it can live longer than a fish out of water, but uh, a fish out of water, if you, you have it out of the water for, for a minute, it can live. You, you have it out of the water for an hour, it's going to die. So it's kind of like that with the, with the uh, viruses on surfaces. And with casino chips, you're not catching what people who played with the chips yesterday uh, infected it with, for the most part. Now, I don't know how long the coronavirus lives on surfaces, but it, that would be helpful to know. Actually, I never looked that up. But uh, you're really only when you're touching the chips, you're really only in danger from those who touch those chips recently enough for the virus to still be alive on that surface. And, of course, it would have had to be contaminated in some way. It would have to be someone with the coronavirus and who got the coronavirus on the chips, which is not trivial. But is your chance higher of catching that through chips than not being there? Like, it's much higher. And it's even much higher than just being somewhere else where you're not uh, passing something back and forth like chips. But like, let's say you're at a poker table and it's all the same players for like, well, I guess you'd have, some people could be buying chips in the middle, so that wouldn't really... Never mind. The point is, it's not as dangerous as you'd think, but it is a place you can catch it more easily, but I don't think it's as bad as a cruise ship. Uh, I played live poker at the Bellagio in early February and wasn't scared. And that was the same time I was refusing to go to Commerce. The difference I felt was that the dealers were American. Whereas a commerce, they are not. What about today? Well, 
I kind of have mixed feelings on it. We're not hearing of a lot of people catching the coronavirus at casinos. In fact, so far we haven't heard of any, to my knowledge. I'll talk a little bit later about someone who had the coronavirus who worked at a casino, but not someone who caught it at a casino. I think of all the people who go to casinos. We haven't heard yet of one case in the U.S. I'm talking about, not not with Macau or anything. I'm talking about in the U.S. We haven't heard of one case yet of someone catching the coronavirus from a casino. Whereas something like cruise ships, yeah, we've we've seen plenty of cases that have come from those. And I think we're, we're going to get more. So I think maybe casinos are not as dangerous as one might picture. But at the same time, I can understand wanting to stay away from them. What about the World Series of Poker? There's two questions about the World Series of Poker. The question number one is, will the World Series take place? Or is it going to be either postponed or canceled because of the coronavirus? And number two, even if it takes place, should you go? Now keep in mind, Caesars doesn't care about you. Caesars doesn't care if you get sick. They may care maybe from a PR standpoint, but they lose a lot of money if they don't put on the World Series of Poker. They lose money in a number of ways. It's more than you think. They don't only lose out on the money they would have made during the World Series, which is a whole lot, but they also lose out on any money they've already spent on the World Series, on the prep for it, on the fact that they, the, con- the convention space would have been sold to somebody else, but instead is supposed to be taken up by the World Series of Poker, and it's unlikely that they'll be able to sell that space so quickly, so that space will go unused. That's another way they're losing big time. They'd also be losing out on hotel bookings. They'd also be losing out on people spending other things on property when they're there. So there's a lot of things that they would lose out on financially if the World Series of Poker failed to take place. I think they will not voluntarily cancel it unless it looks very likely that they're going to be forced to cancel it. If it looks imminent that it's going to be canceled by the government, then they may say, okay, we're canceling it before they're forced to cancel it, just just for, again, PR reasons, to make it look like they're being responsible. But I believe they want to hold it and just hope it turns out okay, because not holding it will be so costly to them. Now, we still have... Over two and a half months until the World Series of Poker, and things can get a lot worse in that time. There could end up being a lot more panic in that time. If we start seeing a number of people getting sick from the coronavirus at casinos, that will push more to have them close it down. If we start seeing more schools close down from the coronavirus, if we start seeing NBA games that have nobody in the audience, which has been discussed, by the way that uh, if the coronavirus threat becomes big enough that they will play NBA games with nobody in the crowd. So you'll watch the games on TV, but you're not going to be able to attend them. So if you start thinking, if that stuff starts happening, people are going to go, wait a minute. So you can't go and watch an NBA game live, but you can go to the World Series of Poker with thousands of people in close quarters? That doesn't make any sense. And at that point, something might happen. The World Series of Poker could be canceled by Clark County, by the city of Las Vegas, by the state of Nevada, by the United States government. There are a number of government entities, local, state, federal, that could force them to not put the event on. South by Southwest, 
they did not voluntarily cancel. They were forced canceled by the city of Austin. By the way, that actually works into their uh, insurance situation. If they voluntarily cancel the event, I'm talking about South by Southwest or Coachella, then they don't get money back from the insurance. But if the government forces them not to put it on, then they do get money back from the insurance. So that's why South by Southwest did not cancel, but when the city of Austin made them, then they did. So that that's also why it's more likely the World Series of Poker, if it fails to take place, it would be an involuntary, involuntary decision on their part, and why they probably would let themselves get forced canceled rather than get ahead of it, because they probably want to collect on whatever insurance they have if it's the same sort of setup. Maybe they don't have the same sort of setup, but if they do have some kind of insurance that would pay them something substantial if they are forced canceled by the government, then they would definitely let that happen instead of canceling themselves. But the government could force cancel them. The government could decide at some point, as I said, one of several governments that are in power from local all the way up to federal, that just decides, no, we're not going to have a gathering of this many people in one place, and this is dangerous, and we're not allowing it to happen. And then that's it. No World Series. If you have flights booked and they get forced canceled, you do get your money back by law. But if the flight is not canceled, and if the reason you're flying is canceled, then you don't get your money back. So if they cancel the World Series, but the flight to Vegas is still going, you don't get your money back. That's something to consider. So uh, the World Series of Poker, I there is a reasonable chance it could be canceled because of the time we have involved. We have two and a half months for it to get worse. And if we start seeing similar things canceled, even if it's not gambling competitions or poker tournaments, even if we, even if we just see – and we've already had other tournaments in other countries canceled – but even if we don't have that in the U.S. yet, anything that's similar with a large gathering of people that is forced canceled, then there's going to be more and more pressure on something to be done about the World Series, even from a government standpoint. So the World Series, don't count on it taking place. It, it, it probably will. It's more likely it will than won't, for sure. But don't, don't think it's a super long shot not to take place at this point. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, the World Series is going to be canceled and when it, when it goes on as normal, I look like a fool. It's not like that. I'm not going to look like a fool because I'm not saying that. Well, the, and Gruff, even if it does go, attendance is going to be down for sure. Yes, it will. Yes, that, you know, there's so no question. It's like, what's the break even for them? They have to have a certain amount of people and, which we know they're not going to do. I mean, it would be smart to put a bunch of bigger tournaments through their online site, too. You know, so at least people, if they go to Vegas, they can still play online. If after a day playing at the casino, they're starting to get nervous, you know. Well, that was suggested. Someone's put that out there. I don't know if they've considered it, but someone put that out there. I think it was Andy Block put a question out on Twitter asking if the coronavirus is causing concern about the World Series of Poker, would you support them moving some of these events online and making these online bracelets? And I said no, because... I think online bracelets are stupid anyway. I don't think they should exist at all. So, I, I'm very, well, then, well, then it's also people going to Vegas. They're probably not going to want to go to Vegas or Nevada 
right? They'd have to, unless they figured out to put it on a, well, I guess they really couldn't, right? Did no, they, they make could. it available through the I guess is the World Series of Poker software eight eight eight? Yes, it's eight eight eight, but they can only make it available if people are in one of those states where they can play. It has to be in Delaware, in uh in New Jersey or, or Vegas. Or, or I mean Nevada. Okay, okay, but there are three states. Okay, I wasn't yes, sure. Yeah, they could do three. Uh but I they they didn't say they're considering this, by the way. This was thrown out there by Andy Block, but uh, this was not thrown out there by the World Series. And they haven't made a comment recently about this, to my knowledge. They made a comment back in January when a thread was created on 2 Plus 2, and the guy who created the thread was mocked for this. <laughs> like I created a thread going, is the World Series of Poker going to really happen? And people trolled him big time and and really gave it to the guy. I didn't, by the way. I, di- I didn't even get involved in that. But there there were some people who really gave it to the guy for, for being paranoid and uh, for throwing out scenarios that are never going to happen. Uh, now, now it's not such a joke anymore. I mean, there have been some huge conf- – I mean, they just canceled the international – or the game developer conference. Yeah. It's a big conference in San Francisco, Mobile World Congress. I mean, that was in Spain a few weeks ago, but, man, they must have lost a fortune on that. Yeah, I'm seeing more and more get, stuff get canceled that I wouldn't expect – and that's why some things I would have said a few weeks ago I think are highly unlikely to get canceled. Like I told Ken Scaler, who's obsessed with Coachella, I said, Ken, don't worry. Coachella's too soon. It's going to be in kind of like mid-April. There's just not enough time. It's not going to be canceled. It's such a huge deal. That's the, the best-known concert in the U.S. Uh, believe me, Ken, it's not going to be canceled. Today I said, Ken, uh, you know what? I think it's like a 30% chance it doesn't go. <laughs> so, and uh, he's like, oh, it's going to go. It's going to happen. I, said, I don't know. It's, it, I think it's 50-50 at best. So so, so Ken was – he was very – well, I told him it was 70-30 it will go, but uh, like he was – he still wasn't happy to hear that. He wanted to hear that it's going to be like a 1% chance it cancels. And I said, no, no, Ken, it's, it's starting to be realistic. They canceled South South by Southwest and – uh, they were forced canceled, but still, like I, I Coachella, I could easily see that. That's a massive number of people. It's like a hundred thousand people together. That's bigger than the World Series. So that that's something that's in danger. The World Series could be in danger. Uh, baseball games could end up being in danger. So let's talk about baseball games. Is, is that safe to go to? Well, I think there is some risk there, but again, much like the airplane situation, the amount of direct interaction you have with people and surfaces they touch is pretty small compared to the number of people there. There may be 56,000 people in the stadium, but you're interacting with a very small percentage of them, and you're also not touching the surfaces that most of them touch. You go to your seat, you sit there, and aside from when you go to the bathroom or if you touch the handrail when you're walking up, you know, then yes, there's a seat that people may have sat on yesterday, but then again, the virus may not live that long on the, on the surfaces. So, and yes, there's people around you, the guy behind you or next to you could cough on you or something like that. But I'm not saying there's no risk, but there's less risk. Also, there's no recirculated air because at least in the uh, open air stadiums, they're open air. So there's, there's no recirculated air at all, which may help a little as well. I'm kind of on the fence, like, whether I want to go to a Dodgers game early in the season because it's not the playoffs. I, I like to go to an early season game. I usually don't go to opening day. I usually go to a game somewhat early in the season, like April or May. So I have to decide, one, do I go? And two, if I'm willing to go, do I bring Benjamin or do I bring somebody else that's not Benjamin? So I, I have to still decide that. I can With the ball games, I could see either way 
where it would be reasonable to decide to go or not to go because of the coronavirus. I think you really do have to always keep in mind, what am I touching? Is the air recirculated? Uh, am I coming into contact with a lot of the people there or only a very small percentage? You have to think about things like that. So like at a baseball game, the truth is most of the time you're sitting in your same seat and not moving from it. And that's that's a big deal. That makes your risk much, much less. No matter how many people are attending. Especially if you're careful when you're in the more common areas of, of what you touch. And yes, you're, you're, it's a greater danger, but it, it's a trade-off. Do you just stop doing everything to keep yourself totally safe? Or do you say, I'm going to live life and Every day in life, there's a chance. When you drive somewhere, there's a chance you're going to get hit and die. A lot of people die in car accidents every year. I used to use this point. They, they put these obnoxious fences in all the stadiums. Baseball demanded it that every single stadium has these high fences in front of the field seats, now all the way from foul pole to foul pole, to prevent fast foul balls from zipping and smacking someone in the face and killing them. There's been a few people killed over the years that way, including one young girl, which is very sad, in Yankee Stadium. And I was one of the few who said, I don't agree with this. And people said, how could you not agree with this? And I said, because the chance of being killed or hurt that way is still very, very low. You have a much higher chance of dying or getting seriously injured driving to the stadium than you do from a foul ball flying at you at high speed. And if there's that much concern over the kids, then just make it to where those seats are adults only. You can't take kids down there. I'd be okay with that compromise, too. But uh, I think adults should be able to sit in foul territory where a ball can whiz over and hit them in the head if they're super, super unlucky. Because every day you leave your house, you're taking a risk, is the truth. And you have to treat the coronavirus that way, too. If, it's a, if it really is a tiny chance that it's going to kill you, that you, got, if you, remember you had to both catch it and it has to kill you, then you can't disrupt your entire life. But if it starts to be one of these things where it's, not unlikely that you'll catch it, or not super unlikely that you'll catch it, and that there seems to be a mortality rate that is realistic, like even something like 1%, then it makes sense to avoid it. So it's a trade-off. You have to, you have to think. And I, I'm going to have to make this decision with the World Series, something I really enjoy attending, something I've attended every year from 2005 through 2019. I'll also ruin my cashing streak. I've cashed at least once every year from 2005 to 2019, every year I've played. Cash at least once. That will be over if I don't play in 2020. I guess I could claim that that year doesn't count because I just skipped it, but it would. The only way it wouldn't count is if it didn't take place at all. But I'd ruin that streak. And I would just... I, I look forward to it. It's something that I do every year. It's something I've gotten used to. I'm excited to come back and take another shot at the main event after finishing 128th last year. So all that won't happen if either it doesn't take place or more troublesome for me, I have to decide whether I'm going to do it or not if it's kind of a close decision. If it were to take place tomorrow, I would do it. I'd go play. But maybe it'll get worse between now and then. And then it will be a decision. And every day we're kind of – the, the weird thing about this is we're seeing things that are happening positive and negative. Positive is we're not seeing an exponential increase in cases. 
Positive in that uh, we're not seeing kids dying from it. Positive in that we're not seeing that many people dying who are not already sick or old. There's a lot of signs that, one, it's not spreading as fast as feared, and two, that it's not as deadly as feared. But then I've also seen things that become scary. I've also seen that there's concerns that a lot more people have it than either they're aware of or have been properly classified by the governments involved, including the U.S. government. There's been concerns that the U.S. government does not have enough testing kits ready and just hasn't been testing people enough. There's been concerns that people are not classified as having the coronavirus just because they don't meet a very stringent list of criteria when in reality they really do. They just they, – they fall a little bit short in one piece of criteria and they're considered that they don't have the coronavirus than they really do and it, it, it really screws everything up. And also then they don't get quarantined and then they end up spreading it. So there's a lot of concerns that if this is mishandled that this could make things even worse. And that is what caused the 1918 flu pandemic to be so terrible is that it was mishandled because of lack of knowledge at the time. It wasn't so much bad decision-making. It was more lack of knowledge in 1918. And there was, I mean, Google it sometime if you want to, the, the, about the terrible death that came from the 1918 flu around the world. Nothing like the flu we have today. Much, much worse, the consequences of that. But it was because it was a different time. So you should monitor it. You should be aware that it is a danger. You should stock up because you don't know at what, po- at what point everything's going to run out in the store because everyone else is stocking up. You don't want to be left with your pants down that you don't have you. Everything's gone and now you have no way to buy it. That's the first thing. And, and second, you don't know. Maybe, maybe there will be, will be stores shutting down. Like a lot of things can get shut down out of caution, even if it's not killing a tremendous number of people. If it starts, if there's the impression that people are just catching it in the community and dying, if that seems to be more and more commonplace in the U.S., you're going to start seeing things shut down. And you're going to start seeing situations where they're going to take an approach of, okay, we're going to inconvenience everybody a lot in the next few months to really try to prevent this from spreading. So you don't want to be caught in that and then have nothing at home to survive on. Now, the more resources you have, by resources I say money, let's, let's take a call from Matt the Rat. I presume he's calling about this. Oh, we lost Matt the Rat. Matt, Matt called back. I say he was trying to call in here. and it, Oh, he's here. It said he missed the call, but then he's on here. Okay, Matt, hello. Hey, now. What's happening, Matt? Hey. Yeah, I just uh, tuned in late here and just actually it was interesting. I'm just thinking about the World Series myself like everybody else. Um, You know, one thing about the coronavirus, you know, a lot of people on social media are comparing like, oh, you know, so many people die a day from the regular flu and stuff. But to me, those numbers are kind of steady. The coronavirus has has a much more potential to, like, explode. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I do know what you mean. And... It's not. Yeah, it's, it's got the potential to explode, and also we still don't know fully of how dangerous it is to the average person. the The average person at the World Series is not someone who is usually battling a major disease. Usually, if you're at the World Series, you're healthy enough to just travel over there and play. So, so exactly. And like, 
I, I mean, my hotel's already booked. I, I haven't booked my flight. I was going to use credit card points, but I found out that if I have to cancel, like, I'm just out of luck. So I think I'm going to just pay, like, regular and just buy the cancellation insurance. Yeah, see, at least I don't have to deal with that. Because I drive there and because the hotels I'm booking, I can cancel up to the same day, I can really make it a last-minute decision where people such as yourself who are coming from a much farther distance and have to fly, then you, you do have the flight aspect to it, which is frustrating to, to have to think about. And, you know, I, my, like my flight is two hours, 45 minutes. If I take a flight, I, I mean, I might wear a mask on the flight just for that time. Yeah, you could if you can get one. I don't know how easy they are to get. I don't have a mask yet, and I don't. I think they're probably too tough to get at this point. Um, well, and and do you know why people are buying toilet paper? Well, I assume they're buying it because they they want to stock up in case they can't get it later. Well, that that's part of it. But um, from what I've read, one of the symptoms of the coronavirus is diarrhea. And so, <laughs> if you're quarantined and you have diarrhea and you can't go out, you need toilet paper. You know what's funny is when I this, the stomach issues I was having on Saturday and Sunday like these I was having diarrhea and I said uh oh do I have the coronavirus but then I, I had no fever throughout the whole thing and apparently a fever is a very consistent symptom with the coronavirus so if you have no fever the chance of you having the coronavirus is pretty low uh, once you're getting symptoms that is you, you, there are people who are asymptomatic that's another thing scary thing is that there are some there's some belief that you can be asymptomatic for up to two weeks and still be contagious. And that's also something to watch out for, where with the flu and with colds, there's only a short period of time where you're asymptomatic and contagious. Nothing like two weeks. So that's that's yeah. also disturbing. Well, and, I, I heard something today, though, that contradicted that, okay. where they said that you couldn't, but who the hell knows. Yeah, that's what we're waiting for. Sorry, Matt. We're, we're, waiting no. for, we're waiting for more information that's conclusive. We're seeing things from different angles, different things that contradict yeah, each other everybody's kind of waiting like like i'm like you like if it was if the world series was like in the next two weeks i just 100 percent i'd be going but i'm i'm waiting and seeing because who knows what's going to happen like like here in canada i don't know what the exact count is but like a few days ago it was only like i think 30 people in total in all of canada with a like a almost 40 million population had it and i think it was like 13 people in bc and the rest were ontario and that's it um and I, I don't even know if there's been any deaths in Canada yet. So it's still relatively small, and a lot of those people were linked to traveling to Iran. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I know in Iran they're having a lot of trouble. Right, so, yeah, it, it's still – the one thing to say at this point in the U.S. and Canada, it seems, too, that the chance of just catching it when you just go out somewhere is very low at this point. It may get much worse, but – at this point, it's very low. At this point, it's really not much of a chance that you're going to catch it just from going out and just doing things you normally do. But that, that's true. But playing poker is the one thing where all those chips get passed around. Well, yeah, and I don't know if you were on when I when listening when I was saying that the one saving grace of that is that the virus, no viruses just live indefinitely on chips. They die. So I'm not sure how long the coronavirus lives on surfaces, but like the, the typical... A rhinovirus that causes a cold uh, that will usually die on surfaces within like four hours and uh, so that's something I don't know how long the coronavirus lasts but they don't just, if you touch, as I said like if someone coughs on a chip who had the coronavirus four days ago and then you you could lick the chip four days later and probably be fine 
Yeah, but if you're playing at a table and say somebody has it and they don't know it, and they cough on their hand and then they touch the chip and the chips get, I mean, you're playing a tournament or cash, those chips get passed around. Oh, I know, you I can know. pick it up that way. I know. I, there's a much elevated chance at the casino. I agree with that. I'm just saying that we haven't heard of it, though. We still have not had someone who's gotten the coronavirus because they went to a casino. And that's important. We still haven't seen that yet in the U.S. or in Canada. And I, I, that's something to keep in mind as far as the amount of danger you're facing. But there's enough unknown now to where you still have to be cautious. You still have to make some logical decisions of do I want to risk it? And like I decided with commerce, no, I don't. There's too many Chinese nationals dealing there. I, I don't want to do it. That's, that was my decision. So there, that- there, did you see on Twitter there was a guy, I can't remember where it was, but he had on not like just one of those regular masks, but they say actually those, like just the regular cheap mask, it's, it doesn't stop you from uh, spreading or, or getting it. What it does is it stops you from touching your nose and your mouth. Yeah, that's and it would probably help with you somewhat with with if you cough or something, it won't get on, uh, it won't come out of your mouth and, and spray on someone. But yeah, I, I know it doesn't completely prevent it. You can easily still spread it and, and or still get it that way. And yeah, the, and the the inadvertent touching of your mouth or nose is a big way people pick up viruses. But it, but there was also on Twitter there was a guy playing poker with one of those almost like a painter's mask, like the really form-fitting tight, and he had goggles and a mask and gloves. And it was, he was, and someone took a picture of it. It was it was pretty funny, but like, it, the guy wasn't joking. He went to play poker and he had on the full thing. Yeah. Well, and that's, look, I, I, I would be very interested to see the World Series of Poker numbers, no matter what happens, even if they really get a handle They're, on the coronavirus. Yeah, they will be down. Even if sure. they get a handle on the coronavirus very soon, it's, it's still close enough now. It's two and a half months away to where I think that uh, we're going to have declined numbers. And uh, there's a reasonable chance the whole thing gets forced canceled by one of the governments involved. We'll have to see. Well, and the terrible thing is um, think about the uh, Tokyo Olympics. They've spent $25 billion on that. And they might have to postpone it for a year or cancel. Those are those two. They're the two options. Yeah, I know. That, and that's, that's what's being dealt with with a lot of these expensive events that uh, will be a tremendous amount of money lost if canceled. The Coachella is one that's coming up that's like that too, not as big as the Tokyo Olympics, but still it's been uh, assumed that uh, about a billion dollars will be lost if that has to be canceled. There's yeah. A lot of, a lot of money involved. But it, I, I'm kind of like you. Like I, I've been to the World Series, um, well, 11 years in a row. And it's, you know, it's a nice holiday. I like going for the experience and meeting up with people and stuff and, uh, It'd just be kind of like almost weird not going. Yeah, that's how I feel. It's um, but and I, I'm wondering. I, I bet you the it'll be interesting. I bet you the flights there, flights to Las Vegas are generally cheap. But I bet you they'll be even cheaper, like in the next month or so. Yeah, they might be. And and I oh, think yeah, I saw people tweet tweet flights to Vegas in the past few weeks where it's like four people on the plane. Yeah, and that's that's wow. another thing that's interesting is that. Uh, the, the planes, the, they've gotten very good in recent years, even just the last decade, at keeping planes full. They've gotten so good at analyzing predicted uh, interest in buying flights based on historical data that they've really gotten good at figuring out uh, which flights to have and which flights not to have, to where it's so unusual to fly these days with a plane that's mostly empty. But now, because you have a lot of people that just are, are deciding to cancel and just not go, and because people are just not buying as many tickets uh, in the short term that uh, for flights that are relatively soon, there's just a lot less 
planned air travel that's being planned in 2020, now everything that's historical is out the window. So now you're seeing these weird flights that are going with hardly anyone on board like you used to see back in the 90s. But I, I would say, see, actually, that whatever flights those are, those are good airlines because um, a couple times I've known people personally to fly to Las Vegas, not for World Series, but just whatever time, uh, and they flew Allegiant. Allegiant, and what happened is there the, the flight, I guess, was only 50% booked, and they, they basically canceled the flight because they couldn't make enough money and the guy lost a whole day only off a, like a four day holiday and they wouldn't, they, they gave him another flight the next day, but they wouldn't pay for his hotel loss or anything. So you got to make sure, number one, don't fly Allegiant if it's, you know, not near sold out or don't fly some, you know, like really crappy airline. I, I will say that the other airlines do this crap too. It's just if they will sometimes run those planes anyway if they have to, if they need the plane to for a connection or to, to fly somewhere else. They, they, may, they may need the plane over there physically, and they'd actually fly it with no people. So that's that's why they go sometimes. Yeah, but like on the West Coast where we are, most flights are direct to Las Vegas. I mean, I can get connections, but I always fly direct, and it's um, – it's, it's, but Allegiant is just, they're, they're terrible. They're just brutal. And, uh, I'm sure there's other ones out there like that, but yeah, you definitely don't want to get stuck for, like, because, because they didn't sell out their plane. Yeah. Well, and I, I have a friend who posted pictures on Facebook of LA airport and it's usually, usually the, the, the traffic is terrible around there and the, this, this circle that you go through all the terminals, it's just, it's so, so jammed and it's getting worse every year. He posted a picture in the middle of the day. You couldn't see another car. It was just his car and nobody else. It was completely empty. Wow. I, I actually had, uh, for my work, I had to go to the um, Vancouver airport last week. And um, it was it was not as busy, but there were still quite a few people there. So, Yeah, well, so it's, it's definitely going to affect the airlines too, for sure. And, and yes, if you haven't bought a ticket yet, you may want to wait. If you do think you're – not only in case you have to cancel – but also, you may see the price go down if the demand gets lower and lower. And that's what it appears. A lot of people don't want to travel right now. A lot of people don't want to – if they do travel, they want to drive. They, they don't want to get on a plane with others. There's a lot of people who are resistant to getting on planes, a lot of people who are resistant to going to casinos, a lot of people resistant to get on cruise ships especially. I bet, I bet the cruise uh, – the interest in cruising is going to really, really plummet in 2020. For a while. Well, and also, if you're doing any travel with credit card points, double check because I, I thought, oh, if I have to cancel, I'll get the points back. But for certain cards or whatever, no, 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 you just lose them. Like that's it. If you're paying with points, so you you might be better just to pay pay and get the insurance and not use your points. Yeah, you should you should check on that. Yeah. So, so. anyway, I just thought I would chime in there. So I guess if uh, if I do go, I'm sure I'll see both you guys there, and we'll have to. Uh, get into some kind of scenario there where we get screwed over like every time. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, maybe with fewer Absolutely. people, maybe there'll be, maybe there'll be less, less fail there with fewer people to deal with. Maybe they'll actually uh, decl- lower the percentage of, of fail of Caesar's fail. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk to you guys right. later. Thank you, Matt. Right. Hey, Matt. See ya. Thanks. How about some poker fraud alert masks dropped instead of the hats? That's right. I should, maybe I should order that. Maybe get uh, poker fraud alert masks. That, that would be kind of funny actually, if people had that. You know, if, it's too bad I couldn't get a large quantity of masks right now. That would be the custom masks. Think if people could have uh, – if I could hand these out at the World Series and there would be all these people with masks that say poker fraud alert.com on the front of them. That would be great and cheap marketing.
that would that's a great idea if there were only a way to get like a lot of masks and cu- custom print on them without it being too expensive. Because they're imagine just you see everybody in the world series walking around with masks saying pokerfraudler.com. That would be great. Okay, that would be great. Then it finds out when you put the logo on it, put a little hole in the mask, and everybody gets sick. <laughs> <laughs> then, I, then I'd get sued for everything I have. That'd be great. I'd have to have everyone sign a waiver. This mask does not prevent you from catching coronavirus. This is for uh, aesthetics only. I have uh, Eric Benzamokin maybe uh, design a waiver for me. Okay, so uh, I want to quickly talk about the bets that were being offered. I don't know if they still are, but uh, Doug Polk and Michael McDonald were both early people talking about the World Series possibly not going. And they were willing at the time, I don't know if they still are, but they were willing at the time to put their money where their mouth was and take bets. Now, Doug Polk wanted pretty long odds. He wanted 20 to 1, meaning you would put up 20 for every one he'd put up that the World Series would go. So if, uh, let's say you put up uh, $2,000 that the World Series would go, then you would win 100 if it did go, and if it didn't, Doug would win your 2000 Michael McDonald put up a 12 to 1 bet, where it's the same thing, except it would be 1200 to 100 But these days, that would not be a good bet. Back when they put up the bet, I never liked the 20 to 1, but the 12 to 1, I was actually considering, and Michael McDonald was saying that he'll take bets up to 24K to win 2K off of him. So that if you want to, he'll take up to 24K from you to pay you 2K, and, and his criteria was that if a single live bracelet event plays, then you win. So I thought, okay, 12 to 1, that's, that's not a bad bet, because they really are going to want to put this on. They're not going to cancel this lightly. We're not that far away from it. So yeah, 12 to 1, it may be free money. But then, you know, I started to reconsider. I started to think about, well, you know, there was some country, I forgot which one it was, that was forced canceling events that were a 1,000 people or more. And I said, you know, I could see that happening in the U.S. And I started seeing more and more things, like in Japan, schools were closing. And I'm like, you know, this doesn't sound all that far-fetched anymore that the government could say no World Series of Poker when late May comes around. So while I don't think have that's... You see, you have you seen... Sorry, Jeff. Have you seen those baseball games in uh, Japan with no fans? No, but that's, that's, the oh, pos- yeah. that's a possibility. Professional baseball games. Yeah, no the, N- the NBA already has put out a plan that they will do that if that is what is necessary. And maybe in U.S. baseball games that could happen that they play with no fans. So, so with all these things being discussed, I'm not saying that it's a 50% or more chance that no World Series will happen, but... I think it's now a higher chance than 12 to 1. So I think that would be a bad bet at 12 to 1 at this point. I would not make that bet. But nevertheless, those bets were offered and they were willing to take that action. And I think uh, I think Michael McDonald had some minimum, but then there was another guy, forgetting who it was. It's on Mike McDonald's Twitter. Another guy who was willing to take smaller bets. But I, I at this time, that's not a good bet anymore, in my opinion. I think there's too high of a chance the government will force them to not put it on. So we will see. There's only been one casino in the U.S. that has closed due to coronavirus, and it only occurred for two days. And this was because an employee had the coronavirus. So here's here's what happened. Uh, it was an Indian casino that closed 
and it closed for two days. It's uh, it was called the Wild Horse Resort and Casino, and it was located near uh, Salem, Oregon, in uh, Pendleton. And what happened was that uh, one of the employees had the coronavirus, so they decided they had to close. The a state health officer named Dean Seidlinger said. With having three cases fairly quickly identified, two of which we can't identify the specific source, it would indicate that this disease is circulating in our community, and we'd likely see additional cases. That was him talking about the concern there. Um, the uh, so they they just they closed down for two days out of caution because uh, if an employee had it, then he could have spread it around the casino. So they closed for two days and basically sanitized everything. And then they reopened. And uh, that, to my knowledge, is the only casino that has shut down for any length of time in the U.S. Of course, Macau, they closed the casinos for about, I think, two or two and a half weeks. Those are back open. But uh, that is the first time we've seen a casino close as a result of the coronavirus and uh, they claim they closed, quote, out of an abundance of caution. And they, there was a sign that said, temporarily closed for cleaning. So that really meant we're sanitizing the whole place because an employee may have spread it around here. But it's not thought that anyone has caught it from there. It was that he caught it in some unknown way and then was working at the casino. It'll be interesting to see what happens at much larger casinos, like in Vegas, what if they find that an employee has the coronavirus. Then what? Will they close a large Vegas casino? Like if if at Caesars they find one of their employees has it, what are they going to do? Are they going to close two days for cleaning? Or is Caesars going to say, no, that's going to cost us too much money. We're just going to kind of try to figure out where he's been and clean up. I don't know. But uh, so far only one casino closed in the U.S., and we will see what happens with the Vegas casinos. I think undoubtedly we're going to see at some point a casino employee who had the coronavirus. It's just there's too many casino employees in Vegas that you'd think that every single one of them would dodge the coronavirus. Adobe, you know, they make uh, the they make a lot of different products. Uh, of course, uh, Adobe Flash for our chat room that uh, is frequently criticized by CalWatt. But every time you open a PDF file, Adobe Acrobat, that's uh, Adobe who put that format together, they have abandoned its annual summit. They were going to have it at the Sands Expo Convention Center, which is next to the Venetian, connected to the Venetian. They were going to have it from March 29th through April 2nd, and they decided that they're not going to have it. Instead, they're going to do the expo online. And I I wonder how many other cancellations like that are going to take place. Uh, Also, there's going to be a lot fewer Chinese tourists coming to Las Vegas as a result of the coronavirus. So that's uh, going to hurt casinos anyway. And I'm sure... In general, a lot fewer people are wanting to go to casinos because of the fear of the coronavirus. 
So that uh, we will see what happens with that. One small Indian casino closing for two days uh, doesn't mean a whole lot, but that may be the start of a lot. Right now, the state in the U.S. with the most trouble with the coronavirus is Washington State. Last I heard, there have been five deaths there from the coronavirus and uh, 18 confirmed cases. Um, actually, I think there's more than that. There was, I think there's old numbers. These were numbers from uh, three days ago or four days ago. So I think it's uh, probably greater than that. But I know that's where they had uh, the most problem with the coronavirus is in Washington State. So that, that's where it stands. I think there's not much more to say about the coronavirus topic. We spent over an hour on it. And hopefully you've learned something here. And it's up to you to interpret everything. There is no real right or wrong answer at this time because the facts are not known enough. It's something you're going to do by feel and figure out your own personal risk to that versus things you want to do. One thing I would urge is that for from a financial standpoint that you... Take more care to book things that are refundable. Like what Matt was saying, he didn't want to book with points if your points can't be refunded, even if the flight gets forced canceled on you. So you, you don't want to, this year, book things that are non-refundable if they are forced canceled. Now, in some cases, you'd have to get a refund, but if there's related closures, then you won't get a refund. Again, like... You don't want to book a non-refundable flight to the World Series, and then the World Series doesn't take place. You don't get a refund for that if, if the flight's going to go. So you may, you may want to take a look at, is it is there a refundable option that I normally wouldn't do, but in this case is better? It, you, again, you got to make a decision. I know refundable flights can be very expensive, so it may be just worth uh, taking the chance. Or maybe you'll fly on a different airline, which has a better refund policy or, or change policy. You, you, you may want to look into these things or maybe even get some kind of insurance travel insurance that you normally don't get. I usually think travel insurance is a horrible deal, and I never get it. I've never bought it once in my life, but maybe you want to in this case because this is these are unusual times here. So you should try to make any trips you plan for 2020, you should try to make them as flexible as possible regarding cancellations. So at least for the World Series of Poker, I don't have to worry about that. I, I will not be out any money if I choose to cancel going to the World Series, or if it just doesn't take place. What about the pieces I'm going to sell of the World Series? Because, by the way, the full schedule has come out. Very similar to the schedule that's been out for the last few weeks. But they, they put a few events on that weren't up there before, like the 3K Limit Hold'em and stuff like that. So you can, if you go to WSOP.com slash tournaments, all lowercase, you can see the full World Series of Poker schedule. But I'm actually not selling the pieces quite yet, because I don't want to go through all the hassle of selling pieces just to have to refund it to everybody. But of course, if I don't play, you will get a full refund. So that's... It will be of no concern to you, other than the pain in the ass of sending me money and receiving the money back. Every penny you send me, you will get back if I choose not to play. But keep in mind, if you send it to me, I may choose not to play, even if the World Series of Poker takes place. So don't be pissed off. Oh, man, I, I bought a piece of this guy, and he chose not to play when it's still going. What an asshole. Like, no, I'm going to give you the money back, and I'll give it back to you in a timely fashion, but I, it'll be up to me whether I play, not up to anyone who buys pieces of me. That's, and I also have my family to think about, not just me. 
Because if I catch the coronavirus there and bring it home, then that would be a big problem. So that's the other thing I have to think about before going there. But as Matt said, it kind of feels like it's just something you're used to. It's something that feels weird not to do at this point if you've done it year after year after year. So okay, we'll move on to a different topic. You're probably sick of hearing coronavirus talk by now. Let's talk about Phil Galfond, who maybe was hoping that Vinny Vitti caught the coronavirus and couldn't play anymore. Last we heard with Phil Galfond, he was getting killed. He was getting destroyed. At, uh, he was losing almost every session and big to Vinny Vitti as part of the Galfond challenge. He was down almost a million bucks and then paid another 18,000 euro to buy out of six matches that they had planned so he could take a break. This was things they had pre-planned as far as the penalties were concerned. So he paid an 18,000 euro penalty to Vanny Vidi, who was already up on him about $980,000. This actually took it, I think, over a million dollars to what he was actually down at that point, not even counting the side bet that he's very likely to lose. And Galfon said that before March 1st, he will make a decision whether he continues or not. Well, he decided that he is going to continue playing Veni Vidi, despite the terrible results he's had thus far, and despite the fact that he was only done with about 40% of the hands that they had agreed to play. Now, he, of course, he can quit at any time and just pay the side bet he's losing, which is going to be 200,000 euro. But some people were saying, oh, that's not very smart, Phil. <laughs> uh, you should have just walked away, but Phil is going to go forward and play. That was his plan. So there's been three matches since he announced his comeback. And by, when he announced his comeback, he, he wrote a blog. The blog was just, I'm continuing, or something like that. It was like, it was like a one-sentence blog. People expected to see like a wall of text like he always writes. This time it was like a one-sentence blog, which I think was kind of just to troll everybody. But whatever. He did come back to play. And people were wondering, after this hiatus... Was he just going to come back and just get killed once again? Was this just going to be more of the same? Was it going to be another beatdown? Well, it turned out it wasn't. Now, I had wondered if during the downtime that he was going to get together with friends and intensely study Veni Vidi's style, that maybe he'd have friends go over the hands and see things he didn't see. He's not a... PLO noob. This is a guy who was one of the best heads-up PLO players in the world in 2010. And now, 10 years later, Veni Vidi obviously has a style that uh, is more effective than his. But he's someone who is good enough at the game, even after not playing that much for the past several years, that he can adapt if he just understands what's going on and why he's losing. And I've had it before, not in PLO, which I don't play much of, but in Limit Hold'em, where I'm playing cash and I'm noticing I'm starting to lose. I'm noticing certain players are just beating me all the time. And I go, what are they doing differently than me? And I go, oh, you know what? Like this thing this guy's doing, that's actually a pretty good thing. I should have been doing this too. And like a, I'll learn from other people. I'll sometimes learn from other people who are beating me and watch what they're doing differently than me and then start doing what they're doing or adapt to what they're doing to counter what they're doing. So that's, that's what Phil was doing, I'm sure. And he may have enlisted help. Uh, other great... PLO players, maybe even ones who play more of the modern game than he does, to look at this and figure out what he could do differently. So I, I wasn't sure he was going to come back and lose. I thought maybe the off time 
could help, but I also thought there wasn't that much time, and you're not going to catch back up that quickly if there's a a big difference in skill between the two of them. But I thought he had a better chance to come back and do better after that break than had he not taken the break. Well, it went extremely well on his first uh, session back. Extremely well. He won 183,481 euro. So he won about $200,000 back off of Veni Vidi in his return. Now keep in mind, this was uh, following just a beatdown he had taken three sessions in a row, especially the uh, the third to last session he did prior to the break, he lost 267,000 euro. And the very last session he played prior to the break, he lost 102,000 euro. So he was down uh, 900,000 euro overall, but not $980,000. And then he comes right back and wins 183,000 euro just in one session. So he was very excited. His fanboys were very excited. And people were wondering, well, does this mean that Phil has figured out Veni Vidi, or might it mean that Veni Vidi was just running really well before, and now Variance is swinging the other way? Maybe maybe Galfon wasn't even an underdog here. He just ran really, really bad. So people were really wondering what would happen the next match. Well, the next match, Veni Vidi won uh, 21,000 euro, which given the stake they were playing, 100, 200 euro blinds, that's not very much. That was kind of close to even, actually. They played 582 hands, and yes, Veni Vidi won 21,000 euro. Yes, this stopped Phil's big comeback. If Phil came back and spanked him a second time, not only would that sent his confidence level soaring, but Veni Vidi would have started to question, hmm, maybe Phil's figured me out. But Veni Vidi was able to book a win that session. Not a huge win, but he was able to book a win and slow down some of Phil's momentum. So while Phil didn't get completely destroyed, and that had to make him feel good that he didn't give back what he won or anywhere near that, that he, he lost moderately to Veni Vidi, but uh, Veni Vidi nevertheless won. Then what happened was the following session... Phil won again, but something similar. Phil won 20, 27,198 euro off of any VD. So Phil did win two of the three sessions. He had uh, a big win, a small loss, and a small win, which is a lot better than he'd been doing. This was, uh, if you just consider the two very, very close to even sessions they played, that Phil only had one winning session against Veni Vidi prior to the break, and now he's already had two since coming back out of three sessions. I think he was one twelve and two. Now he's two. Uh, now he is uh, two and one since returning. So that's already a big improvement. However, there is one downside, and that was that Phil was destroying Veni Vidi a second time in the last session he just played. But I just told you he only won 27,000 euros, so how could that be? Phil was up 130,000 euro at one point above Veni Vidi in this last session. It looked like it was going to be two out of three sessions where Veni Vidi just gets stomped on. But then Veni Vidi came back and won over 100,000 euro back to bring it to only losing 27,000 euro. Given the swings we're seeing here, 
is it really possible that Venny Vidi isn't as good as people thought he was and maybe Phil is almost even in skill with him or maybe is even in skill with him and just has run much, much worse? I'd say yes, it's more possible now than before, but I still don't believe it. I think Phil's better results here were a combination of, number one, just the break helping him out mentally. Number two, having an ability to study Venny Vidi's hands and have friends help him, which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. I, I would have done that too in his shoes. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything unethical or wrong about that. So that's what you're supposed to do during this time. And, and number three, that uh, I think that probably Phil's running a little bit better now. I think Phil probably ran worse than average against Venny Vidi. How much worse? I don't know, but he probably did w- run worse than average. And during these three sessions combined, he ran better than average. So we will see. As this goes on, it'll start to get more clear. But at least Phil's been competitive now for the last three sessions, and he had two of the last three sessions where he was well over 100,000 euro up on Venny Vidi, but only one of those two sessions did he end up with a big win. But this has shown that Phil can run up big wins too. He ran up 188,000 euro in the, or 183,000 euro in that one session, in the first session back, and then he, he ran up uh, 130,000 euro in the third session back, only to lose most of it back. So how, uh, like, I guess it is conceivable that Phil could get lucky and have a number of sessions where he wins like that and does not give it back. Maybe even gets back even. I don't think it's going to happen, but it, it does show that he's not dead money. At least he's proven he's not dead money. And I think Phil probably feels a lot better right now. Even though he chunked off a lot of that lead on the final session, He uh, he's showing at least he can compete. He still has about 14,000 hands left. They've only played about 11,000. I guess they, they played 11,638. So they have about, uh, they have 13,362 hands left. They're getting close to the halfway mark, but not quite there. The halfway mark is 12,500 hands. I have to imagine that this has brought Phil's confidence back enough to where he's at least thinking he's going to play this for the long haul. If he just came back and got stomped on three matches in a row, I think he'd just give up. But now now that he has put together some decent sessions here, been competitive every single time, now even if he loses again for the next few sessions, I think this has bought him some confidence for a while. So we'll see. If Phil does manage to erase this deficit he has against Vinny Vitti and beat him, that will be a tremendous comeback story. That will be a, a Joe Biden-like comeback story, except in poker. And now I feel it's more possible than I felt before. Before I felt it was almost impossible. Even Phil said it was almost impossible. Now it's starting to look possible now that we see some of the swings. He'd have to get lucky to do it, but it, it's possible. But if he does that, that'll really change the narrative of everything. Then he'll go, he'll go from being a has-been who was getting beat by one of the 2020 Wiz kids to an all-time gray to once he shakes off the rust can still beat the Wiz kids. So very, very big as far as Phil's rep of what kind of player he is today if he were to manage to come back and erase what he's down, which at the moment is 711,000 euro, which is a lot to erase. They're almost halfway done. That's a lot to erase, but 
there are big swings here, so who knows. So we'll be watching this, and if you go to Phil Galfon's Twitter, you'll see that he announces whenever he plays. I'm not sure when the next session is. Let's see if I can figure this out before ending this little segment. The next session... No, I do see it. The next session is actually less than 11 hours from now. Or sorry, it's less, even more less than that. It's less than 8 hours from now. It'll be starting at 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Saturday. Right now it is 12.26 a.m. Pacific Time, Saturday, March 7th. So if you're up early, or up at any time in the morning, really, then you can watch this and see how it's going. So by tomorrow afternoon, we will have another session in the books and see if uh, Phil Galfon can continue his competitive play or if this chunking off 100,000 euro at the end of that session is going to be more of the norm. So that's where that currently stands. Just wanted to give you guys an update. Didn't want to make this whole long Galfon segment, and I will not. We will move on. We're going to talk about... The Bill Reaney meltdown. And I guarantee you're not going to hear about this anywhere else except on this show. This is one of these type of topics which I think is interesting, but which no other show is going to cover. They just don't do it. They just don't approach things from the angle we do. And I like to cover both interesting poker news and interesting happenings among personalities in poker. And this is the latter. And a lot of other shows don't do that. A lot of other shows just want to, they give you the basic news of what's going on or interesting stories of what's going on, but they don't cover so much the, the personalities in poker, of which there's many oddball, weird, and interesting ones. So Bill Reaney has always been fascinating to me, not always in a good way. I've talked to him about him a lot on this show. I did a big segment about him when he left as the head of World Series of Poker.com, when he was the card room manager of WSOP.com for many years, pretty much from the beginning. And after about six years there, he quit. And I always had a lot of criticism for him. I thought he did a horrible job. I thought he was the wrong hire. I think Bill Reaney is an intelligent guy. I, I know he worked as a software manager for some of the big online poker sites. I think probably he's a software manager. I don't know this for sure, but as a software manager, he may very well be competent. But I know as a customer service type manager, as, as someone who manages an entire card room, that's a different skill set than being a software manager. And I can tell you from knowing software managers, from working for software managers, when I worked in software, some of those guys who manage me, if they managed the entire project, it would be a disaster. I can tell you that from experience. A lot of software managers would suck at managing anything else. A lot of software managers suck at managing people. A lot of software managers suck at dealing with customers. Not just aren't that good, they suck. They're like horrible choices for those type of positions. So you have to be careful when you hire someone with management experience in software that you don't give them too much to manage that is out of their scope of of talent. Because management does require management talent and management skill and managing a software project versus managing a, either a company or a large portion of a company or a large department of a company or dealing with customers, these are totally different skill sets. And Bill Reaney did not have them for WSOP.com, and it was very clear. There were many, many things that happened over time, 
And just his general philosophy was to avoid, avoid, avoid. He didn't like dealing with customers. He didn't like dealing with controversy. He had a very thin skin. He couldn't take criticism. He couldn't even take constructive criticism of the site. Like, I understand reacting angrily. People go, Bill Arena, you suck, man. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You're a freaking moron. Like, if someone comes to him that way, I understand if he doesn't respond to them or responds angrily. But you had people coming to him in a respectful manner asking, hey, can you please help us solve this? We've got a problem here. And he'd hide. He'd block them, he'd ignore them, he'd avoid the problem. He'd go into his shell like a turtle. And I talked about this back in September when we discussed him leaving. I also talked about it last week when we talked about how there's a new, or two weeks ago, I guess, our last show, when th- that there's a new WSOP.com head named Danielle Beryl, who I know very little about, but that they just kind of mentioned that she's the one in charge now without, without ever really introducing her, and I felt that was a mistake. And during that segment, I talked about Bill Reaney. So I don't want to make this a long bash Bill Reaney's job at the WSOP.com. Uh, I, I don't want to make another segment of that. We've done that too often here. But there's new, present, current news with Bill Reaney that is just so bizarre. I would have never seen this one coming. Bill Reaney was known for being passive-aggressive. Bill Reaney would hide from controversy, hide from problems. He would not want to help you if you had a problem and you weren't happy with the way things were going at WSB.com. In fact, he wouldn't want to help you even if you were polite to him. He just didn't like anything that was even the slightest bit contentious. So he was someone who would kind of hide from issues and also be passive-aggressive, but he would not come right out and attack anybody. That was never him until now. Bill Reaney, who is by no means a prolific tweeter, He last tweeted prior to this whole thing on October 29th, 2019. So he just went silent on Twitter for a long time. And even when he was on Twitter uh, prior to October 29th, he was never a very frequent tweeter. But on March 2nd, he made a return to Twitter. And it started out with a tweet that just said, Wow, with a screenshot. If you click on the screenshot, you, you know, it says wow, and it's like a screenshot you have to click on to be able to see what is in the screenshot. It's a, it looks like some conversation. So you click on the screenshot, and it's blurry. It's a pretty big screenshot, but it's like a big screenshot where everything's a blur. So what do you do? Of course, you, you try to zoom in, right? Maybe, maybe if you zoom in, you can see better, right? Nope. No matter how much you zoom, you can't read a word. You could have a gun to your head. You could not read a single word of this big screenshot. His first tweet, after all those months off, from October 29th to March 2nd, his first tweet where he says, wow, and posts a screenshot, you can't read one word of the screenshot. (laughs) That's Bill reading in a nutshell. Nor did he remove the tweet, nor did he say, sorry about that, guys, I posted a screenshot that's illegible, let let me me post a clear one. No, he just, it's still up there, it's still there. You you could find it, his his, uh, Twitter is... At Bill Reini, B-I-L-L-R-I-N-I. That, that's still there. That's a st- still his first tweet back. It's just, wow, period. And then a screenshot, you just can't see anything. I would have deleted that tweet so fast once I discovered the mistake. And then I would have put it out there, sorry, guys, something was wrong with the screenshot. Here's a clear version. No, he just puts wow, leaves this blurry thing up there, and that's it. So but some people, of course, said back, uh, we can't read this, Bill. What is this? So then he posted another screenshot which was clearer. 
it wasn't the same screenshot, but he posted another sc- screenshot, which wasn't super easy to read, but once he zoomed in, you could read the image. He didn't provide any context. It just posts this up, and you've got to figure out what he's talking about. But it says, MTTC Plan of Attack. And that sounds that stands for Multi-Table Tournament Community Plan of Attack. Hmm, plan of Attack, what does that mean? This is a screenshot that Bill Reaney is posting. That is something else that someone wrote that he's exposing, okay? Uh, I will read the plan of attack shortly, but when someone asked, uh, what this, Max Silver asked, what's going on? And Bill Reaney said back, and this is very unlike him to say, Bill Reaney said back, I just decided to call out some American scum. Oh! I've decided to call out some American scum. 12.23 p.m. Pacific Time, March 2nd, 2020. Mm. Well, who is the American scum? It's not me, by the way. He doesn't like me at all, but it wasn't me. He might think I'm scum, but not, not in the context of these tweets. He decided to call out some American scum. So who's the scum he's calling out? This is a very quiet guy on social media. This is one who hides from everything. He's just going to come out, guns ablaze, and calling out some American scum. So all these scumbags in poker, of which there are many, who are the American scum? Who's he talking about? What had to do with that thing he posted with his MTTC plan of attack? And he, after posting that, then he at, he he did the at references on Twitter, calling out three people and wrote, pretty pathetic, don't you think? Well, who are these three American scumbags he was calling out? That would be Ryan Lang, Chance Cornuth, and Ryan LaPlante! Oh, boy. I don't know if Ryan LaPlante still listens to this show. He did at one point. He used to listen to every episode at one point. But uh, Ryan LaPlante, I can tell you, even though I, I agree with none of his politics, I can tell you Ryan LaPlante is at least an honest, decent guy. I think he's one of the trustworthy people in poker. I've never seen any evidence that the guy's shady at all. And even though I disagree with him on some things, um, I don't think he's a bad guy at all. And I actually think, uh, like, like he's a decent person. It's not even like, like there's certain other people, like, like David O.D.B. Baker. I don't like his personality. I think the guy's an asshole. But I think he's also trustworthy. And I think he thinks the same of me. I think he thinks I'm an asshole, but I'm trustworthy. But uh, Ryan LaPlante, I, I don't even think he's an asshole. Like, I think he's a decent guy. And I think he's also trustworthy. He, he by no means is American scum. Chance Cornuth, I don't know him, but I know he's respected. I've never heard anything bad about Chance Cornuth. And Ryan Lang, I don't know him, but I've never heard anything bad about him. So <laughs> the, the, this is the American scum. Of all the people who could be calling out, it's, it's them. So what did they do? What, what did these three do to get Bill Arini's ire? Well, you have to read the MTTC plan of attack, which presumably these guys wrote and, and put out. So here's the plan of attack. And as I read this, you'll get to understand more what these guys were trying to do. Now, by the way, this is a screenshot of something they put out a while ago. This is not something they just wrote. This is something Bill has been sitting on for a long time, and now he's, he's dropping the bomb in March 2020 to expose these scumbags that are Ryan LaPlante and uh, Chance Cornuth and Ryan Lang. Here he goes. Number one. This is the plan of attack. 
Create Twitter account MTT community. Number two, announce first tweet. We are a unified MTT community of, of, of X amount of players. Feel free to join our list with this link. Our mission is to stay strong as a community to ensure that all sites treat us fairly. If any sites would like to open a dialogue, please feel to slide into our DMs. We, fo- we followed you all. Number three, have discussions with all sites that reach out after discussions. Tweet, we have spoken to X, future is positive kind of thing. Number four, create a group of 17 countries with an ambassador for the MTT community from each. Number five, release an interview with media contacting all 17 countries. Number six, allow uh, the first week to gain more and more attention everywhere. Number seven, week two, do giveaways, coachings, tickets, seats, satellite trips every day through retweets, promos, etc. to sites that agree to support us. Encourage them to finance it. Number eight, end of week two, if nothing constructed from poker stars, we will consider our option, including further boycotts, to establish connection with other sites where we can play the volume instead, rake-free if possible, and have a new plan of action going into week three, depending on current circumstances. Okay, so you see what this is. This is a group of frequent online tournament players who decided that they're very unhappy with the state of online tournament poker. They feel that they're not listening to the community and their suggestions. They probably feel the structure sucks. They they probably feel that... uh, it's time for the frequent players and the influential players who have a voice that people listen to in social media to all get together, almost like a union of poker players, and put pressure on the sites saying that uh, we are a unified community of uh, MTT players and encourage as many people as they could to join, not just these few guys, but anyone who wants to join it can join. And try to get 17 countries worth of people, I don't know which 17 countries, but... 17 countries worth of people to join each with their, their own representative. And then go to all the sites and say, we're a force to be reckoned with now. And if you just say, F you, we'll do what we want. We don't care what the customer thinks. Then we're going to put out tweets that people should boycott you. And also, uh, we're, we're going to encourage the sites that are supportive to do giveaways and things like that. Uh, and then we'll do cross promos here with, uh, like, if you retweet our tweets about this MTT community thing, that uh, you'll have a chance to win satellites and tickets and, and coaching and stuff like that. Some of which will be financed by these sites that that, that are cooperative with them, and uh, and this way, sites that cooperate with them will get free promotion, and will get the stamp of approval. And sites that don't cooperate, they're going to encourage a boycott. Okay, yeah, that, that's that's the player's right to do. It may not work, and it never ended up taking place. I think this is a few years ago. But this was something that a number of people, including Ryan LaPlante, Chance Cornuth, Ryan Lang, they, they tried to put this together. Almost like a player's union of online tournament players that would try to grow and give itself influence and power that would promote sites that were cooperative and encourage boycotts of sites that were not. And that's fine. That's fine. This happens all the time in business where it, where certain businesses get boycotted or encouraged by certain groups. Certain groups say, I want you to change such and such. If you don't, we're going to boycott you. And if you do, we're, we're gonna, we'll put out a message that's positive about you. Nothing illegal about that. Nothing wrong with that. Customers have a right to get together and put out a unified message of, we're happy with this business, patronize it, or we're unhappy with this business, boycott it. Nothing wrong with that. That's just part of business. 
and if customers want to get together this way and they can organize together, great. And if they can't, then that's fine too. And if their boycott is ineffective, that's fine too. It's just what people want to do, how people react. So I have no problem with any of this. Bill Reney didn't see it that way. Bill Reney saw this as not only unethical, Bill Reney actually thought this was extortion. Hmm. Extortion. Well, how does he think this is extortion? He wrote, come on, boys, pretend you weren't trying to commit extortion. And again, he did at potential MM, uh, MN, who is uh, Ryan LaPlante, at Ryan Lang 9, at Chance's Cards, who is Chance Cornuth. So he's specifically referring to these three that they were trying to commit extortion. You might ask, how is this extortion? They're basically saying, let's get together a large group of poker players from 17 different countries and say, make X and Y changes or we're going to boycott you. That's not extortion. That's just the customer making demands, which the company can then decide, yes, we will make the changes or no, F you, boycott all you want. We're going to do what we want. Either way, it's fine, but it's, that's not what extortion is by any stretch of the imagination. So how is there extortion? Well, Bill Reaney then continued to hassle them because he wasn't getting much of a response from them. He said, are you guys going to deny these chat logs? So Ryan Lang says back, what is there to deny? A bunch of poker players getting together to try to get online sites to do a better job? He's right. I mean, that's basically what they were doing. Bill Reaney said back, Ryan, some players wanted a flat structure. You told them to get better at poker because pros benefited from a top-heavy structure. Read the MTCC manifesto, which is why I just posted, uh, or just read you, which was about getting poker rooms to pay your coaching sites to back off, giving you money to promote your sites. So Ryan LaPlante wrote back, This is 100% false. My site didn't exist then. I suggest you be very careful about making false accusations against someone. Hmm. You know what Ryan LaPlante is implying there, that if you continue to make false accusations against me, I am going to sue you. He didn't say that directly, but he's, when he says, I suggest you be very careful about making false accusations, he wasn't talking about how he's going to come over and, and, and beat Bill Reaney up. He was talking about, you better be careful, because if you do this again, I'm going to sue you. That's what he's trying to imply. So Ryan LaPlante saying, what do you mean I'm trying to extort sites into promoting my, uh, to pay my coaching sites to back off? I didn't have a coaching site then. Back when this thing was written, I didn't, I hadn't started my coaching site yet. Bill Reaney didn't respond to that, by the way. But let's go back to what Bill Reaney's referring to. He didn't just pick that out of the air. Let's go back to what he's referring to. In that, what he calls the manifesto, number seven, week two, do giveaways, coaching, tickets, seats, satellites, trips every day through retweets, promos, etc. to sites that agree to support us, encourage them to finance it. Number eight, end of week two, if nothing constructed from poker stars, we'll consider our option, including further boycotts, establish connection with other sites where we can play the volume instead, rake free if possible, and have a new plan of action going to week three. Okay, So, so Bill's trying to say that if sites did not agree to play ball with this MTT community they were trying to put together, that uh, they were going to boycott them, and that part of playing ball with them is to is basically to, to pay them for coaching for other people. 
That's not really what was happening. He was saying do giveaways. What he was trying to do there is what they were trying to do was in order to get attention to their new group or union or whatever you want to call it they were creating, they wanted to do giveaways and they were hoping that sites that were willing to cooperate with them that they could encourage those sites to actually sponsor these giveaways. And they weren't that specific there. When they said do giveaways, coaching, tickets, seats, satellites, blah, 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 what they could have meant is that the stuff on the poker site, the site will give away, and the coaching, we're going to give away. Because the site obviously is not going to do the coaching. It would be, it would be the coaching sites. So I don't even see the evidence there that they would be telling the sites to pay for coaching that's being given away. But even if they were, again, there would be a business transaction. Now, if they were to say, either you buy coaching to give away as part of our promos, or we're going to boycott you and ruin your business, that would be, I wouldn't call it extortion, but uh, I could understand that accusation. So uh, that would be, I mean, it would be... Sort of close to extortion. I'll go that far. If that's what was said. If, if the site said, hey, guys, we'll do everything you're asking, except we're just not going to buy your coaching. If you want to give away free coaching, do it yourself. And if uh, if these guys said, no, no, you're either going to buy our coaching and, and allow us to give it away to people when we're doing promos, or otherwise we're going to ruin your business. That would be pretty bad. That would make them American scum. But that's not what they were doing here. They were just they were throwing out possible ideas. And this, this was a memo there circulating amongst themselves. I don't know how Bill Rini got it. But they were circulating this amongst a number of poker players who played a lot online. I didn't get it. This was for online tournament players. And they they were trying to get everybody excited for this. And they were kind of throwing around ideas of this is one way that we could get a lot of attention is by doing these promos that were related to retweeting us or whatever. And maybe we can even get the sites to pay for it. Now, some of this was ambitious. I think a lot of these sites would have said no. I think it, some of the sites might say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll let you guys have a voice from now on. We'll, we'll listen to you guys, and, and we'll make some changes. I think a lot of what they were hoping to accomplish this was, I think some of this was overreaching and was not going to work. But there's nothing unethical about it. I think just some of this was not that likely to be successful. But I, I don't see any extortion here. And there definitely was no American scum involved. This was this really was, as Ryan Lang said, just an attempt to make the tournament better on these poker sites and just to give the players more of a say in general. To have a, a big group of players that could stand up against these sites when things happen that are unethical on the sites instead of having to count on forums or social media to, to get this done. That you could have a a big group of, of multi-tournament player, multi-table tournament players that would go to bat for you if, uh, if one of these sites screwed you, especially having to do with these tournaments. Now, this never came to pass. This was something they attempted, and just I guess there wasn't enough enthusiasm, and it just never went anywhere. This, I think this is three years ago or something. So that's, that's where that went. That it just it died before it started. But Bill Rini sat on this for years and was furious. He really thought, and I assume that, I don't know where he got this plan of attack. I, that, that wouldn't have been sent to Bill, but Bill must have gotten this from someone that they sent it to. But uh, I think Bill was probably approached at some point 
or either he was approached or someone warned him, hey, they're about to approach you with this, with these demands. Whatever it was, Bill was uh, absolutely furious about this. So here, six months after he retired, he's not even working for WSOP.com anymore. He's not working for the World Series at all. He was sitting here stewing. I think he lives in Thailand now. He was sitting here stewing and so mad about this and just so outraged that such a thing was going to occur that he could not stay silent any longer. This wasn't just a thing that kind of irritated him or when he thought back to these specific players, he didn't like them. It's not like he was in a personal conversation with someone and they're like, oh, Ryan LaPlante seems like a good guy. No, 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 he's scum. And It's not like he just had a personal feeling that Ryan LaPlante was scum. It was that he was so bitter about this and so mad that he... He broke his silence on Twitter six months after retiring to call them out. Well, I think you can imagine how this went. I think you can imagine how this call-out went over, that people did not agree that these players were scum, and that people thought Bill Reini was acting like a crazy person. (laughs) That this was not only incorrect the way Bill Reini was framing it, but it was weird. And it was unnecessarily aggressive, and it was making some pretty serious accusations against members of the community who've always had a good reputation. It's not like he's accusing Chino Reem of this. This It's not like he's accusing uh, Russ Hamilton of this. Yeah, he's, he's accusing people who are well-regarded for being honest, good guys in poker of being extortionists. And that, that's crazy. He also posted like 10 tweets with little bits of a chat conversation. I think that's what he was first trying to post that was too blurry. But he posted these little like copy and paste of different portions of the chat conversation, which I read it and I'm like, why is he posting this? It was like really, really mundane, uninteresting stuff that was kind of all along the same lines. And he made like 10 separate tweets of this. And it was so... Lame, I didn't even bother to repost it on Poker Fraud Alert when I added to the Bill Reaney thread about this. I posted the tweets that I was reading you, but I didn't I didn't even post those other ones with the little pieces of the chats that he was reposting because they, they, they were so inconsequential and stupid and boring to read that it really didn't add anything to the whole discussion. But you, you can go look. It's still on his Twitter, at Bill Reaney. But wow, he must have been holding some real major resentment about this. And the funny thing is, if he had this much passion about WSOP.com when he was in charge of it, it may have been a better site. This was the guy who hid from any little controversy, any little problem, any little issue. He didn't want to deal with it. If he if he came into these problems at the site with this type of vigor, then we'd have a different situation over there. <laughs> That's the funny thing. He finally develops a passion for something related to WSOP.com after he's gone. But this wasn't even directly related to them. This was like, I think he was just picturing they were going to come at him at some point with these demands and was so furious. And like I think he felt he couldn't speak out when he was there because it could be a problem for his job. So now that he's gone, now six months later, he can bring this all out. It's, it's amazing how little self-awareness he had that, number one, nobody was going to think this was a problem. And number two, that people were going to immediately bring up that he's the last one who should be bringing this type of thing to the forefront because he did a terrible job as manager. He blocked people. He wouldn't answer people. He ignored people. He ignored problems. 
He was a horrible manager. So here the horrible manager WSB.com pops up and goes, let me call out some scummy American tournament players. People are like, who the fuck are you? Who are you to do this? We dealt with you for six years and you were terrible. You were terrible for poker. You were terrible for the community. You did a terrible job. You, you wreaked a lot of havoc for those who played on WSOP.com and ran into problems. And, and now you're coming out and pretending like you care? So even if he had a point, he, he, he should keep his mouth closed. But he really thought he was going to bring this out and people are going to go, oh my God, what a scandal. Oh my God, Ryan LaPlante is an extortionist. We never knew it. <laughs> I wonder what he was thinking. I, I think he really thought he was dropping a bombshell. And I still don't think he understands. I don't think he even did that. It's like, oh, wow, I made a mistake. Because I think he would have deleted the tweets. I think he still believes he humiliated these people, even though, like, nobody agreed with him. And, like, literally nobody agreed with him. Like, not a single person came back and said, wow, Bill, you're right. These people are are screwed up. Wow, Bill, I just learned something new about Ryan LaPlante and Chance Cornuth and Ryan Ling. No one. People read this and are like, what? What are you saying? And, like, and he hasn't tweeted since then, since, since March 2nd. Poker Fraud Alert got uh, a mention during this whole thing. Joey Ingram is like, what is going on here? I don't understand. Is this the guy in charge of WSOP.com? Joey Ingram didn't even know. Joey Ingram didn't even know that he wasn't even in charge anymore. Which I I don't blame him because they didn't make this very public. But uh, Ryan LaPlante's like, no, he's the former head of WSOP.com. And here's basically the story. And he linked Poker Fraud Alert, the thread that I have about Bill Reaney. I always like when something goes down and then someone links Poker Fraud Alert as the explanation. That makes me feel good that we either were the only site to cover something or that we have the best coverage of it. And that, that's really the truth about a lot of subjects that come up in poker. That the best and most accurate and most detailed coverage is here. Not always, but a lot of times it is. And sometimes, like, things from many years ago, like, speaking of Joey Ingram, he was talking about this guy who used to play online, a European guy who played online as the terrorist. His name was uh, Mohammed Kowasari, and it turned out he was putting Trojans on people's computer to see their whole cards, and that's how he was beating everybody. He played as the terrorist in Fast Freddy. And Joey Ingram put up an old video that the terrorist had put out in 2006 and saying, wow, this is a pretty funny video. And I'm like, what's the story with this guy? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I did a write-up on this back in 2012. And I, I put up the eight-year-old write-up I did. And it's like, oh, cool. Okay. Like a, that was one of the only like concise write-ups about the whole thing. There was a two-plus-two thread about it, but it was a big, long mess. So, uh, I love when I could just, like, any subject, just find something I wrote in the past or someone else wrote in the past and just go, bang, here, poker fraud alert, here's the story. But, yeah, talk about much ado about nothing. Talk about accusations where they don't belong. Talk about when you should keep your mouth shut. Talk about a lack of self-awareness, which I think Bill Reaney has always had. I think that was some of the problem. I don't think he even understands he did a poor job at WCP.com. I think he believes he was treated unfairly. In fact, this is something he tweeted also on March 2nd. Because someone was accusing him of believing that WSOP.com was beyond critique. And this is what he wrote in response. I never ever said that WSOP.com was beyond critique. 
I used to have lunch every month or so with someone that screamed at me for 10 minutes straight when I first met him. He quickly learned that I have very passionate beliefs about certain aspects of poker. And that's a very telling tweet, because what he's saying here is, I'm not saying my the WSOP.com couldn't be criticized. I just felt very passionate about certain aspects of it that some people didn't agree with. And so uh, eventually I became friends with someone who was very, very critical of me and screamed in my face about it. But we, we'd go have lunch, and, and he learned that I'm not a bad guy and, uh, and that I just, I'm just very passionate about certain beliefs I have. That's not what the problem was. Bill Reen was not like a passionate guy who was running a site in a way that I don't agree with. That's not what was happening at all. This was a guy who was the opposite of passionate. This is a guy who was hiding from everything. I'm not kidding when I say that I had a hard time figuring out what Bill Reeney did with his workday. How was he logging 40 hours a week working for WSOP.com when it appeared he did very little work? How come when he was gone, you almost didn't notice the difference when it seemed like nobody had taken over his position? And these are good questions. So he was not passionate. That was part of the problem. He wasn't very passionate from everything everyone could see. He hid from the requirements of the job. He hid from what he needed to do. That's not someone who's passionate. That's like the DMV worker who finds every reason not to help you. That's what he kind of... He was much more like that than the, the passionate guy that you just don't agree with his methods of uh, running the site. Like, let me give you an example of someone who ran a business that was passionate but I didn't agree with. There was a controversy a number of years ago in a small restaurant in Portland, Maine where you had this very brash, kind of white, trashy, older, middle-aged woman who would throw people out of her restaurant if she didn't like them. And there's a lot of controversy about her. Some people thought that, great, this is an owner who really takes charge of everything and really cares about her restaurant and doesn't allow unruly customers. And other people thought this is someone who just thinks she's queen of her castle and mistreats her customers. And I, I actually was more in the second camp, by the way. But, but there was a story where I actually didn't like either party of the story where there was a, a couple that brought a baby in that just kept crying, 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 crying and disturbing everybody and they made no effort to get the baby out. And the owner went to, into the baby's face and screamed, shut up! Or shut the F up! I think she screamed at the baby's face like a two-year-old. Obviously you can't do that as a restaurant owner. That's a horrible thing to do. It's a horrible thing to ever do to a two-year-old kid. Uh, so, so I felt that the, the 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 parents were very inconsiderate to all the other customers and to the staff to just let a, a baby scream, 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 and then make no attempt to stop it or take the baby out somewhere. And I and obviously the owner was wrong in the way she handled it. But I, I will say that owner of that restaurant in Portland, Maine, was very passionate. And people that had criticized her in the past or described her in the past, everyone agreed that she was passionate in the way she ran her restaurant. And that she was very hands-on. And that she tackled issues there. Not always correctly, but she was very, very into the whole thing. She wasn't a lazy owner. But she also didn't treat people well or with respect. And had to have high of an opinion of herself and what she had a right to do in there. Even if she had a legal right. I'm talking about a moral right. Uh, So that was a passionate person running a business that I thought was a piece of crap that I wouldn't want to patronize, but I'll at least agree she was passionate. But Bill Reaney was not passionate. That's nobody. I mean, forget what I'm thinking. You won't find a single person 
in poker that played on WSP.com regularly that will say that Bill Reaney was passionate. Not one. So that's, it's, but he's so delusional he thinks he was. He thinks that the criticism he was getting was because he was too passionate and just believed certain things others didn't agree with. And his passion got people angry. No. Absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. This could even be said about me. You could say I'm very passionate about uh, scams and poker. I'm very passionate about my opinions on, on certain people and companies in poker. And there's people who dislike me in poker. And But I don't think they if, – if you went up to these people who dislike me and say uh, – would, would you say Todd would tell us is pretty passionate about scammers in poker? I think they'd say, yeah, he is, even the ones that don't like me. I think they'd admit that I'm passionate about this. But Bill Reaney, nobody's going to say he's passionate, at least not about WCB.com. But that's how he sees himself. Really, really, really zero self-awareness, this guy. So I wanted to put that out there. You can still see it all on this Twitter. B-I-L-L-R-I-N-I. Okay, we're going to do a possible update, but let's check in on Trader Ruski. Are you still alive right now? I am. Are you tired? But I, I don't know how. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting Uh-oh. tired. So. Okay. Maybe one more segment left. Okay, we'll do the Mike Postle segment. Maybe after you go to sleep, then I will take a break before continuing with the rest of the show. Let, let's talk about Mike Postle. And an update that I have. I told you guys I'm always going to give you my possible updates as they occur. It's a slow-moving thing, but I will give you an update. And uh, we have two updates on the Mike Possible thing. Neither is a major update to where – these are interesting things, but not uh, not worth like saying that – it wouldn't be worth a top story. But nevertheless, it's a Mike Possible update. So here's what's going on. In the Sacramento Bee, there was an article about the latest occurrences in the civil case. If you remember, there was a civil case against Mike Possel, Justin Caratus, who was the uh, director of uh, the tournament director, and I think also just the director of poker there. And uh, he was the one in charge of those streamed games that Mike Possel cheated on. So Mike Possel, Justin Caratus, and Stones itself. Now, obviously, the most collectible of the three, by a very wide margin, is Stone's Gambling Hall, because they are a thriving business. I assume they do fairly well, from everything I've heard, and they are very collectible. They also can't hide from collection. They're, they're right there. They can't just get up and run away. Whereas uh, Justin Caratus, who knows what kind of money he has, uh, Mike Postle, who knows what kind of money he has, you could win huge judgments against them and never collect a penny especially because there's multiple plaintiffs in this. So if they, if all they get is judgments against those two individuals, they may not see very much at all, especially when you take out the legal fees, which uh, I, I don't know how they have that structure, but uh, this is presumably being taken on contingency by Mac Verstandig, who's a, an attorney that frequently works these type of uh, poker-related cases. In fact, we're going to talk about two different cases on this show tonight that – have to do with Mac Verstandig. He's very, very prolific when it comes to any lawsuit having to do with poker players. He's, he's carved out that niche for himself. And uh, it's funny, I talked about him for a long time. I never had any interaction with him until I did that little cooperative uh, little arbitration, not a serious arbitration, but kind of a, a joke arbitration regarding something that Kessler was arguing. And uh, yeah, he was a nice guy. I, I liked him. So anyway, uh, this is... this. Update is about that civil case, and specifically the civil case against Stones. 
So Stone's defense, and this doesn't surprise me, this I think is the correct defense. Correct meaning correct from a legal strategy standpoint, not correct from that it's morally correct or that it's true. But uh, if I were an attorney attempting to represent Stone's, this would also be the defense I would use. So this... You may get mad at this, but this is the attorney's job to come up with a way to get stones out of this. And they've come up with the best one. Trader Ruski, what would you guess would be the best defense for stones who's being sued as far as this? As far, And I'll give you a hint. It has to do with uh, like the motivation of the people suing them. What would we say would be the best defense if you're stones? Oh, I mean, I guess they're just going to stay with he was lucky. Yeah, he's well, running good or he's, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're along, you're all along the right lines here. The defense they're using is that though the people who are suing them are suing them because they are... Oh, they're just sore losers. They're sore losers, you're right. They are sore losers who just can't accept the fact that they lost to Mike Possel either because Mike Possel was better than them or luckier than them or both. That So instead of just saying, hey, I lost, maybe I got unlucky, maybe Possel was better than me, we're going to see, we're going to say Possel cheated and then sue the casino that has deep pockets to get our money back. So the motion for dismissal, which was filed to dismiss the civil lawsuit from uh, as far as Stones being a defendant, they want uh, they want their the lawsuit against them to be dismissed. This is not about the possible portion of the lawsuit or the courageous portion, but this is to dismiss them as a defendant. It says in the motion, this lawsuit reflects the oldest complaint of gamblers that their lack of success means they were cheated. So it's basically saying these are. Conspiratards. They they they're trying to come up with a conspiracy as to why they lost instead of just accepting that they lost. The motion went on to say Stones has no stake in who won money or lost money in the poker games. All Stones did was provide a venue for the poker game. Plaintiffs decide whether they wanted to play for how long, how much to bet, and in which hands to participate. So they're saying two things here. They're saying number one, these are just sore losers, and number two, that. How could you be suing us because we didn't benefit from this? Even if you want to say that uh, Stones was uh, somehow complicit in the cheating, it wouldn't make any sense because we just collect the rake. It doesn't matter to us who wins. That's, that's the way poker works. So why are we even being sued here? We, we, we were never to derive any benefit from this, which, which by the way, isn't true. I'll get to that. But they, they're trying to say we wouldn't have benefited from it had we done it. We didn't do it. This is just sore losers who are mad that another poker player beat them. And that's what they're going with. And uh, this may actually work. Because uh, the understanding of poker from people outside of poker is fairly low. And those of you who play poker, which I think is most of you, Few people listen to the show who don't play poker, but those of you who play poker, even who play recreationally, I'm sure have run into many people who very much misunderstand poker when you talk to them. You'll talk about playing poker, someone will say, "Oh, do you have a really good poker face? Are, are you winning because you no one can read you? 
are you really good at reading people? And you go, well, that's not usually how I win or lose. It's usually about uh, I, I see the way people are. I see how much people are betting. I, I see I see uh, people's playing styles. I, I think about the hand I have. I think the hand they likely have. I think about the way to get the most money out of them, or I think about the right time to fold. It's not so much about reading people or looking at their face, and the, people look like stare at you blankly when you say that. They they picture you're at the table and you're looking at someone and reading their soul that they that they're bluffing and don't really have a hand and make a super light call and be that's what they picture when you're winning at poker. Which is sometimes part of the game, but that's not the main part of the game. So there's like a lot of poor understanding of poker from the general public. And when it comes to something like this, the understanding is even less. Because there's also the long-perpetuated myth that there are just these gods in poker who just always do the right thing. Who just have this mythical ability to just always know what everybody has. You, you we even had scenes like this in, in Rounders, which was otherwise a good movie. But we even had scenes where Michael McDermott was calling out people's exact hands where there's no way he could have done so. So there's a lot of people in the general public who believe that the best poker players just have this amazing otherworldly knowledge that their opponents, uh, of what opponents' hands, what they're holding. So when people have this belief, then it's much easier for them to think that a Mike Puzzle type can do what he did without cheating. And it also starts to become more believable that just average schlub poker players that they haven't heard of before, even if these are very good players, some of them, but just aren't household names, you just see a list of names you don't recognize if you're a poker fan, and that they're suing Mike Possell, and that Mike Possell beat them out of $250,000 over time, and you think, well, okay, Mike Possell was just the best player there. Maybe he was the luckiest player. But yeah, these people just lost, and, and they're saying he cheated. They don't have proof of this. They're just This is just a theory of theirs. This is just a conspiracy theory of theirs. And not only do I think this would be tough to convince a jury of, but uh, I could even see a judge possibly dismissing this before it even gets going, at least as far as Stones is concerned. Because, uh, And I, I wish we had Eric Benzamokin on for this. It would be too late anyway. But uh, if he were still awake, I would love to have had him on for this. Because I, I would love to know the... Yeah, I have questions for him, too. Yeah. Because, why wouldn't... Because couldn't the... Uh casino say these were just two rogue players we didn't have anything to do with it yes because isn't because like with all the hands that they have can they create like graphs like like you had in 60 minutes well they, they, they could they could create spreadsheets they could create a lot to show his win rate and and yes it could be similar to what you saw in 60 minutes about the super users and i'm sure something like that will eventually be presented in court if this actually goes to trial which is a decent chance it will but uh I think that uh, the problem here is that, uh, number one, there's no concrete evidence. There's no smoking gun that Apostle cheated. What we have is a very heavy amount of circumstantial evidence that is only really understood if you're a knowledgeable poker player. And if you're not, it's, it's kind of hard to understand unless you just take someone's word for it. So, like, someone who doesn't play poker much, even someone who's intelligent that doesn't play poker much... 
is going to have a hard time determining whether Possible was cheating by watching these videos. You could say, hey, watch these videos. You'll see why Possible was cheating. And they'll go, well, I see him winning a lot, and he seems to be making right moves, but I don't really see how he's cheating. Like, it'd be hard for someone who doesn't understand poker that well to see how he's cheating. You'd either have to take the word of someone who plays poker a lot and tends to have a pretty logical point of view, telling you, yes, I'm an expert, he was cheating, or play poker yourself and understand why some of these moves are so absurd. So this leaves a lot of the general public out, including judges, including members of the jury, from understanding this, even if there is expert testimony from people who do understand it. And the problem is there's no smoking gun. It's not like someone has Possel on tape talking about how he cheated, or, or, or someone found physical evidence of the cheating. In fact, the method is not even known. The, and that's, by the way, the Possel supporters, which I'm going to get to shortly, the, one, the few Possel supporters on social media, they pointed this. They say, you don't even know how Possel was cheating. You have different theories, but, but you don't even know how he did it if he allegedly did it. So how can you say with such certainty that he was cheating if you can't even see, say how he was doing it? And to me, that is not convincing. To me, it doesn't matter. To me, the way he played and a lot of other circumstantial evidence on top of it, like that he'd rack up right when he'd leave, the fact that he didn't go take these amazing skills to any other game besides these uh, mostly relatively low-limit games at, uh, at Stone's, the fact that uh, it seemed that certain times he just didn't seem to play with that same skill, especially when Justin wasn't there. There, there was a lot that was gone over in all these videos, and Chicago Joey did a great job of it when he did all these videos, which you can go back and still watch on, on Joey's channel, Joey Ingram 1, and that somebody who plays poker could watch these and come away with, yeah, I'm sure he's cheated. And, that, and that's why this, this is such... There's such unanimous agreement on this in the poker community, aside from a few idiots. There's such unanimous agreement, even people who normally don't like each other or don't agree, or people from different political persuasions, everybody agrees Mike Possible cheated. Because it's obvious when you, when you watch it. But to somebody who's not part of poker, it's not as obvious. And it's only because they don't have the experience playing. And something that would work much better in court is if you had some kind of smoking gun of the actual cheating being done and, and, and that he was actually caught doing it in some way. Here you have to prove cheating more from a statistical standpoint and a, and a heavy circumstantial evidence standpoint that's best understood by poker players, and it gets very hard. And uh, so, so Stone's, like, they're saying, one, we don't benefit from this. Two... Gamblers all the time try to come up with reasons why they think they were cheated when they lose. This has been going on ever since gambling's existed. And uh, three, there's there's no evidence this happened. It uh, and Stones also said in a statement, "We found no evidence that indicates there was cheating in the games in question." Stones is confident that it will prevail in this unwanted lawsuit or unwarranted lawsuit. So they're not even saying, "Yeah, he may have cheated, but this isn't on us." We can only do so much. They're saying, no, we investigated. There's no cheating. You remember that supposed independent investigation they were doing with an attorney that turned out had represented them before? This independent investigator was an attorney who they've used before and then just became their own attorney in this situation? So he, the, the guy who was doing the independent investigation, which has since been abandoned, they don't even say why, it's just done. He's now their attorney in this case. But they're actually saying we investigated. There was no cheating. In draft, if he was doing the thing where he tapped into the uh, 
the feed from the board, that wouldn't leave any type of digital footprint, would it? Like you couldn't see if some another. It could, but they could. They could have scrubbed it. Up. Yeah, no, it could be. They're, they're, I don't know if that software, if it uh, logs connections to it, but it could be erased. It could have been deleted after the fact. It could have been deleted when when it was suspected that uh, this was happening. Uh, it could even still be there, and they just they're the only ones with access to it. So uh, they could have removed it at right. that point. So uh, the but problem this, was this attorney investigator guy didn't say. He- he checked that or anything, right? No, he never. In fact, that was the weird thing. This this investigation, which this independent investigation that they claim they started, which was by an attorney who had represented them in the past and now represented them in the present. They they said they hired such and such forensic firm to to go check this out, and then just nothing ever again was said about the results of that until now, when they're just saying we found no evidence that indicates they were cheating. They never said how how they did the investigation. In fact, they're not even saying that that investigation was ever completed. Just they're claiming they found no evidence of cheating. And I have a feeling that they may have wiped everything that was suspicious before bringing in these forensic specialists. It's just there there was no independence in this investigation at all from the start. So even if they did what they said and really hired the company they said, it, it looks more like a going through the motions to make ourselves look good thing than than anything that's uh it, it would be like let, let's say you were accused of uh, of producing child porn on your iphone and then you went in factory reset your iphone and then gave it to a forensic firm to verify that there's no child porn on your iphone well, yeah, but that's only after you wipe the whole thing, so that doesn't prove anything. It, it, it's pretty similar to this, where you there's there is no credible investigation here. Well, but they'd be able to tell it was wiped though, in the iPhone case. I'm assuming in that too, right? Well, they, you know, they could tell that you could wipe it and then just reload it with uh, with things that were so it doesn't look like it was freshly wiped. You know, if you gave them a, a, a free, uh, if you gave them a brand new iPhone that was totally clear, yeah. But I'm saying like, uh, if you're in control of the evidence. To then bring someone in to investigate, it, it, it's already been corrupted at that point. You, you have to have someone who's – you have to first of all make sure it was never tampered with, which is when you're in control of it, it's hard to prove. And, and, and two, bring them in fast enough and give them all the authority to go through everything. And they never were transparent about this process. Even if asked to be transparent in court, there's only so much that can come out and they can they can just lie through their teeth. Uh, so Verstandig said, I find it regrettable that they have elected to portray my clients as sore or otherwise frustrated losers. But we look forward to responding to their legal contentions through the judicial process, and we'll do so in due course. We have a call coming in. Let's see here. Let's take the call. Let's take the call. And that was a horrible statement by that lawyer, by the way. You mean the, not, that, that was the, uh, you mean the previous one about the... Well, no, the one, the one, the, the response to it, because he could have said, we have data that proves this guy's a scumbag. Oh, okay, so, so you're criticizing Matt for standing here. Well, I, see, this is a general statement. Oh, is that- I, yeah, I, see, I don't think this is a horrible statement. I don't think it says very much, but uh, um, he, he says, like, this is just a response back to the, I guess, just back to the press, not so much, not, not what he's going to say in court. So he's just saying... They're portraying. I, I'm, it's regrettable. They're saying we're, we're we're sore losers, and I guess when it goes to court, we'll prove it that we're not. 
That's basically what he right. Said. And I guess the judge probably—they're probably—he's probably not allowed to say some of the other stuff anyway. Yeah, but I digress. I know we have a caller. Uh, actually, we don't anymore. They disappeared. I don't know. Caller, you can call back if you want to come on. Uh, a little more information came out also in this article about the whole saga with attempting to serve Possel. Now, this is not directly related to the stuff going on with Stones here. It's, this, it's the same civil case, but it's a different defendant. Uh, if you remember, Mike Possel was avoiding service, and uh, here's what came out in this article about that, that the process server on December 16th came to Mike Possel's address at 8.50 p.m., and heard voices, so he just kept knocking, knocking, knocking. So finally, a black male, a black male in his late forties, came to the window, and said, "Who are you?" And the process server said, "I'm looking for Mike Possel." And he said, "Mike moved away three years ago." And so he asked the black guy, "What's your name?" And he says, "Russell." And then the process server walked away, and the black guy yelled, "You better not come to my house again." <laughs> And this is Mike Postle's house. This wasn't uh, this wasn't some poor black guy who now lived in Mike Postle's old house and was getting pissed. He was getting hassled. This is some buddy of Postle's. So that was on December sixteenth. Then uh, there were six more attempts to serve Postle between December nineteenth and January second, all of which failed. And then finally, that's when Mac Verstandig went himself to serve Postle. And I've talked about that before on the show. He went to Mike Postle's house at 9.21 p.m., kept ringing the doorbell and saying, Come on, Mike, come to the door. I'm Mac Verstandig with uh, papers to serve you. Over and over, kept ringing. He saw lights on inside the house and heard noises and wrote, uh, After approximately eight minutes, I retreated across the street to my personal vehicle, in which I remained with all the lights turned off and the engine turned off, so to monitor activity in the house through its windows. So he was hoping that Postle would think that... uh, he had left. I then saw a male meeting the description of the defendant uh, and, and uh, inside the house, standing atop the stairwell. At this juncture, I returned to the door of the house, commenced to knock on the door and ring the doorbell interchangeably once again, so as to announce my presence, and I witnessed movements through a window curtain and noises drawing nearer to the door upon which I was knocking. And then he said that he left the summons and copy of the lawsuit at the front door and later mailed a copy as well. So this was basically just Verstandig serving Postle himself the best he could and was willing to swear under oath that he saw Postle there and Postle saw him and was clearly avoiding service and that Postle knew why he was there and that uh, basically trying to get the judge to just approve that service has been done, which which can be done when when someone's accused of avoiding service. Now, if you just can't reach someone, like if he, if he just went to Postle's house and just nobody was ever there, then it's, it's a lot harder to just you leave something there and say they're served. But given what happened, uh, often in these type of cases, they'll agree that this considered, is considered service. So that finally got resolved, and uh, it was considered that this was a service, but that the plaintiffs and Mike Postle came to an agreement that he will have until March 24th to respond. So it got a little extra time to respond, but it was uh, Postle agreed, yes, I was served. So that, that part's over. The lawyers for Stones, according to the Sacramento Bee, are asking for an April 16th hearing on their dismissal motion. They say the lawsuit is speculative and not supported by California law. They claim the California law does not allow for damages to be awarded over gambling losses. 
Now, I don't agree with that, being the amateur attorney that I am, because this isn't about gambling losses. This is about negligence on the part of the casino. The gambling losses is more aimed at uh, Postle himself, because people lost money directly to him. Which I I still think there's a basis to sue him. Whether they can prove this or not, I don't know. But uh, I I will say that uh, if the casino is negligent in uh, the security they provide for their games or even employees of the casino participate in making a game non-secure, then yes, I I would think that this is not about gambling losses. I would think these are just damages that are sustained by the negligence or worse uh, of the company. But that, that's what they're claiming, that this, the lawsuit's speculative and uh, unsupportive by California law. I think they'll do better with the speculative part, that you, you you can't really prove wrongdoing on our part. You didn't actually catch him cheating. You believe he cheated, but you can't prove it. And we wouldn't have benefited from it, even if you want to say we did, that, that there was cheating. We wouldn't have benefited, so why? Now, they do benefit because their stream was rapidly gaining popularity. More and more A-list poker pros were showing up to play it. And it was really starting to become a secondary alternative to Live at the Bike. This was starting to become a popular stream, and this was increasing Stone's standing in the poker community. This is starting to make people want to go to Stone's and play. This started to make Stone's a bigger deal, and eventually they may have seen down the line, maybe they can start having major tournaments there. Maybe they can start becoming a major venue of poker. Maybe they can become... Another Commerce, Bay 101, Bellagio, whatever. So they did have something to gain by making their stream something that people would want to watch by having this superhero amazing poker player who's killing everybody who people hadn't heard of before that they want to see what he does next. So yes, they would gain from Postle winning the way he was. Also, it's possible that someone like Caratus was getting some of the money, that he was in on it and getting a cut of the profits. Because, of course, Postle had to have help. I think Caratus was one of the people helping. I think there were probably others helping. And they weren't doing it for free. And they weren't just doing it for the room's prestige. I think they were, there were probably people who were getting paid to do this. So even if Stones itself wasn't gaining, if, the, if employees representing them were doing this, then they can be considered responsible as well. But on the surface, you can see... You, yeah. you really... Sorry, Jeff. You really think it was more than the two of them? Yes, I think there was someone I on the... Just think, I think there's someone on the... Te- I think there's somebody on the technical side that was helping, too. There's been some names thrown around. I oh, don't you don't think that Justin guy was technical enough to do it? No, I think there... I think there, was a, I think there was a tech guy. I think there was Justin, and I think there was Possible. I think, I think it was probably three people. Wow. That's just my guess. But uh, Justin would be the least likely one to be innocent of all the employees there because he was in charge and um, th- there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to him. And they also dropped him very quickly. I don't know if he got fired, but he he just wasn't seen around there. Even during our prank call, they admitted that, that Justin hadn't been seen in a long time, which if he was innocent, you'd think that they would uh, have let him stay. Like It, it seemed like everyone kind of knew he was guilty, but they weren't going to admit to it. It was one of these things where either he knew or he should have known. And uh, especially it was brought to his attention. He wasn't blindsided by this on social media. Veronica brought this to him six months before bringing it out on social media, and and, and he laughed at her. 
and told her why she was wrong. And and you could even tell in some of the interviews that he was he was really really trying hard to pump up Postle and make him seem like this major poker prodigy. And it just it was hard to believe that Justin had no idea. And then there were the weird times that Justin was gone that Postle somehow wasn't playing the same way. He seemed to be playing like a normal human being who couldn't read everybody. So there's there's a lot. I'd really be shocked if Justin had nothing to do with this. But I, I again, there's no there's no smoking gun proof against Justin. There's no smoking gun proof even against Possel. There's enough circumstantial evidence that I'm sure Possel did it. But to prove that in a court of law is a lot tougher. Now, I will say in civil cases, it's easier to prove this because civil cases, the burden of proof is much, much less. Civil cases, you have to prove by the preponderance of the evidence, which means uh, 50.01% sure. So if somebody can go either way, but very, 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 very slightly in one direction, that's good enough. Either for... uh, judging for the plaintiff or defendant. In criminal cases, it's considered guilty by beyond a reasonable doubt. So I'm not sure what that would translate to in percentage, but it would be a very high percentage of guilt that jurors are told to uh, that they have to have in their minds before they can uh, vote guilty. So they're told if they, if they think he's 51% likely to be guilty, they have to go with not guilty. Whereas in civil court, 51% means, like 51% on the side of the plaintiff means that you're on the side of the plaintiff. So there, there is a much lesser standard. So this could still succeed. They don't need to absolutely prove it. But there, there's a lot of doubt that can be raised, especially because of people's lack of knowledge of poker play and what constitutes a likely cheating session based upon the play. You have to be experienced enough in poker to understand this. And even if it's explained to you, then the other side's attorneys can put ideas in your head. No, 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 no. They're saying it was cheating just because our our client just played really well and made some really good reads and got really lucky. These are just sore losers. This happens all the time. They can't prove he cheated. They just they just decided because he's winning X amount of dollars, he has to be cheating. They can't tell you how he cheated. They can't, they can't tell you who was helping him. They can't tell you... Anything they, any evidence they have that he actually cheated, just the, oh, we look at his results, we say he's cheating. And that's kind of a hard thing to counter in court. And Stones is saying not only that, but we don't gain anything from it, and and then they're trying to stretch and say it's unsupported by California law because it, you can't get damages for gambling losses. So I don't think that part's going to fly, but the speculative part might be. The speculative might... Uh, they could be dismissed as a defendant, which would be a big blow to the case because they are by far the most collectible. That's where the money is. If you can get a big judgment against them, then you can collect from them and some of these clients can get paid here. Because I, think, I don't know how many people are in this case, but there's a lot of people on this case that they would have to split the money. And then they'd have to split it with Mac Verstandig too. So we'll see. That's... Now, that's the lawsuit part of the update. The, the other part of the update is that uh, there's some action in uh, discussions regarding uh, Postle himself with some idiots actually defending him. And it, it all points back to uh, Rounder Life. Remember Rounder Life, that magazine that Postle was involved with very early on, like back in 2007 or something? 
It's run by some guy in uh, in Florida, some older guy in Florida, who, as I said, listens to this show sometimes, at least about this. So I, I think there's a chance we can get him on here. But Rounder Life has put out all these different articles in defense of Postle, basically saying, look, the win rate of Postle is incorrect, and there's these long analyses about why the win rate is incorrect. And it seemed like their case is pretty much like Postle won half as much as you think he did, so therefore he wasn't cheating. I'm going, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Even half as much is indication he was cheating. The win rate was so crazy that even if you cut it in half, it's still indicating cheating. So, so I, I felt these articles were super unconvincing, and they were all along the same lines, that either Postle is innocent or... You don't know if he's innocent or not, and you're all jumping to conclusions. And there are articles, if you read them and, and don't think too hard, you can start to say, oh, you know, I might, they might have a point here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the second you start to critically think of them, these articles are garbage. But it seems that uh, there's these trolls on Twitter that attack Veronica on occasion. And poor Veronica, I mean, she doesn't deserve any of this. Veronica tried to do what was right and did do what was right. Didn't just try. She did do what was right by not only reporting this to Justin Kouradis when noticing this, but also eventually taking this to social media when she noticed that Stones was not doing anything about it. And she risked her reputation, she risked people getting angry at her, she risked alienating friends who liked Postle. And while a lot of people, myself included, believe she was a hero in this, there's trolls that still attack her. That are like There's like these pro-Postle trolls some of whom are real people. Some seem to be fake accounts that might be possible himself, but there are, there are some who are real people that just viciously attack her. One of them was this awful woman who, who was attacking her. Veronica had a tragedy of, of, of losing a, a child who was very young and uh, of some, some uh, health condition and, and was, uh, wrote some really awful things about that. I mean, just some really, really brutal attacks. For what? Because she brought out the fact that Mike Possible was cheating? But but to this day, Veronica is still receiving attacks from trolls. And the, when I say trolls, these are not trolls really doing it to just start up because they like seeing controversy. These are like pro-possible trolls that are trolling Veronica to cast doubt and make her look like that she falsely accused him and is a bad person. And I think that's just really disgusting. But th- there was some of that going on. And uh, and then she, it was funny, one of the trolls, she, she looked and found that uh, one of the things they were following was Rounder Life. Or so, there was something having to do with Rounder Life that was associated with that account. She said, oh, what a surprise that, uh, uh, that, that one of the four things they follow is Rounder Life. So they, it always seems to point back to Rounder Life. But uh, what was most interesting to me this week was a poker room manager of the Boer Vage, which is an MGM property in Biloxi, in Mississippi, he tweeted out that he read in Rounder Life that he thinks Postle is innocent. He said after reading the Rounder Life articles that he's convinced that uh, Postle is either innocent or people jumped to the wrong conclusions. And that got people really, really mad because this wasn't coming from some schlub. This was coming from the poker room manager of the Boer Vage in Biloxi. And the Beau Rivage is a substantial enough property to where that really got people angry that of all things the poker room manager. If you want to look at this guy's Twitter, it's at Henry Garrison eighteen. That's 
Henry, exactly as you'd expect. Garrison, G-A-R-R-I-S-O-N, the number 18 on Twitter. And you'll see he's deleted the main tweet he wrote about this where people just really got all over him and said they're going to boycott the Beau Rivage because of this. And there's a lot of attacks he got for this. But uh, there is still something he wrote back that's still up there in response to the, the tweet he deleted where he got further responses. Where he, you can see he wrote, very possible he is guilty. Never said he was innocent. Just said that I was not convinced because the numbers reported were so off. Let's wait and see. Now, this one sounds a little more reasonable. So I feel, for reasons I told you, even if it's like, even if the numbers are off by a factor of two, that's still indicative that he cheated. But uh, the, the, the one he wrote before that was that uh, he didn't believe that Possible was guilty. I wish I could read the whole thing. I should have saved it, but he deleted it. But he didn't believe Possible was guilty because uh, and he, re- he read the report around her life. And uh, someone responded to him named Jay Martin. I don't know who that person is, but Jay Martin wrote, Henry, I love the bow and you do a great job at the poker room, but he's guilty. Why is he always looking in his lap before the big decisions? Hashtag come on, man. And that's when Garrison wrote back, very possible he's guilty. And he, he tried to kind of dial it back. Like, okay, maybe he's guilty, but look, they, they were wrong about their numbers by a factor of two. So uh, maybe he's actually innocent. Let's see what comes out. Well, we have seen. Like, like Chicago Joey analyzed this for, for so many hours. How, how could he be innocent at this point? We saw so many examples of where the play was just unexplainable if he wasn't cheating. And the win rate, unexplainable if he wasn't cheating. The fact that he doesn't play anywhere else. Like, if he's that good, he should crush huge games. He shouldn't be, shouldn't be playing 1-2 or 2-5. He should be crushing huge, huge games if he's making reads like this. But he doesn't. He doesn't play them. He'd rack up at the end of the stream. And his explanations we heard on, on Mattis House podcast didn't make any sense. All he did was rant about how he used to win on UB back in 2008, as if that means anything. I mean, no, nobody was making the case that Possible was a tremendous fish who would, who would be one of the biggest losers in poker at all time if, if he didn't have this. It was just that he wasn't this amazing, all-time best, no-limit cash player with these amazing reads. That's the point people were making, not that he was a, a losing player otherwise. So I, I don't know why Henry Garrison said this. I, I don't know if he is a friend of Possible, if he just was fooled by the Rounder Life articles and didn't realize the response he'd get back. I am surprised that a poker room manager would not be uh, very aware of this. Like, how could he not know? And how could he not know how angry everybody would get for saying such a thing? Even if he thinks this privately, you don't say this as a, the Beau Rivage poker room manager. You don't say, oh, I think maybe Possible's innocent. Especially if the article you read about it, about him being innocent, is on a site of a magazine that he was involved with very early on. It's definitely not a neutral publication. But Henry Garrison in hot water there. I don't know if anybody's called to try to call for uh, Garrison to get fired. And I, I, I don't think that he should get fired for this. I'm not encouraging you to do it. He didn't do anything dishonest. I think the guy just was stupid. I think he just popped off with a stupid opinion that he didn't realize to get everyone really angry. I don't think he was trolling. I don't think he's one of the trolls. I really think this was someone who just said something dumb and now regrets it and actually deleted the tweet. <laughs> so, but yep, 
you don't you don't say that. You don't say that. If if you're a poker room manager, if you want people to keep going to your poker room. People are also saying, look, if, if you believe that Postle is innocent, we don't trust you to keep your own poker room secure if you have that poor a judgment. That's a good point. <laughs> Sometimes people are confused by statistics. So if you see an article that seems to lay out a good case that Postle's win rate was actually half of what was claimed, which I'm not saying I agree with, but even if you give them credit for being correct, if he's thought to be winning at a rate that's, say, like 20 times higher than what's reasonable, or 50 times higher than what's reasonable, cutting that in half is not going to make a difference. And that's what he was missing there. But when an article makes a lot of noise about here's this mistake, here's that mistake, blah, 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 then you don't bother to think, okay, so what does this mean? So let's say the article's correct. Does this still mean he would be cheating? The answer is yes. So, it would be like, I, here's the very simplest way of explaining it. Let's say I claimed that I flipped a, a regular coin 500 times and got heads every time. And you say, that's impossible. And I say, no, I did it. You say, there must have been a problem with the coin. Nope. Totally a fair coin. I flipped it and got heads 500 times in a row. Well, let's say later someone finds that uh, I had put out a claim that I flipped it 250 times in a row, not 500. And let's say I even conceded, oh yeah, it was 250. Somehow I got confused. Yeah, it was 250. Would that make my claim any more believable? No, because 250 times in a row... Flipping a coin and getting heads is, is so impossible that, for all practical purposes, that's just as impossible as 500. It's just not going to happen. It's too impossible either way to happen. Yes, one one is much less likely than the other, but the, the first one is so unlikely, it's not even worth discussing. So it's kind of the same thing with possible here. You've got a win rate in half doesn't matter. Uh, um. Another one. Let's say I claim that uh, 10 different species of alien in my life have beamed me up to their spaceship. And I visited their spaceship. 10 different times this happened. 10 different types of aliens. Would you say it's my story is any more likely if it turns out it's only 5 different types of aliens? No. Either way, you know it didn't happen. Okay, so... Trader Ruski, are you uh, you about to fall asleep? Are you I'm asleep? here, drunk, but I'm fading. Okay, that's fine. I'm going to have to listen to the rest. It's it's, it's late. I understand, and I uh, hope you have a, a good weekend. And it's it's gonna it's actually going to rain in L.A. for the first time in quite some time this upcoming week. The 2020 in L.A. has had very very little rain, unlike last year. Yeah, it's just started drizzling up here, so it's heading down. Yeah, it's, it's, that's right. You're not in L.A. anymore. It's uh, San Luis Obispo, right? So. Yep, Royal Grande. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's... Winter finally decided to come in March, and there's going to be some rain in Southern California. And I guess it's it's coming to you first, and then it'll come to me. But, uh, yeah, you can go to sleep and catch the show later in the archives, and... 
always glad to have you here, especially on short notice. So thank you for being here again, and uh, I will talk to you later. Okay, Jeff. Have a good night. You too. So Trader Risky has dropped off. Let me read you some texts, and then I'm going to take a break. And then we will continue the rest of our topics. If you want to call in after the break, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. From the 505, if Corona is confirmed in any Vegas casino, the lack of traffic would be devastating and probably last for months. I agree. From the 773, a listener from Chicago, the flight from Chicago just went down to $77, or just went down $77 to $119 round trip, Monday to Monday flight. I think maybe he means uh, a week apart, but uh, he's claiming you could leave Monday, come back Monday for $119 total round trip from Chicago to Vegas. That's a pretty good deal. He's saying it was was $77 more than that, near $200 prior to this decrease, but people aren't wanting to fly to Vegas, so it's getting cheap. And uh, from the 507, not related to anything we've talked about, Jeff Boski banned from YouTube, apparently. YouTube doesn't like poker content now. I feel so terrible for poor Jeff Boski. Such a nice, sincere guy. He's always open to criticism. Doesn't block you for calling out any hypocrisy he might have. Doesn't block you for saying something that's critical of his... Vlog, no, 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 no. Great guy, Jeff Boski. I feel terrible for him that he got his channel shut down. <laughs> okay, not that terrible. Now, I don't support shutting down his channel. I think Jeff Boski should be able to have a channel if he wants one, even if he's a douche, which he is. I, If it was up to me, I wouldn't delete his channel. Even if someone gave me the power to delete his channel, I would not do so. I think he should be able to have a channel. But... When an asshole loses his channel, I can't say I feel bad for him. I think YouTube shouldn't have deleted it, but I can't feel bad for him. If you remember what happened, he did a a YouTube video about how he got double paid at the World Series and they wanted the money back and they wouldn't let him play a circuit event until he paid back the money he was overpaid. And his story had holes in it the way the whole thing went down. like It became clear to me he did this intentionally. So I I was going by his own story and his own numbers and his own screenshots he showed. I wasn't just guessing at things. So I, I put that as a, a comment on his YouTube, and he deleted my comment. And then he blocked me on Twitter. And this was based on his own – it's not like I invaded his privacy and said, hey, Jeff Posky, I, I heard that you had done this. I heard that you got double paid, and I think you were trying to rip them off, and I'm like exposing something he didn't make public. He made it. A video about this. This was, this was something he didn't have to make public and did. He did this to get views and to make his channel more interesting. And then if you dare comment on anything he put out there that appears not to be true, he deletes the comment and blocks you. What a jerk. If you're going to put out that type of content, you've got to allow critical comments, especially ones that are pointing at holes in your own story, to stand. You can respond back to the person, but you don't delete any comment that uh, calls into question things you said on your own video. It's not like I was invading his privacy in any way. I was, I was using the information he presented to comment on why his story did not add up. And I got blocked and, and uh, from, from Twitter and my comment deleted for that. Yeah, he has a right to do it, but 
It's a right to block who he wants and delete what he wants, but that's a jerk move. Lost complete respect for him after that happened. Those are tweets we got. I also got earlier before the show. Uh, Looks like a casino is coming to Danville, Virginia. Caesars is one of the bidders. Interesting. That's from the 480. Thank you for that. You can text me anytime, 775-372-8355. You can. You can call that number. You can text that number. I think I forgot to mention the Mount Charleston line, by the way. 702-430-1808 is a phone number to call into the show of an old 70s rotary telephone that sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to wherever I go. But you cannot text it. There's no way to text the Mount Charleston line. So be aware of that. Okay, I'd also like you to be aware of a gentleman known as Eric Benzamokin. A very nice guy, a successful attorney, who, as you've heard on the show, is very knowledgeable about legal matters and always has the answers we're craving. Would have been useful to have on tonight, but I didn't think of it. Maybe he'll comment after listening to the show. Very loyal listener to the show. So loyal that he donates his hard-earned money to the show, to the free rolls, more than anybody has in uh, recent years here in Poker Fraud. The only one who's even comes close overall in donations to what Eric has uh, given was C-Money, who's no longer a member of the forum due to some stuff that happened in 2018, which we won't go into again. But uh, Eric Benzamokin is uh, definitely in the top two all-time free-roll donors and the number one free-roll donor in... uh, the last two years for sure. I really appreciate that. And uh, I meet up with him in person every so often. Doesn't live that far from me. Very nice guy. And uh, so out of appreciation, when I take my break to go rinse out my throat to give myself a second vocal wind here to complete the show, I, I play his ad that I made a while ago. And you really can contact him at the email address I put out there. He's not going to bite your head off. He's not going to send you a bill for services rendered. I promise that won't happen. You'll get a friendly response. Now, you can't expect him to do a bunch of free legal work for you, but if you want to contact him and ask a question about something, uh, he'll be happy to respond. And that's why he puts his email address out there in this ad and has no problem with poker fraud alert listeners contacting him. And I've had people text me before saying that they messaged him and that uh, he gave them good advice or he was very helpful and they really appreciate it and things like that. And especially if you need arbitration or mediation and you're in one of the right places for that, then definitely contact him. Or uh, I, know, I know he does bankruptcies too. He does he does a, a number of different things too. And he's he's told me uh, about some of the cases he's had in the past, and it's it's interesting. So I appreciate all he does for the show. I appreciate his generosity. I appreciate the generosity of others who uh, may not donate as much as Eric does, but but also have donated to the show some regularly, some irregularly, and. People don't have to do that. I don't have an expectation that anybody donates to the show. I don't think that that's something you must do if you listen. If you want to just listen and never donate a penny, that's fine too. It really is. I'm just happy you listen. 
but I'm also happy that there's those who want to do both. So I'm going to play his ad, and then I will come back and complete the rest of the show. We have, let's see how many more topics we have. Still a number of them. Oh, yeah, we have a lot. Wow, we have a lot. Wow, I had no idea we have this much left. We have like a whole show left. I'm not even kidding. I think we have nine topics left. Do we actually have nine topics? Or is it eight? Either eight or nine. I think it's eight. Okay, that's, that's still a lot. Not all necessarily long topics, but eight topics. We've only done five so far. <laughs> and this is one of those nights it feels like the show's already been going a long time. Maybe because it's late. I think we've only been on for about less than three and a half hours, but it feels like I've been on for like five already. Not that three and a half is short. How many other shows go this long? Like none, right? Do, is there any other regular show that goes long like like we do every week? I don't think one exists in, in poker or gambling. You can tell me if there is. You can text me whenever you hear this. Just text me if you know of a show that regularly goes four to eight hours. But we do. And this this allows you, you could make this into a daily show. You could just split it up in fifths. And listen Monday through Friday, or Monday even even Monday through Sunday. You can split it up in sevenths and listen like 40 minutes each day and make like seven shows out of it. So imagine if I had to do this thing daily. I couldn't do it. I could not do it. After I'm done, I always feel like I need a break. Okay, well, I do need a break. I'm going to take a break right now. We will be back in a few minutes. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money, or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. 
Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. All right, let's take a look in the chat room and see if there's anything worth reading. There may not be, but let's see. Well, I was never in the chat room. That's a problem. I, I forgot to join the chat room. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I knew I was afraid of get, forgetting something tonight. So whatever you guys wrote, I did not see. And there's like nobody left. <laughs> there's two people left besides me now because I wasn't there. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I, I forgot. I forgot to enter. I think that our ratings are actually pretty good right now. I think I think the fact that we do a lot of the Friday night shows is good because people can stay up later. The ratings are actually pretty good considering it's almost 2 a.m. So I will move on. Oh, we have a call. I think the call. Good timing, too. Caller, you are... Caller, you're on the air. Caller, you're not on the air. Here we go. Caller. Hello? Are you there? Yeah. Hello. I, How are you? Ben from Australia. From Australia, huh? Okay. Uh, good to hear from you. Sorry, there, there's a... I think I called one of our previous callers accidentally. I think when I was trying to answer yours, I hit the wrong button on Skype because the interface is so terrible now. Anyway, welcome to the show. What would you like to say? Oh, I'm just wondering if you've got my little uh, link about the negotiations about the Aussie Millions. Did you actually see that? I did, and then I, I forgot to... I, I saw you sent it to me, and then I forgot to look into it. So I apologize for that. I, I, okay. will, I, I will look into that, but I, I haven't done it yet. No worries. I hope it can be on one of your shows upcoming. I'd be really interested in your um, opinion. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try to remember to do that and then talk about it next week. We can do that with another thing I keep tabling, which is the call to Wendover, where I keep waiting till too late. So in Australia, where you are right now, it is, I, I presume, uh, 9 p.m. on Saturday? Correct. Okay. Correct. I'm in Melbourne. And now, are you guys about to go back to standard time, or do you have, like, another week or two of that? Oh, uh, we're going to put another week. Another week. Okay. Because, yeah, we're, we're going to go to daylight savings time on Sunday morning. And once we go to daylight savings time and then you guys go to standard time, then the distance in time between us becomes seven hours. Because right now it's a, it's five hours and a day or like Correct. Uh, yep. it becomes like seven hours in a day to where our, our time actually is, is farther away from each other. But I always find it funny that five hours isn't that much and Australia is so far from here. And yet, five hours isn't that much of a time difference. It's I think if you go to go to like Eastern Canada, it's four hours from here as far as the time difference, and that's a lot closer than Australia. So it's it's always funny. New Zealand is is three hours during the uh, the winter months, and this is partially because uh, our daylight saving times are opposites, and you guys have opposite seasons. Which it's also hard for me to picture like like December, January, February being the hot months, and uh, June, July, August are the cold months. Very hot here in those months. Yeah, which had the bushfires in Australia. Did you see that? Oh yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. Uh, now, were they in Melbourne at all? 
Uh, they were in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, they weren't, weren't far from uh, Melbourne's CBD, so it was uh, quite scary. Yeah, the, quite scary. Yeah, it was sort of, uh, during, during the Aussie Millions, actually. So. Yeah, it, it was really bad, and then I, I read that like a billion animals uh, may have died from that. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, how do you judge that kind of thing? But who knows? But uh, it was it was quite bad. Uh, can I ask one question? Are you having any hesitation in going to the World Series? Yeah, well, I don't know if you caught the show earlier. We did a, a over hour long segment about that. So if you go back and listen to the archives, I, I don't want to repeat the whole thing because it'll drive listeners yeah. crazy. But but yeah, I, I do have some possible hesitation. And there's a segment near the beginning of the show that you can hear when you when we're done here and I slap this up in the archives, you can hear a long segment about the coronavirus. It is our main topic for the evening. It's part of the reason we're only five topics in out of the 13 topics and we've been going for almost four hours. No worries. I'll have a look. I'll have a listen uh, into that. All right. I hope great. you can come to the Aussie Millions one day. I, I don't know about that, but are you coming back to the World Series of Poker? Are you afraid of the coronavirus? Are you going to come uh, in, in the summer? Uh, yeah, I'm a bit concerned now, yeah. I yeah. Must, be, must admit. Yeah, everybody is. But my short answer is yes, I'm concerned, but uh, at the moment I'm not canceling my plans, but I'm also not saying that I'm not canceling my plans. I, I easily could cancel my plans based upon where it goes, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. I actually haven't been to the Crown Casino lately um, because there's a lot of uh, Chinese residents there, and so oh. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think I think all casinos have to be struggling. I think a lot of people are thinking the same thing. Like, I don't want to go to a casino, especially ones where there might be a lot of Chinese people. Like, I I, I really think this the casinos are struggling big time. We'll we'll find out soon enough when the earnings releases come out, but I, I would not want to be the owner of a casino right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did you, uh, did you catch up with that pod? Oh, you don't watch the, you don't listen to podcasts, do you? No, no, I, I have enough with my own. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. All right. Thanks. No worries. Th- thanks for calling in. Always good to hear from you. And, uh, uh, if, if you're, if we're at the world series, you can, Feel free to come up to me, or if you want to arrange to meet up somewhere, we can too. Would definitely. If I'm there, we're going to catch up. Yeah, we'll to catch up. Okay, Thank great. You. All right, I'll I'll talk to you oh, later. You're not. Bye. Bye. Ooh. All right, our, our friend there from Australia. And uh, yeah, if he wants to hear about the coronavirus, this is the right show to listen to because we we did a lot of that. He must have just turned it on. Okay, so moving on, this is a, a weird situation. This has to do with a disqualification of a cheater from the 2018 World Championship of Online Poker on Poker Stars. And you, you'd say, well, why am I talking about this now in 2020 about someone being disqualified in 2018? Well, because the disqualification just happened in 2020 for this tournament in 2018, 18 months prior. So here, here's the timeline. And I don't completely understand all of this, but I, I think I mostly understand it. And what's still missing is who's involved, as you'll hear as we do this. So in September 2018, a mysterious Dutch player, at least he was listed as being from the Netherlands, named one to play that's W-A-N-N, the number two and the word play, one to play won the World Championship of Online Poker, known as the WCOOP, 
and he won $1.35 million on PokerStars there. So a big win. Very shortly after that, there were suspicions. I don't know why or how, but there were suspicions that there was some kind of cheating going on. So very shortly after that, the money was held up and they were not going to let him just take it off the site. I think they they froze that money. I don't know if his account was suspended. In fact, I know it wasn't because he, I know he played a little bit after that still, but I know that uh, shortly after that, they at least held up the money that he had won there. They froze that $1.35 million. Maybe they Maybe they took it out of his account and said, we're investigating. We'll put it back in your account when we clear you. And after that, there wasn't much action. I don't know when his account was suspended or even if it, if it was, but it, it wasn't seen playing any tournaments more than a few weeks after that. He did play tournaments again. He, he cashed in another tournament uh, about, uh, what was it? Looks like uh, for the next few weeks after that, he cashed in a few other tournaments, but then nothing after that. So maybe he did get uh, suspended. But... Uh, July 2019, a Twitter user named Giraffe Ganger, that's G-I-R-A-F-G-A-N-G-E-R-7, Giraffe Ganger 7, tweeted, Purely hypothetically speaking, if you have a credible source outing a well-known pro winning, let's just say, the WCOOP 2018 main event for over a million on a second account, what do you do? And he put out a poll, which 1,890 people voted on. Post a cryptic Twitter poll, out him, get proof and get him banned, or blackmail for charity. I <laughs> like blackmail for charity. You commit a crime, but you, you, you give the money away for charity. <laughs> so 24% voted for post a cryptic Twitter poll, which is what he's doing. 34% out him. 33, 30% said get proof and get him banned. And 12% said blackmail for charity. That was in July 2019, posted by this giraffe ganger. And then nothing. And and nobody said who it was, though he said they won the 2018 W. Cook main event. So it's obvious it was about one to play. He didn't name him, but he said which event it was. So uh, he said it was a well-known pro who won it. Well-known pro. And that he won it using a second account. So it sounds kind of similar to the accusations we've seen over the years of, of certain people who have done this, who have used more than one account to play the same tournament, which is very strictly against the rules. And if you're caught doing that, then you get disqualified and any winnings taken away. Justin Bonomo was famously caught for this when he was much younger, I think in 2006. Now, in Justin Bonomo's defense, he hasn't been caught cheating ever since then and claimed he was very sorry and that he was just young and stupid. And I think I kind of believe that. I think Justin Bonomo isn't a cheater anymore. And he admitted that Yes, he did cheat there. Like, he, he owned up to it. Uh, there were others who were less high-profile than Justin Bonomo who've been caught doing this. There was a guy who played as The Void some years ago on Poker Stars who was caught doing this when he won the... Uh, the uh, I don't know if it was the WCOOP, some big Poker Stars tournament he won under his sister's account, and he had played under his own account as well. And he had the money confiscated. But this one to play, supposedly a Dutch player... And described by this giraffe ganger as a well-known pro. Hmm. And that want to play is actually a second account. That want to play is not his main account. Hmm. 
Well, in February 2020, February 28th, 2020, second to last day in February, just uh, about a week ago, Juan Duplay was officially disqualified. His money was confiscated and the $1.35 million was redistributed to the other people who were in that tournament 18 months ago because everybody was moved up one spot who had cashed in that tournament. And I guess even one person who didn't cash got moved up a spot into the into the money. So everybody just got their money starting uh, on February 28th for a tournament they had played a year and a half ago. Talk about pennies from heaven. The new winner, the former second place winner, Ezekiel Wagel, who now calls himself the world default champion of online poker. By the way, he follows me. He only follows uh, 285 people, but I'm one of them. But Ezekiel Weigel is now the world default champ of online poker 2018 by his own admission. And he now got that extra money, which is probably a lot. So, very good for him. The non-cheater got moved up to the first place after losing to the cheater. The question is, who's won to play? Who is it? I have to imagine the investigation was correct. I have to imagine there was multi-accounting going on. I don't know why it took 18 months, but I have to imagine it probably was a correct investigation. And since if he was guilty of playing two accounts, then he was violating the terms of service. He was very clearly cheating, and he does not deserve any money he won. So everything there was correct, even though it took too long to confiscate the winnings and to redistribute it and basically just take him out of it and move him one spot and pay the difference. Imagine this Ezekiel Wangle wakes up and it's like, hey, what was, I don't know what the second place was, but probably around half of it, right? Maybe a little more than half, but I mean, he must have gotten several hundred thousand dollars just dropped in his account. You just wake up and you see that in your account. How sweet is that? Like 18 months later. It's one thing like a week later to have that happen. Like 18 months later, you'd never expect that. You just wake up and there's that money. That That is pennies from heaven. That is the ultimate pennies from heaven. But good for him. He deserves it. But who's won to play? That's what's most interesting about this. That's, that's more interesting to me than the fact that this happened. Who is it? Who is the, quote, well-known pro? Well, the, the biggest hint is that he's Dutch. Now, maybe the Dutch thing is just the second account. So like, a, let's say it's an English player who has a Dutch friend who created an account for him. So maybe the Dutch thing is misleading. But provided he really is Dutch, that narrows it down a lot because it's supposed to be a well-known pro from the Netherlands. Okay. Well, I just brought up a list on Hendon Mob of the all-time money list at live tournaments of players from the Netherlands. So here we go. Jorrit van Hoof, Marcel Lusk, Peter de Corver, Rob Hollink, Govert Mittal, Steven van Zanderhoff, Ruben Visser, Tobias Peters, I haven't heard of most of these people, Paul Berende, David Boyashian, Noah Boken, Michael Brumelius, Joris Ruiz, Constant Richtenberg, I've heard of him, Jasper Meher Van Putten, sorry for mispronouncing these, 
Steve Wong, not a guy you'd expect from his name to be in the Netherlands, but is. Marcus Nalden, Hakeem Zutri, Martin Gertz, Florence Finstra. I can go on. This is the top 20. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying that these are suspects because this, this is just the top 20 cashers in live tournaments from the Netherlands. As I said, just because the one to play account was listed as being from the Netherlands doesn't mean that the actual pro, the well-known pro, actually is from the Netherlands. It could be someone who just had access to that account. Also, these are people who just cashed in live tournaments. Maybe this is a well-known pro who isn't really a tournament pro. Maybe he's a tournament pro online and not so much live. So who knows? Now, the most well-known names in this list, I would say, are... Marcel Lusk and Noah Boken. There's some others that are recognizable. Jorat Van Hoof and Peter DeCorver and uh, Rob Hollink. But I, I think that uh, Marcel Lusk and Noah Boken are the most likely, not likely, most most recognizable names on this list. I don't think it's Marcel. He's not, never been known as a big online guy. Now, Noah Boken, he goes way back online. He, he was playing as exclusive. That was his name, exclusive on PokerStars way back at the beginning, so far back that he could get the name exclusive. Because think about how many names are on PokerStars. He actually got the name exclusive, which wouldn't be available very long on a huge site. I remember when I showed up on PokerStars in early 2003, he was already there. I've met him before. It's funny. We used to talk trash online, and then when we got when we met, we got along very well. Like, we used to totally talk shit back to each other, back and forth in 2003 online. So much of like, I wonder when I meet this guy, it's going to be like, and then, and then I met him and we got along very well. But uh, here's something interesting. Noah Boken, who hasn't been thought of that much as an online tournament player in recent years, was actually at that final table where one to play was the winner. Oh, my. So is he our prime suspect? Well, you know, on the surface you'd say yes, but when you think about it, the answer is no. Why? Because Noah Boken finished sixth in that same tournament. If Noah Boken was using both accounts, then it wouldn't just be one to play who was disqualified. It would be one to play and exclusive disqualified, meaning that not only would everybody move up a spot, but that everybody who was seventh and below would move up two spots. And that did not happen. Everybody moved up one spot, which means that exclusive did not get disqualified, which means if it was him and they caught him, then he would not have moved up and he would not have been allowed to keep the money. So it wasn't him as much as this would all fit. It wasn't him. I think it was a coincidence he was at the final table. So I don't know. I don't know. And it still has not been outed who that is. And unfortunately, even if you got the name of Juan to play, that still may not tell you because this was a second account according to that tweet. So depending on the relationship between Juan to play and the person who was using their main account. If it's like his brother, you could figure it out. But if, if one to play is just a buddy, you may not be able to link them anyway. 
So I don't know if even knowing who Juan Duplay technically is would really tell you much here. It would tell you more than we know right now, but uh, if it is someone from the Netherlands, I still don't think there's that many choices. So if any of you have an idea, I know we have some European listeners, if anyone has an idea who Juan Duplay might really be, I don't mean the name on the account, I mean who actually was operating it to have won this, the multi-accounter, I'd love to know your theory on this, because I'm out of guesses. I don't know. I was looking at, I, I can't really figure out who it would be from that list. And uh, now I will say, even though I don't think Noah Boken did it for the reasons I just stated, Jungle Man did accuse Noah Boken of letting Patrick Antonius play on his PokerStars account. But uh, first of all, we don't know if Jungle Man was right. Jungle Man could have just been shooting his mouth off. And even if that's true, that doesn't mean that uh, that this means he did this. But I, I think the biggest piece of information that would say it's not Noah Boken is that Noah did not get disqualified when he was finishing sixth. Kind of mystery here. Who is it? Who is this well-known pro that just got disqualified and lost $1.3 that he had won? I, when I say lost, I mean it was frozen all this time, so they didn't – it's not like he, they grabbed it from his bank account. But uh, he's been sitting here for 18 months wondering if he's going to get it, and somehow after 18 months they're like, ah, yeah, you cheated. We're taking it. <laughs> I don't know what would take that long. I really don't know why it took that long. And it's it's not just about the cheater being held up for 18 months. You may say, who cares? Let him let him wait, let him sweat. But what about the people who may have needed the money that should have won it? Everybody else below him that moved up a spot that could have used that money. And now 18 months later, they're getting it, but maybe they could have used it better 18 months ago. So I don't see why you would hold it up that long. You, you have to hold it up long enough to be sure, but 18 months, I don't know what would come up in that 18 months that they couldn't discover in a few weeks. It's a very weird story, very weird timing. If you have any idea who Juan to play is, the real person behind that, you know, like it's Scooby-Doo, now let's see who Juan to play really is. And you pull off the mask. If you can pull off the mask of Juan to play and tell me who it really is, please let me know. Uh... There, someone messaged me about this. Multi-accounting would be the most obvious problem, and ghosting is also a possibility. Although, as Gordon Vio's 700K 2018 scoop cheating showed, playing from the USA, lying about it, and forging documents may also be a reason for not being paid. I don't think here, because of that tweet in 2019, it seems like that uh, Giraffe Ganger knew, exact, knew exactly who did it, and knew, knew that this person had used two accounts. Uh... Oh, yeah, there's something else that this person messaging me about the matter. Uh, it was Bobby Orr, I see he posted in the public chat, too. He said, with the PokerStars Platinum Pass also prior to the prize, it appears Juan to play didn't want to reveal his real identity in order to use it, though that may well not have been an option in any event. Uh, yeah, well, right. They may have already taken away the Platinum Pass, which is basically a spot at the 25K tournament that came with the WCOOP winning, that this person could have shown up in January 2019 and had a free 25K seat and just didn't show. It is known that Juan play never showed up to, to claim it. So it was for one of two reasons. Either they were already disqualified and they couldn't play it, or the actual person whose name was on Juan play isn't really a poker player. Like, let's say it was someone's brother or someone's cousin or someone's uh, best friend who's never played a hand of poker in their life. Uh, there's no point to send them over to Atlantis to play 
and have no clue what they're doing and maybe even further add evidence to the fact that this was not a, a person capable of winning the W Coop. So that person definitely did not show. They won a 25K seat and either had it taken from them or didn't show. One of those two. That That's another interesting thing about this, that Juan Duplay did not end up using their platinum pass they got. So uh, Saw24 saying in chat that he thinks that Noah Boken's the most likely candidate, but I don't agree. I think Noah Boken would have been disqualified too, and people would be reporting they got moved up two spots. If everybody got moved up two spots, then I'd say, yeah, that's a, I think Noah Boken, there's a good chance it's him, especially if, if everybody got moved up two spots except for those who were uh, second through fifth and they only got moved up one spot. Then you'd know exactly who it is. But I, I think because Noah Boken finished sixth, that actually makes him less likely. If, if Noah Boken wasn't on the board, then I'd say, oh, yeah, that's a well-known pro. He's from the Netherlands. He's been accused of multi-accounting many years ago. Yeah, it's a good chance it's him. But because he finished sixth, I don't think it was him. So that uh, that is a mystery. If anybody knows or has any idea, please let me know. Because I I heard there's rumors about who it is, but I searched and searched and could not find these rumors. I, I couldn't even see anyone discussing this, like 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 in where they're they're stating who they think it is. I couldn't even find any discussion of that. Okay, so I want to play you a clip of a disturbing incident that occurred at a poker room in Oregon. This is not the same Oregon casino that got uh, shut down. This is not the Wild Horse. This is the Chinook Winds, another Indian casino in Oregon. This is not coronavirus related. This is actually related to an incident there where a poker player got very, very, very unruly and said some pretty bad things, (laughs) to say the least. So I'm going to play this to you. And a guy who was there was the victim of uh, a lot of this rant. I warn you that if you're playing this out loud, you probably don't want this playing where others can hear. You probably don't want children hearing this. You don't want coworkers hearing this. Otherwise, uh, I think people are going to think some bad things about you if, if, if this is heard in mixed company. So make sure only you are listening or only you and others who will hear offensive language used. And when I, by offensive, I mean racist language, not just the F word or something. So here we go. I'm going to play it to you. This was uh, a white, angry-looking middle-aged poker player freaking out and shouting racial epithets at a black player named Will Butler, who posted this video on Twitter. Really, buddy? So let me give you some context here. So this guy is yelling at, I think they're, it's not clear, but I think he's yelling at two different people. The one he's directed the N-word to, I believe, is Will Butler, who's a black poker player. And I don't know who this, quote, fat fuck is. I don't think it's Will Butler. I haven't seen Will Butler's body, but from what I can see of his face, he doesn't look like he'd be a, quote, fat fuck. I think there were two people involved. I think there was probably an overweight guy who was telling him to stop 
being a jerk and being a racist. And I think there's this Will Butler who he was screaming at. This obviously was picked up in the middle of the whole altercation. So we don't see what started this whole thing. But this is the racist portion of the rant. There's no, nobody's getting physical here. Nobody's punching anyone yet. There's just uh, this guy is shouting really angrily, as you can hear. And everybody's standing up here. They're, this is not everyone sitting at the poker table. Everyone's standing up at this point as, as this guy is shouting. Fuck you, nigger. I don't need no help. Fuck you and this nigger. Now you see he's challenging this quote fat boy to a fight with him. You may wonder where is security there? Security is still not there. Now finally security shows up here, people starting to clap. Well I don't know why they're clapping so much, because the security guard that shows up, he seriously looks like he's about five feet two inches tall and about hundred and twenty pounds. <laughs> And probably like 55 or 60 years old. And, and the guy who's shouting here, he looks pretty formidable. He's not like super huge, but he looks like a pretty tough guy. He looks like someone who could probably fight. He looks like someone who's who's just really revved up. And and it's hard to tell how big he is, but he's not small. He he, he looks like someone who, who could do some damage in a fight, the guy who's shouting here. So you, they said, of all people to show up there, the security guard is like like five like really like five foot two and one hundred twenty pounds. I'm not even exaggerating. If that, why they hire a security guard of that size, I don't know. But but here here it comes. They're starting to clap, and maybe the the clapping becomes muted as they see the size of the security guard in question. Fuck you! You're a nigger. <laughs> and they're attacking me, boy. Now they're attacking me, boy. Was. That's him yelling at the security guard. The security guard's kind of like motioning back up, and he's like, "They're attacking me, boy!" Stop! Stop that! They're attacking me! The whole fucking casino! You fucking nigger! <laughs> when the whole quote fucking casino is attacking you, usually that means you're in the wrong. Usually, the whole casino is not going to attack you when you're the one who's innocent. That's just a tip for anyone who finds themselves in this spot. Okay, another security guard has shown up. So, okay, the the little guy, the 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 little midget security guard, he is not able to uh, provide the muscle and bulk firepower necessary to take down this crazy man who's shouting. But another security guard has shown up, and maybe we'll save the day, or maybe not. It's a woman. (laughs) <laughs> and not like a big woman kind of like a normal sized woman she's not like a skinny woman but it's not like it's not like a big burly woman it's not even like a, a tough looking Vanessa Self type shows up this is just kind of like a normal girl that shows up in the security guard uniform so so we have the the, the little short skinny guy and then we have kind of like a, like a typical looking woman showing up these are the two security guards who are there so far I think they need to rethink their hiring process. I mean, by all means, hire women for other positions here. But I I don't think like a a female security guard is the best idea at a casino. But if if you're going to do it, then also hire like some big, strong dudes to work with her where she can 
do work related to you know not having to be physically strong. I I think, and I, I'm not being sexist here, but I think when you're hiring security guards, you need to hire security guards who are big and strong, and usually those would be men. I think you don't hire women. I think you don't hire little guys. And if you're going to hire people who are less physically imposing, then at least pair them with security guards who are physically imposing. But here it looks like like everybody is uh, – it's like they're, they're hiring the, the weakest security guards <laughs> at this casino. Can we all just look so, so this is he's you don't need my fucking ID. He's saying this to the the little guy security guard who wants to say, Hey, show me some ID. You don't need my fucking ID. Well yeah, that that little security guard's not gonna take it from him, that's for sure. Why are we like being cool to this dude? Okay, so now another security guard shows up. He said, "So, so the one filming this says, why are we being cool to this dude?' I, I don't think people were being cool to this dude. Like people were just kind of standing around, going, like, what, what is this?" <laughs> I don't think anyone's being cool to him. I don't see anyone being nice to the guy. I just see that he's ranting and everyone's kind of like standing around, like wondering what's going to happen next. So a, a third security guard comes. So, so now do we have our, our big dude is going to take care of him? Uh, no, it's it's another short and skinny security guard. Not quite as short and skinny as the first one, but another short and skinny security guard ha- has entered the scene here where maybe if you add all their three weights together, they're about equal to the guy who's shouting. <laughs> So, so, so finally, the guy who's recording the video he notices this. He notices like this is the security team. This this is who's going to take this guy down. Also, why is every fucking why is every fucking why is every fucking security guard here weigh like thirty pounds? What the fuck is this shit about? <laughs> By the way, a fourth security guard appears who's also short and skinny. <laughs> He's not kidding when he says they're, they're all like thirty pounds. Crazy. <laughs> Why is every fucking security guard like 30 pounds here? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it really is like they had an ad in the paper. Are you, are you physically unopposing? Are you short and skinny? Do you look like you couldn't beat anyone's ass in a fight? Then come work for the Chinook Winds Security Guard Department. We need people like you. We are an equal opportunity employer. We hire short, skinny, and weak security guards. We're not like other employers who only want to hire big guys who kick ass. We want to give you, the five foot two hundred ten pound man, a chance to work security. It's really strange. Like, I understand that there are security guards at every casino who are not physically imposing. There are a few of them. There, you know, there's the women, there's the smaller guys. I've seen it. I've seen it. But, but usually the security guards are at least like average sized dudes are bigger and usually like toward the bigger side. Like, usually at casinos, like in Vegas, when I look at the security guards, most of them are, are, are bigger men. To have like four out of four security guards be like sm- three small guys and one woman, that's not a crack security team, no matter what.
Then now they're mad at someone for advising him that he's leaving his phone behind because as the guy was being escorted out, I guess his phone was sitting at the table, and someone shouts to him, "Hey, go get your phone!" He's like, "Go fuck his phone! Why? Why are you reminding this guy not to forget his phone?" <laughs> Which is a good point. Good point. Maybe they didn't want him coming back in and say, "Hey, I forgot my phone," but like it was just—it sounds like it was another player there telling him, "Hey, get your phone." But they're, they're finally walking him out, and, and fucking flush that shit. <laughs> fucking idiot. Okay, that's the end of the video. By the way, uh, whenever videos like this appear, I I make them available. Because not everybody has Twitter or Facebook or wants to go through all the tweets. The person may be tweeting 20 times a day, and by the time you hear about this, you may have to go through 100 tweets to find it. I know how it is. So I will make these interesting videos available on the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and just search Poker Fraud Alert, there's not that many videos, but this is one that's up there called a racist poker player at Chinook Winds Casino in Oregon yelling, I think I put there, whatever. It's a, you'll find it. Just go to the Poker Fraud Alert channel, and it's one of the not-so-many videos I post. I'm not a regular YouTube poster, but this is up there if you'd like to see it. I did not take this video, but I, I felt I'd make it available, so you can all see this. I do think if, if the security guards who approached this guy were bigger, I think he would have backed down sooner. But I, I don't blame him for just saying, <laughs> what are these people going to do to me? F him. He just kept shouting along, kept still threatening that guy he called the fat fuck. He was in the process of being walked out when the video ends. I assume that he was walked out completely. Will Butler put on Twitter that he's never going to play again. He's put, this weekend I was put in a situation I didn't deserve. The video only shows part of the story. Chinook wins. Please know I will never set foot in your establishment again. Your security and management are a joke. And it got a lot of attention. 266 retweets, almost 2,000 likes, and uh, 328 responses. That's, uh, that's pretty bad. Some people say that, uh, that Chinook wins is in an area of Oregon where it's not surprising that this occurred, that, that there's parts of Oregon that are kind of backwoods with a lot of racists and that uh, once you get away from Portland, a lot of Oregon is like that. This, these are not my words. I don't know Oregon that well, but uh, that's what uh, someone said. Chinook wins is not in inland Oregon, though. It's not by Portland by any means, but it is on the coast Oregon, I don't know if you know much about it. You may not because Oregon is not a state most people know much about unless they live there. But the Oregon coast does not have any large cities, which is unusual. Think about most other states. You're going to find several large cities that are at or near the coast. And the cities in Oregon you've probably heard of, of course, Portland, the biggest one, and then uh, Salem, Eugene, none of these are by the coast. All of these are substantially inland. By the coast, there's really nothing. There, there are little towns. That, I'm not saying there's no towns in Oregon, but there's a lot of like little nothing towns on the coast of Oregon. 
And uh, not only aren't there many people living there, these aren't even very well visited. It's not even like there's major tourist areas of uh, Oregon on the coast. For some reason, the Oregon coast is kind of ignored. I will even say I'm guilty of that. When I last took a trip to Oregon, in 2015, I went to uh, – I, I took a road trip from Southern California all the way to the northern border of Washington – I didn't cross the border, but I went as far north in Washington as I could at uh, Olympic National Park and then went a little back south to Seattle and flew back from Seattle. It was like a one-way driving trip where I rented a car, drove it one way, returned it in Seattle, and then uh, flew flew back home. But, uh, of course, I went through Oregon, but I went through inland Oregon. I ended up seeing the things in Oregon that were uh, the the type of stuff that was – Inland, kind of like the volcanic type of stuff, like Crater Lake and uh, uh, some of the stuff near Bend that, that's kind of similar. That that was what I went to see in Oregon. I also went to Portland, but I did not go to anything on the coast in Oregon. I never touched the coast of Oregon, even though I had touched the coast of California a number of times on that same trip. I, I never went to the coast of Oregon. And I remember looking at the map and go, this feels kind of weird. I'm going all the way through Oregon. And I'm never going to any of these coastal towns. And I kind of wondered, like, you know, I wonder if there is, like, a, a cool, quaint coastal town that I could visit here. But I go, no, nah, you know, I already live close to the beach myself, and it's not going to be a big thrill, and it's way out of the way, and it's not easy to get there. There's no major highway taking you there. A lot of times there's there's mountains in the way. You can't even get there. So I, I didn't do it. And uh, one of these days I'll do it. One of these days I, I will drive up coastal Oregon. I, I'm kind of curious about it. But this actually is a casino in coastal Oregon, and it's uh, it's not super far from Portland, but it's not close. It's like southwest of Portland, all the way on the coast. So I, I wouldn't say this is like backwoods inland Oregon, but it's also nowhere near Portland. But someone said they weren't surprised this happened there. Anyway, uh, I've had... Some incidents at casinos. I I've never done anything like I've I've never been the one doing things like this. I've I've witnessed things, and I've even had people freaking out on me occasionally. I've never been in actual any fights, but it's a few times it's gotten close. Believe it or not, where people have threatened me or or said they're, they, that they're they're going to fight me, or they're going to punch me, and I was ready. I, you know, I was ready for this is going to happen, and I'm, I'm going to have to do it. I, I'm a nonviolent person. I don't start fights. I don't like being in fights. But you know, I will fight if it has to happen. If somebody attacks me, I'm going to fight him. So uh, I, there's been times in casinos before where people like that are there and, and are trying to start up. And I'll try to avoid it happening. I'll try to de-escalate, but there's, there's been times it happens. And uh, along the lines of someone like just shouting like a crazy person like this guy was, the last time I saw something like this was, I think it was in 2019, either 18 or 19. I think it was in 19. In commerce, uh, this time the perpetrator was a black guy. In, in, in this video I played, the, the white guy was the perpetrator and the black guys were the victim. Uh, in, in this case, he was a black guy, but I will say the black guy was not hassling white people. The black guy was just shouting, 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 uh, fuck your mother, fuck this. He was just shouting just obscenities over and over. I wasn't sure who it was at, but he went on and on with this. It was in the high limit room of commerce, which is a very large room. 
but he was just over and over and over, kind of standing by where the cage was, and it was so loud the entire room heard it very clearly. People were kind of like laughing, but it was kind of like nervous laughter. Like people were a little bit worried, like, what was he going to do? Is there any chance he has a gun? Is there any chance he's going to come back with a gun? Like the guy was really pissed, and I don't even know what he was mad about. The most surprising thing was that security at Commerce, which does employ security guards who are substantial, it wasn't like the ones that the Chinook wins, they just stood there. They didn't do anything. They just like stood around the guy and for like 20 minutes let him do this, which is weird because I would have pictured someone shouting like this. They would first try to calm him down and de-escalate, and if he just won't shut up and for 20 minutes screams, fuck you, fuck your mother, motherfucker, piece of shit, fucking asshole, piece of shit, fucking, you know, I'm going to fuck your mother in the ass. Like He just went on and on and on with stuff like that for like 20 straight minutes at the top of his voice. I would think that this would be considered justifiable at this point to forcefully take him out. First warn him that you need to stop this or we're going to forcefully remove you. And then forcefully remove him. But they didn't. And finally, I think they talked him into just calming down and walking out on his own. And I understand trying to de-escalate, but this guy went to the, at least 20 minutes screaming like that. I was very surprised at the non-response there. Like, why, why even have security if that's all they're going to do? Like, security really has to give the person a warning and give them ample chance to calm down and, and leave on their own. And if they won't, if they're just going to stand there and scream obscenities over and over and over in a threatening and aggressive manner, then take them down. And you need to have security guards that are, are willing to do this. That's part of the job. That was surprising to see. It was like a, it was like a sort of like older middle-aged black guy. I think it was probably a black guy in his fifties. It looked like I didn't get that close to him. I was playing the sixty-one twenty just, watching from a distance and it was kind of funny in a way, but it's kind of disturbing in a way. <laughs> I was just saying, I, I just hope this guy just doesn't come back with a gun and just start shooting everybody. Cause when, when someone is like flipping out this badly and maybe it has to do with losing all their money, like what if they're just despondent and just decide they're just going to come back and randomly start shooting. So I, I was hoping that wasn't going to happen, but it, it did not. I'm actually surprised this doesn't happen more often where people do just come there and just start shooting up card rooms or casinos. You don't see that that often, like people who are just mad they lost everything. You really don't see that. I would think you would, but you don't. You just, it, for some reason, it doesn't happen. I'm glad it doesn't happen, but I, it doesn't happen. Okay, next topic. Oh, the Venetian, another story about the Venetian being crappy for the poker world. This is... Something we seem to do a lot on this show. So the rake has been an increasing problem because it's increasing. The rake's just been going up everywhere. Not just the Venetian. Everywhere the rake's just been going up, up, up. And the problem is eventually you price everybody out where even the good players are negative expectation because the rake is so high. The higher the rake gets, the better you have to be to show a profit. And... It's, it's just getting to unsustainable levels, especially at the lower limits. At, at least at the upper limits, the game is big enough to where, yes, this, this interferes with your hourly rate uh, of winning, but at least you can still win. At lower limit games, there's no way to beat them if the rake is too high. Now, I had always maintained that having like a, a $5 rake at a 1-2 game is something you can't even beat. 
I thought that was just too much. Maybe you can barely beat it if you're one of the best players, but it just seems like it seems like a five dollar rake is already way too high. But we're way past that. Listen to this sign that is at the Venetian. Currently at the Venetian. March cash game promotion. Our upcoming March cash game promotion, March 1st to 31st, 2020, excluding March 12th to 15th, will award more than $1 million in total prizes. Okay, so far so good. $1 million. During the month of March, our rake will be 10% max up to $6 per hand and, wait for it, our promotional drop will be $3 per hand. Okay, let's do some elementary school addition. Six plus three equals nine dollars rake. Nine dollars rake in the month of March at the Venetian at all games. So if the pot is sixty dollars or more, they are going to take nine dollars out of it. You win a sixty dollar pot, you're going to get fifty one dollars. Because they're raking 10% up to $6. So once it's $60, the rake is $6. And the drop is $3 every hand, no matter what. Now, what is a promotional drop that funds jackpots? It funds promos. So I guess they're giving away a million bucks in prizes in March. So to fund that, they're taking $3 out of each hand. Now you may say, okay, well, that goes back to the players. Well, this sucks because most people don't win it. What happens is it becomes very top-heavy, where a few people get all the benefit of this, and everybody else just gets $3 per hand taken out every hand they win, which is brutal. In general, I hate jackpot drops because all it does is it takes the skill out of the game because there's there's no skill in winning jackpot hands. You just got to luck into them. And it, it redistributes the money to those who just get lucky. So jackpots suck. Jackpots, and, and you never know when you're going to hit them. You can just go on forever without hitting one. Yes, you can get very lucky and hit one. You can get lucky and hit two or three. But the bottom line is totally random who gets them, and there's no skill in it. So that really takes the skill out of poker. The more jackpot rake they take, the less skill there is in winning overall, and they introduce more variance too. So it really is like a rake where occasionally you get – uh, and I really very occasionally get some kind of return from it. $9 per hand. Six is actual rake. Three is promotional drop. Now, it can be less than nine if the pot is less than $60, but it, let's say the pot is $30. It's still $6 taken out. Let's say the pot is $20. It's still $5 taken out. It's really brutal. But that's for the month of March. What about in April? Well, it says, we resume our current structure of $5 rake per hand and $2 promotional drop on April 1st. Oh, well, okay. It's only $7 now, guys. Isn't that good? Only $7 can come out of your pot of pots that are $50 or more. So if you win a $50 pot, you'll get 43 That's cool, right? Isn't that insane? Is that just absolutely insane? This is a terrible structure. For rake and drop. The drops are going up. The days of the dollar promotional drop are, are starting to end and they're starting to become $2 promotional drops. That's a real problem. The jackpot drops are increasing because there's a general trend in casinos, both poker rooms and otherwise, to lean 
toward jackpots and to lean away from good value. Because the average gambler is getting more simple and less informed. So the average gambler just thinks about, where do I get lucky? Where do I have a chance to get a lot of money? So they think these players don't mind an extra dollar coming out or an extra $2 coming out for the jackpot drop if they're paying bigger jackpots or doing bigger promotions. If you have a small chance of something really big, then it's exciting. And who's going to care if they take another $2 out of your uh, out of your pots you win? Who's going to notice that? Well, you're going to notice that if it's over and over and over again, it adds up. And this is a trend, unfortunately. And it, it seems like the Venetian is always in the forefront of these player-unfriendly trends. They're the ones who introduced the triple zero roulette, which is starting to infect other parts of Las Vegas. It's not just them anymore. A lot of casinos have triple zero roulette now. So the Venetian just says, let's try this. Let's see if gamblers are dumb, dumb enough to be okay with it. Oh, look, they are. Okay, cool. We'll keep this. That, that's what they do. Remember, we had a topic about them not too long ago when they had a max prize pool series where they would actually put a maximum on the tournament prize pool and everybody entering beyond the maximum, they would just keep 100% of the buy-in. Now, yes, there was a minimum and maximum. They would just set a, uh, an amount of the prize pool and that uh, if they don't reach that many players, then uh, it's an overlay. And if they reach more than that, uh, then they just keep the rest. Now, that was pretty much a failure because a lot of people stayed away from it and they're probably not going to do it again. But the whole point was to try to make extra money. The Venetian loves to come up with things that are player unfriendly and then see if the players go for it. And they're not evil to do this. Some people say, oh, they're so evil. Sheldon Adelson's evil. First of all, Sheldon Adelson's not making these decisions. It's, It's people who work for him. But second... They're coming up with ways to make money. The point of a business is to make money. I understand that. It it just sucks. This is so player unfriendly, and it's just bad for poker. I would hope that poker rooms would say, yes, we could do this to make a little extra money, but let's not. Let's not be jerks about this. Let's not screw over the average poker player by making the rake too high or making the jackpot drop too high just to make – uh, the, our jackpot's bigger. Let's let's be more reasonable here. But really, the only way this changes is if people reject it. The only way this changes is if people say, no, this is too high, I don't want to do it. But the problem is in major casinos in Vegas, they have so much traffic coming through that's uh, tourist traffic that people are not going to shop around as much. A lot of people just want to play in the poker room that's in the hotel they're staying at. But the locals should really stay away from crap like this. This is just awful. And I, I really hate this evolution toward a jackpot drop. And, and sadly, I at the games I play, which are bigger than this, of course, I'll complain about the jackpot where I play, and, and I have people debating with me about it. No, I like the jackpot. No, the jackpot's cool. That's not a problem. It returns to the players. I go, first of all, it doesn't all return to the players. They keep a certain percentage. And, and second, you know, they, they call it an administrative fee. It's, it's legal to do. But, but even ignoring that, it, it, it introduces stupid variants. I've never been part of a jackpot in my life. Never. I've just run bad with that. I I don't want it. I want to win or lose at poker based upon, number one, my own play, and number two, the luck of the cards. And I understand that over a long period of time, that will average out. 
that sometimes I will get luckier than I deserve to be and win more money than I deserve to win, and other times I will get unlucky with the cards and do worse than I deserve, uh, according to my play. But it will average out after a whole lot of hands played. So the combination of that and my skill compared to others at the table will determine my success in poker, and I'm completely fine with that. And I'm at peace with the fact that there will be bad beats and there will be bad sessions and unlucky sessions. That's all part of the game. But I hate when all this crap is introduced that brings in more variants to it, especially non-skill variants like jackpots. I don't want to pay extra money every rake, so every so often, every once every several years or more, for me it's more, I've never had one, uh, I'll be part of a jackpot that hits and I'll get some lump sum. I'm way, way, way behind on that lifetime because I've never been part of a jackpot. But even if I was, I don't like it. That's not how I want to make the money. If I did, I'd play the lottery. That's pretty much what that is. But it's one thing to have a dollar drop for the jackpot. A three dollar drop? That's insane. And then when this month is over, they go back to their normal structure of five dollar rake plus two dollar jackpot? I mean, that's, that's still bad. I'd be complaining if the month of March was $7 total. No, that's the normal $7. The month of March is $9. Horrible. And I love how they call it the March cash game promotion. It's not a promotion. They're, they're, they're taking player money to fund it. It's promotion paid by your own money. That's not much of a promotion. <laughs> what a joke. But it's not just the Venetian, it's that they set trends and then other rooms go, hmm, it's working out there. People are still playing there. They're making more money there. People are accepting it there. Okay, let's do it too. And it becomes the norm. And that's what sucks. That's why you've got to not support things like this. You've got to stay away as tough as it is. But that's the, that's the highest rake I've ever seen. I know there's some places in Europe that have worse rake. This is not the worst rake ever. As cruise ships, they have worse rake. Home games often have rake up to $25, like 10% up to 25 which is much worse. This isn't the worst rake ever, but at a Vegas card room, by far, this is the worst rake I've ever seen. $60 pot, $9 taken out of it. Horrible. Normally, $50 pot, $7 taken out of it. Again, horrible. I don't care if some of it comes back in a jackpot. It's terrible. Alex Foxen is back in the news and back in controversy. Alex Foxen is no stranger to controversy. Uh, he was criticized at one point for soft playing when he was uh, three-handed in a tournament with his girlfriend, uh, Kristen Bicknell. And then he was uh, also criticized recently, uh, not as fairly, but but he was criticized for a lot of different revis for an event that he won, which I think is fine. You can, if that's the rules and you keep rebuying, then that's fine. You can do it. Do it. That's just kind of brought attention to the fact that some of these people are buying titles. But now this is a controversy that involves once again, attorney Mac Verstandig. And there's a lawsuit against Alex Foxen and some others that has to do with cryptocurrency and a mining operation gone bad. I had never heard about this until I read about it on Poker News 
Chad Holloway wrote an article today, March 6th, about uh, this whole situation. And I, I had not heard anything about it. It's a very interesting situation I'm going to tell you about. There's a South African poker pro, a female poker pro named Ronit Shamani. I had not heard of her before, but uh, she is the plaintiff here. And she uh, filed a lawsuit through attorney uh, Mac Verstandig in January of 2020 against the Quasar Mining Group, Inc. And uh, the directors of Quasar Mining Group, Paul Tyree and Nicholas Gubitosi, are also part of the suit, as is Alex Foxen, who's the best-known name of all these people. The lawsuit is for $500,000. Ronit Shimani was an investor in the Quasar Mining Group. And uh, now Foxen is not a defendant in the lawsuit. The only defendants are the company itself and uh, Paul Tyree and Nicholas uh, Gubitosi. But he's labeled in court documents as a director of the defendant and a founding partner. And as, when I say the defendant, I mean the Quasar Mining Group. Also... A preliminary injunction that was filed in February uh, talked about Foxen's alleged role in the whole thing. So uh, Mac Verstandig said in a court filing, Miss Shamani was snookered, period. She thought she was investing in a legitimate business. Instead, she was bankrolling the portly salaries of two of Quasar's directors, while one of those same directors repeatedly lied to the SEC about taking such salaries. When the money started to run low, Quasar elected to liquidate. So on, on February 24th, she filed an injunction against the Quasar Mining Group. This, this is a cryptocurrency mining group. And let me, let me stop here and quickly explain what cryptocurrency mining is for those of you that don't understand. Uh, to get Bitcoin or any kind of cryptocurrency, there, there's various ways to do it. Uh, one, you, you can just buy it. Or the, the other, you can mine it. And by mining it, uh, you, you're, you assign a computer or computers to basically be part of the whole network of, uh, of processing the, uh, the cryptocurrency transactions. And every so often, a cryptocurrency unit is awarded to one of the miners. It's, it's like random. So if you mine enough, then you'll get awarded with cryptocurrency. But it's, it, you may say, well, why doesn't everybody just do this with their computers? Well, what happens over time, uh, the, the more processing power there is, the better chance you have to win. It's, it's, it's similar to what went over at the Wendover casinos and other casinos where the ones who play the most have the overwhelming chance of winning the, those, uh, in those drawings. Well, similar here that, uh, the really, powerful systems that that can crunch numbers and process at a very high level and it was found that that uh, computers that have uh, very very good graphics card graphics cards can do the best at doing this they have a much better chance and what started to happen is, as uh, bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were increasing in value there started to be uh, huge mining operations with many, many powerful, dedicated computers that are solely used to mine. So just the individual miner who attempts to do this through their laptop is going to have no chance. That's why 
If you want to mine cryptocurrency with your home computer, don't bother. But uh, it becomes expensive to set up these mining farms. So a lot of times people will pool their resources together to buy this expensive equipment and pay the high electricity bills and all that to do cryptocurrency mining, hoping that they're going to earn more than they're spending. So this Quasar Mining Group, I don't have the specifics of what they were doing or what cryptocurrency they were trying to mine, but that's clearly what they were, the, the, the Quasar Mining Group. And uh, this Ronit Sharmani, was, uh, she invested in it and then lost money. So on February 24th, there was an injunction she filed for against the Quasar Mining Group to freeze their funds into the, until the lawsuit is resolved. She invested $200,000 into it. And in the motion, it said that she was promised money if the Quasar Mining Group ceased its mining, which it did. But she says that she has not been paid yet. And she said that they're not going to pay or something about a waiver ultimatum. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But uh, it says, uh, Quasar Mining Group is winding down its affairs, but is refusing to pay Ms. Shamani the pro rata monies she is legally due. This is in the motion that was filed. Unless she signs a sweepingly broad release for giving the defendant and all of its officers and agents for the myriad of fraudulent acts that have invited its untimely devise and prompted this litigation. So I think that's what he, I think that gets, that's what they mean by the waiver ultimatum. That uh, basically, <laughs> She's only going to get paid what they promised they'd pay her if if they close shop, if she agrees that she's not going to hold them legally responsible for anything else that happened. So they're holding back payment until she signs a waiver for everything else. And she said, F you, I'm not doing that, according to the filing. Now, in the uh, in the filing, it's alleged that the that $275,000 of investor money, which at one point was uh, as much as $678,000, was used to pay directors, those two directors I mentioned, uh, that $275,000 was paid to them, as well as other payroll-related benefits. And it's claimed that in an SEC declaration, they denied that they had made such payments. Uh, And... This uh, Ronit Sharmani, remember, she wasn't the only investor. There was uh, $678,000 worth of investment that uh, she thinks the other investors to this, the ones who invested the other uh, 478000 total, were pressured into signing the release and did. So the this motion on the 24th of February was, uh, is actually asking for anything associated with the Quasar Mining Group to be frozen. And uh, the company also said that instead of paying her, this is what she claims, this is what the motion claims, I don't know if this is true, but this is what the motion claims, that uh, that the group said that if she doesn't sign the waiver, that they're going to use the money they were going to otherwise pay her to hire attorneys to fight against her. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty bad. It's like, you sign this waiver and let us off the hook, otherwise, uh, you know the money we owe you? Uh, that's company money, and we're going to have to spend it on defending a lawsuit, the one that you are filing. So then you will get nothing. If they are do- if they're really doing that, that's really screwed up. Now, of course, this is a legal filing. This is the- their claim. This is the claim from uh, Shamani. This is not uh, a proven fact in court, but this is what she's claiming. 
The motion also says the defendant's efforts to compel execution of the release amount to little more than a legally unsupportable game of high stakes keep away. <laughs> high stakes keep away. Now, now, where's Foxen involved? So far, I haven't said much about Alex Foxen and his role in the whole thing. Well, what's claimed in the motion is that Shamani invested the 200K in December 2017 and that... Uh, they claimed that uh, they, they claimed that as long as Bitcoin stays over two thousand dollars, I guess it was probably mining Bitcoin, maybe other things too. But as long as Bitcoin stays over two thousand dollars, then they will be profitable. That the break-even point is two K. So if, if Bitcoin doesn't fall below two K, then there's no way they could be losing money, and, and they're always going to to uh, be in the black. So she claimed that she was, quote, lulled into pacifism by periodic rosy updates from Alex Foxen. So that basically Foxen was saying that everything was great, the investment is secure, there's no way that they're going to go under, and then they did. It says, after receiving this assurance from William Alex Foxen, I guess that's his real name, William Alex Foxen, I regularly and habitually monitor the price of Bitcoin. At no point relevant did it, be, did it come anywhere near $2,000, which is true. And I thus believe William Alex Foxen's assurance that my investment was secure. And then she claims that she was taken by surprise when she got an email notification in February 2019 that the Quasar Mining Group was closing up and going to liquidate. And then she's like, uh-oh, well, if they're closing up and liquidating everything, then I better get the money that's owed to me. And then that's where all this came, where I guess she said, okay, well, cough up the money. And they said, no, not till you sign this waiver that we didn't do anything wrong. And she's like, no, you guys took $275,000 out of the investment, which was more than a third of it, to pay yourselves. So F you, give that money back. And they said, no, sign this waiver or we are holding up your money and we're going to have to use it to defend your lawsuit against us. And so now they're trying to freeze the company's money and say they can't do that, and that's where they stand. Now, again, these are all allegations by this Ronit uh, Shamani, and they may or not be, may not be true. If I had to guess, and this would only be a guess, I know nothing about the situation. If I had to guess, I would say she's probably telling most of the truth. Can't tell you every detail, but if someone said, I need you to bet money either way, uh, who is telling the truth here? I would say it's probably her. Usually in these type of situations, that's what's going on. Um, let me tell you something. In general, when somebody comes to you with a business idea that you know from poker, uh, run far away. Don't don't invest in business ideas from other poker players. Most poker players suck at business. Even ones that sound good, you can have these guys come to you, oh, I have this perfect crypto mining idea, and we're going to make so much money. Keep in mind, she invested back in December 2017, which was uh, the very peak of, of cryptocurrency. Before the That was when cryptocurrency, when Bitcoin almost hit 20K. Okay? So it was going up, 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 and she probably thought, okay, we're, we're going to, this is like free money. And these guys know a lot about crypto, well, I'm, now we're going to do our own mining, and we're going to make a ton of money. But there's always a catch here. There's always a catch. A lot of times people don't know what they're doing. A lot of times they're good talkers. A lot of times they, they're they quoting you numbers that aren't true, like the case with the $2,000 uh, break-even point, that if Bitcoin doesn't go under $2,000, then, uh, then they can't lose. I, I have a feeling that they just didn't 
purchased good enough mining equipment that maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe they were outdone by these Chinese mining operations that were crushing everyone. I don't know. Maybe it's because the price of Bitcoin crashed in 2018 and now getting awarded a Bitcoin when mining isn't worth as much. But clearly this mining operation lost money and the two directors took money out of the investment money and then they claimed didn't even admit this to the SEC. This reminds me a little bit of Epic Poker. Remember the Epic Poker League, that fail league run by Jeffrey Pollock and Annie Duke? Annie Duke and Jeffrey Pollock were paid very good salaries, I think over like 300 k each. And then the company went under and screwed everyone on a million-dollar free roll they had promised. And I thought that was amazing that they promised this million-dollar free roll and claimed the company can't afford to do it, and yet uh, the, the directors took a, a very high salary to run this thing in the first place. And they, they didn't give back the salary. They didn't say, well, we're broke, but here we'll give back our salaries. You can play for that. No, they, they kept their salary. So so Jeffrey Pollock made a lot of money. Andy Duke made a lot of money. Everybody else, all the poker players who played in that league got screwed. So it reminds me of that a little bit, where a failing company still pays its directors a lot of money. Full Tilt, an even better example. Full Tilt that kept paying its directors and its its uh, part owners uh, dis- distributions while the company was losing money, and they paid them out of player money until none was left. That's another good example. But just just don't trust poker players when they bring business ideas to you, even ones that sound good. Most of these end badly. You might wonder, Ronit Sharmani, does she win anything in poker? Does she just call herself a poker pro and not really win anything? Well, I don't know if she's winning or losing. There's a lot of caches on the Hendon mob listed for her dating back to 2007. Now, keep in mind, she's in South Africa, which is very, very, very far from Las Vegas, like one of the farthest points on the globe from Las Vegas. So it's it's a big deal to travel to Las Vegas from South Africa. We're talking like 11,000 miles or something. But she, uh, she does make it to the U.S. sometimes. She played uh, in... November 2019 at the Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, and cashed. Uh, I see a lot of caches. Uh, interestingly, I'm not seeing a lot of big caches. I see a lot of four-figure caches, uh, some low five-figure caches. But like scrolling down, I'm seeing over and over and over, over and over and over and over scrolling down that's all I see and uh, you have to go all the way to 2014 six years ago in fact almost exactly six years ago March 9th 2014 she won the $1,900 plus 100 shooting stars uh, Bay 101 tournament for 152k but in the last six years, she hasn't. It looks like she's never even cashed twenty k in any particular tournament. She did get uh, a min cash at the main event in two thousand sixteen for fifteen k. Of course, she put in ten k. She only won five. So uh, her other big score was actually in Johannesburg, South Carolina, or South Carolina, South Africa, where she won uh, almost seventy one k for first place there in 2013. It looks like those two were uh, her only scores over 20K from... No, there's one other. In 2011, she got uh, 
in Hollywood, Florida, 153K. So she's she's broken 20K only three times in her poker career. I don't know if she's a winning tournament player. Now, maybe she wins in cash, maybe she plays online, I don't know. She she has racked up $730,000 worth of cashes since 2007, but, I mean, that's not a whole lot. That's less than me. And you guys know I'm not a regular tournament player by any means. I just play the World Series and nothing else. And I don't even play, like, a whole lot of events there. I've cashed almost a million. So 730K dating back to... 2007, if you're a regular tournament player with all the expenses involved, that's not going to get you very far. But as I said, maybe she wins in cash. Who knows? She had 200k to invest. I guess she couldn't be doing that bad. Well, if if what she says is true, it's pretty screwed up, and I hope she wins if, if it's all true. You never know with this stuff, but... My gut feeling is that they took her for a ride and took the other investors for a ride. And if that's true, then I hope she wins that. And if you know, if Alex Foxen told her that, that's pretty messed up. Now he may have just been parroting what the other two guys told him. I, I'm assuming a lot here. I'm just I'm taking wild guesses here, so don't uh, don't take any of this as gospel. But it's possible that Foxen was told this by the guys who were more knowledgeable than he was. That, oh, our operation, it's as long as Bitcoin stays over 2K, we're always going to be making money. And so then maybe he repeated that to her and it turned out not to be true and the whole thing crashed down. Who knows? Maybe he was kind of duped too. It's also possible that he was a scumbag and just lied to her. I don't know. He's not part of the lawsuit, which kind of makes me think like maybe he was duped too and that's why they're not suing him. I'd love to know why they're not suing him if... Not only was he one of the directors at one point, or, or he had some kind of role there that was managerial, but he also directly dealt with her and, and assured her that it, it would be profitable if Bitcoin doesn't get below 2K. So wh- why would they not be suing him too? That's the weird part. He's definitely collectible. So why would they not be suing him? Unless he could show that he was lied to as well. I don't know. Weird. Well, what's not weird, I've come to expect it, is the fact that America's card room crashes during major tournaments. They they have such a hard time keeping that thing online. They they get DDoS attacked and can't handle it. They have uh, technical issues. They have crashes. This is such an unreliable site, and it, it happened again. Not a huge story because this happens so often, but I, I just wanted to mention it. On... Uh, March 1st, here was a message posted to the official ACR underscore poker account on Twitter, ACR underscore poker, from Phil Nagy, the CEO. Okay, this is going to look a little bit real time because we're doing this real time. Uh, it's So for the OSS 106, it is going to be paid out by ICM. I did not want to let the tournament run and risk all of the other tournaments that are running on right now. So Let, let me stop for a second and explain what he's talking about. He's talking about event number 106, and ICM means you're going to get – they're going to freeze the tournament, and they're going to pay you through a formula based upon what chip stack you have and what your likely equity was at that point. So, uh, it's, it's according to terms and conditions we're paying out by ICM. Uh, you'll see that with the, that money in your account within the next hour. 
Uh, it's as well as event 106. Some of you have seen a $215 credit in your account already. Uh, that is an I'm sorry, apology, whatever you want to call it. It says 215 buyback OSS 106. Everybody that made it to day two, I'm giving you your 215 back as well. Uh, that is uh, that is apart from the ICM. You're still going to get your ICM within the hour. Uh, on top of that, we are going to be rerunning the uh, the million dollars, two fifteen million dollars Sunday next Sunday, and uh, we'll have sat we'll have day ones starting in about two hours. Uh, for those of you who care, what happened was there was some people that didn't make it into day two, or actually I take it back, they did make it into day two with zero chips. Developers tried to fix that and uh, took the tournament down. We weren't able to put the tournament back without uh, possibly risking all of the other tournaments. I made a judgment call. Hate me forever if you want. <laughs> this isn't this very professional-sounding thing he's putting up here. This is their official Twitter account. Oh, you hate me if you want. That's, that's not the language you should use as the CEO. What is this? It sounds like they're claiming that people made day two with zero chips and were placed at tables. What the heck? <laughs> that is weird how would that really be a problem if you were put at tables with zero chips wouldn't you just be immediately busted and dropped out of the tournament I don't quite understand what he's saying happened there but uh, that's <laughs> that's kind of strange and uh, it sounded like he's saying they're also giving people who made day two their $215 buy-in back even if they also cashed. Now, I don't know if people who made day two automatically cashed or if, uh, if if they were still before the money and just anybody who made day two is is getting the money. Maybe he means the people with zero chips. Maybe people who maybe he means the people who actually had chips were showing zero chips and there was no way to fix it and they had to shut it down. That, that would make more sense to me. But let, let's listen to the rest of this. Sunday? And uh, we'll have sat. We'll have day ones starting in about two hours. Uh, for those of you who care, what happened was there was some people that didn't make it into day two, or actually, I take it back. They did make it into day two with zero chips. Developers tried to fix that and uh, took the tournament down. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like that people were given zero tips chips for day two when they really had chips and they couldn't fix it. We weren't able to put the tournament back without. Uh, possibly risking all of the other tournaments. I made a judgment call. Hate me forever if you want. Uh, for, it's, it's, it's the, the extra two fifteen is yours, and you're welcome to cash it out. Uh, if not, there'll be set, there'll be uh, uh, events running on t starting tonight, and next Sunday will be a million dollar Sunday two fifteen. Sorry for the inconvenience, and uh, I hope it works out for you. Thanks. I hope it works out for you. <laughs> What does that mean? I hope it works out. I hope what works out for you? The uh, the next time you play an ACR tournament, you hope it works out that it stays up? What a mess that site is. What a mess that site is. Yeah, stay tuned. I hope it works out for you. Enjoy the 215. I see why they gave back the 215. Now, yes, they could have only given the 215 back to those who didn't uh, cash. But um, I think I know what happened. I, I th Okay. This is my guess from everything I'm hearing about this. I think day two, probably people weren't in the money yet. So they paid out everybody according to ICM, which is what their equity would be from their chip stack. But they also gave everybody their buy-in back if they made day two. 
because there would have been some who wouldn't have cashed or maybe people who maybe people wouldn't have been happy with their their ICM payout and I don't know. Now ICM does favor those who have short stacks. That's been one criticism of the ICM method of paying people in these type of situations. But uh, I, I guess he figured that if, if you were just part of this clusterfuck, if you busted day one, then there was no problem and you already busted and then this didn't affect you. But if you came back on day two, because there were some people who couldn't sit down with their stacks and were sitting down with zero and they couldn't fix it, they just decided to freeze the whole thing and never start it and just pay everybody ICM plus give them their ticket back. So yeah, the, the ACR actually lost money on this whole thing. But still, it's just, they can't get it right. This wasn't even like a DDoS. This was a stupid bug. <laughs> For some reason, it dropped certain people there with zero chips. Imagine you go to day two to play the, the second day of this thing and, uh, and you have zero chips. <laughs> but there's even more. Someone posted this screenshot of uh, a message they got related to cashing out at America's Card Room. Your cash out request in the amount of $4,000 USD has been canceled and the funds returned to your digital exchange account, whatever that is. And the reason, be kindly advised that your withdrawal is based on a recent deposit. Funds deposited are meant for you to fund your account in order to access the games we offer. You can cash out any earnings coming from our games, but must generate at least 10% of rake revenue over the amount deposited to be eligible for a payout. If that's what it sounds like, that's pretty obnoxious. Now, I understand them saying we're not going to pay out if you deposit since we have to pay our payment processor. You can't just deposit and then barely play and then tomorrow I'll cash out. You have to you have to play some if you deposit. And if they want to set a reasonable minimum baseline, I'm not against that. But here they're saying you can cash out any earnings coming from our games but must generate at least 10% of rake revenue over amount deposited? So that sounds like that you have to generate rake of 110% of your deposit or you can't cash out at all, which can take a while. Let's say you make a big deposit of uh, $3,000. They're saying you have to generate $3,300 in rake before you can get any cash out? That is not fair. It can take a long time to rack up $3,300 in rake, especially playing high stakes. Like, What if, you, what if you're playing high stakes and you, and you run, up, run it up really well, but you're not paying a lot of rake? Now you've, now you've got to wait until you generate $3,300 in rake? So someone tried to cash out $4,000 and was given this obnoxious message? Wow. I don't know how much they're really enforcing this. You know, may, maybe that's just a baseline they don't enforce, but this is a guy who really deposited, played once, and tried to cash out and posted that. But, I, but they're claiming, uh, from the language there, it looks like you had to rake 110% of your deposit before cashing out. I've never seen that before. I've seen it where you have to play some reasonable amount before cashing out. By the way, this brings to mind something that happened on Poker Stars many years ago, which still pisses me off to think about. It's, it's a small thing, but it pissed me off. Okay, so my then girlfriend, not my current girlfriend, but my then girlfriend um, needed uh, a little bit of money. 
So I sent her the money on PokerStars. And when I say a little bit, I mean like 120 bucks or something. I sent her through PokerStars to her PokerStars account, which, by the way, she would play on. She would play real money there sometimes. Sometimes play play money there. She wasn't a super active player, but she did play sometimes to generate rake there. So I sent – and I was a super high raker. I was, I was generating a ton of rake. So I sent her $120, and she tried to cash it out, which at the time – you could cash it to net teller and access pretty fast. So it was almost like a instant money transfer to her. This wasn't to play poker. This was just money she needed at the time. So I sent her $120 and it rejected. And poker stars sent a message, a very obnoxious message saying, we are not a bank. You must play with any money that is sent transferred to you. We are not allowing you to cash out. And I wrote back and said, this is bullshit. This is money that I raked. You raked big time. I'm sending this to someone I personally know. And they are cashing out. It's the same thing as me cashing out. I said, this is my girlfriend. I'm sending her the money. I'm not, you're not a bank. This is just someone who needs a little bit of money that I'm sending to. And, and you've collected plenty of rake from me on the money that's in my account that's being sent to her. So this doesn't make any sense. If you would have processed it for me, you should process it for her. Nope, they told me. I'm sorry, again, we are not a bank. She must play X amount before she can cash out this money. So I sent them a really scathing letter saying, I want a manager to review this. I'm one of your most active players. This is $120, the only time I've ever done this. And they backed down and let her do it. But how obnoxious is that? That for a very regular player on there, they wouldn't let me send 120 bucks to someone to cash out. I understand if the computer caches, catches it at first. And says, uh, no, you can't do it if it's like an automated system that's figuring this out and stopping it. But here are human beings that we're not a bank. They actually wrote that obnoxious thing, we're not a bank. And tell, and they said, yeah, we acknowledge you rake a lot here, but no, she can't cash it out. No, you can't send 120 bucks for your girlfriend to cash out. Really pissed about this. Really pissed. They backed down, but... They had some real sticklers for rules over there. They had good customer service overall, but sometimes you run into like a real asshole stickler for rules type. And whoever that was I ran into that time, I really didn't like that at all. But I wish I, I wish I still had the email I wrote to them really ripping them a new one when they just were refusing. I was just going to push this really hard because I just, I felt after as much as I raked there, I'm the last person they could be accusing of using them, quote, like a bank. Now, I could see if I was sending this to like 50 different people, I was sending like micropayments to 50 different people who are cashing out that they get pissed. But, uh, but, but this is my girlfriend. This is the only time I've ever done it. It's 120 bucks and I'm raking huge on there. They, they, they can't look past that when I explain it. What a bunch of dicks. They did it, but they, they were resistant. I had to fight and really write a scathing email to get them to agree. All right, if anybody wants to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, as we trudge through our topics this Friday night, Saturday morning, somehow our ratings went up. How did that happen? It's 3.30 in the morning, our ratings went up. What is going on here? Somebody, everybody have insomnia? You know who has insomnia recently is me, and I never have insomnia. I mean, I did during my anxiety problems a, a year and a half ago, but that was a different story because I was like choking. And I also had like super heavy anxiety, but 
Now I have it like for no reason. Like I'm tired and I have a, I'm having trouble falling asleep. I have some melatonin in the house. Maybe I should take that. I've just had kind of trouble. Fall, like I eventually fall asleep, but it takes me longer. Maybe our listeners have insomnia as well. Well, whatever gets the ratings up here. Let's talk about another Caesars fail. I would say an alleged Caesars fail, but the guy who reported this is pretty reliable. It's a listener and sometimes poster named uh, Narakil. And I've I've never seen where he's written something inaccurate. He sounds like a pretty smart guy. So I'm going to take Narakil at his uh, at face value here and believe his story to be true. He posted this on VegasCasinoTalk.com, a sister forum to Poker Fraud Alert, which I also own. And uh, this is what he posted. Actually, this may not... He didn't personally experience this. So I, I guess there is a chance this didn't really happen, as said, because he was actually posting somebody else's post from a different forum. But but here's the claim. And I, I still think I believe it. Unfortunately, this weekend, I and at least 100 people had a bad experience at the $50,000 jackpot drawing at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. People who received a W2G taxable jackpot from all Caesars properties in Las Vegas from January 1st to February 28th, 2020, were invited to this drawing. Okay, let me stop before I continue here, what they're talking about. If you hit anything at a machine of 1,200 or more, then you get what's known as a hand pay. I've talked about this before, where the machine locks up and people have to walk over who work for the casino and give you a form, a tax form called a W2G uh, for the money you just won on that particular spin. And then they pay out whatever you won on that particular spin, not whatever's in the machine. So like, let's say on that particular spin, you, you hit $1,300. And let's say you already had 1600 in the machine. They will leave that first 1600 in the machine and they will pay you the 1300 you just won from that jackpot. And they will only do it if a single spin or hand wins you 1200 or more. So if you win 1199 it won't happen. So if you uh, – and it, this is required by federal law and the machines will lock up and you get the hand pay. So, so this promotion here is that if you got a hand pay at any Caesars property in Las Vegas, not any Caesars property, but any Las Vegas Caesars property in the first two months of the year or first two months minus one day, if you January 1st to February 28th, 2020, that there's a special $50,000 drawing – for anyone who got a W2G hand pay form during those two months. So going on, this person's post said, when I called to book at the 800 number, I specifically asked if I needed to book a room to qualify and whether only people who booked this offer would be included or if everyone who got W2Gs during this period would be in the group of names drawn. I was told that I must book a two-night stay to enter and only those with a room could be in the drawing. The reason I was concerned that if everyone was entered had received W2Gs during that two months, that there would be hundreds of thousands of entries for people, most of whom were, would not be attending this drawing. A host at the Rio confirmed this. So let me stop again, in case you're not following this. This guy's saying, I wouldn't have done this. My chance to win this would have been so minuscule if it's me versus all the people who got at least one W2G at any Caesars Las Vegas property in the first two months. The only way I would have a reasonable chance at this is if it's only people who book a room through this offer and show up. Then I have an okay chance. If it's everybody who ever got one in those two months, then I'll have a minuscule chance. He says one in hundreds of thousands. I don't know if that's true, but it would be a minuscule chance. I agree with him, and he's, it's not worth it to him. It's not worth the trouble. 
So I, I agree with that assessment. So he said he wanted to verify that basically you have to have booked the room on this promo and be present to win. And they said yes. This person went on to write, unfortunately, this drawing turned out to be a sham. Those of us who booked rooms arrived for the event, and as soon as they draw the, drew the first 20 names at 8 p.m., it was obvious something was wrong. There were no winners, and for the next two hours, a total of five drawings, there were no winners, meaning probably about 100 names were drawn and not a single person was present. Wow. The man announcing the event was as surprised as we were. And it was now obvious that winners were drawn from all the W2Gs at Caesars Properties over the last two months, not just those who, quote, entered by booking rooms. If anyone has the email address of someone high up at Caesars to complain to, please send it to me. I've already sent in an email to my host and and the one higher up. Yeah, good luck with that. Meanwhile, I and a bunch of folks were quite upset, to put it mildly, as we wasted our time and gambling money for nothing. But yeah, so I understand how upset this guy was that they booked a room and showed up there for the drawing, only to see that, uh, yeah, their chances really were tiny. You didn't have to be there. <laughs> Everybody who won wasn't there. I, I assume they paid them, too. I assume they probably contacted them and paid them. Uh, so they now, now you may say, well, what happened? Like, how did this really hurt the people? So they didn't win, big deal. Well, they were their time was wasted. They booked a room. They showed up at the property. They showed up at the drawing for something they believe was going to be a, a relatively small group of people to be competing with, and that wasn't true. They got lied to. How did the casino gain from this? Well, because people come down. People come down for this. People are on property. People will gamble now they're on property. There's a lot of value to casinos to bring gamblers onto property because when gamblers are on property, what do they do? Gamble. So they were tricked to come down to property and stay on property and attend this stupid drawing when in reality they had almost no chance to win because it was everybody who had gotten a W2G in Vegas in, in Caesars Properties, not just those who booked that room. And uh, now here's another angle, though. I don't know who's right about this. On Vegas Casino Talk, the last person to post in that thread, JP from L.A., who has been around on the forum for about six years, post occasionally. He said, you had to be present for the drawing. With 100,000 or more W-2s issued since January 1st, no wonder no one got named of the 100-plus people there. An email went out last night for those who were invited and stayed. Oh, boy. If that is true, that is some scam. You know, I think JP from LA may be right. And if that's true, that's really, really, really dirty. Because what that does is it allows them to pay out almost nothing. So let's say there's 100,000 W2Gs given out in those two months. And only about 100 people show up for the drawing. That means that even if they draw 100 names, odds are there's not going to be a single person there who was drawn. So the, the, the few people who show up for the drawing are, are probably not going to be the ones chosen because it's such a small number showing up compared to the number they're going there. So they can claim to give away 50K and give away nothing. That is really dirty. Now, I wouldn't even be surprised if Caesars was so incompetent they didn't realize that when they came up with the rules. 
It could be that they just go, oh, yeah, yeah, you got to be present to win. Uh, yeah, okay. And then didn't think about the fact that if it's got to be present to win, then what they should do is only draw from those that are present, not draw from everybody, and you got to be present to collect. <laughs> I always say with Caesars, never attribute to malice what you contribute, can attribute to incompetence. I know that's not an original saying. I know that's said about a lot of things. But with Caesars, it's very true. I've also said with Caesars, they always find a new way to fail. Just when you think they found every possible way to fail, they find it. And if there is a way to fail, Caesars finds a way to do so. <laughs> Either way, this is screwed up. I don't care if JP from LA is right or if... Uh, if the other guy's right, it's still screwed up. Now, JP does add, everyone who stayed at, at Caesars Properties for this event will get $500 free play. Well, that's not bad. The issue was that every W-2 earned this year was entered into the contest instead of just those who were invited. Well, see, I have even more questions now. So everybody who got a W-2G could have shown up and gotten $500 free play? I would think you'd have a lot more people there then. That's, that's pretty good free play. I mean, it's not great free play, but it's pretty good free play for most people. There's a lot of people who get W2Gs who never get offered $500 free play. So you're, you're telling me that anybody who got a W2G in those months could get $500 free play? That's hard to believe. Uh, now, that's still a problem for the second half of this, that the contest was done wrong where basically no one's going to win. But if they were really giving $500 to everybody who stays, plus this contest, if if all they're saving is $50,000 in this drawing, I, then it's got to be incompetence. Because they're already giving away so much in free play. They're not... To, to save $50,000 in this drawing through malice doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, this is starting to look like stupidity. Look like someone forgot to exclude those who weren't there from the contest. <laughs> from the drawing, and then so just nobody wins. Wow. What a freaking mess. This is at Caesars Las Vegas. This isn't even at uh, some crappy property elsewhere in the country. Wow. Well, that is interesting. I think I may ask JP from LA to expand on this. You can check the Vegas Casino Talk Total Rewards and MLife subforum if you want to see how this plays out. But uh, typical Caesars, boneheaded move. This really looks boneheaded to me. Not malicious, not shady, just boneheaded. I wonder how they picked who got invited. Did really all 100,000 people who got W2Gs get invited to do this? I doubt that. I, I have a feeling maybe they picked the ones who were the highest gamblers there and invited them this to this. I think that some people who ran a lot of coin in who were also advantage players got invited and they did get their 500, but they didn't bother to mention that because it makes Caesar sound a little bit better. And I think they're just pissed about this drawing. I never liked these drawings. Still, the chance is pretty small. I I guess if you think the chance is like one in a hundred that's at the, at this drawing, then your chances aren't bad. Then you already you already have five hundred dollars equity showing up there. If one of you is going to win fifty k, even though the chance of winning is like one percent, your equity is showing up is five hundred. Like I would show up to a drawing 
where my chances are one in one hundred to win fifty k, just for equity purposes. But uh, so I can see why they're pissed there. If everyone's thinking, okay, one of us is going to win fifty k, and then nobody wins it. <laughs> Th- though it sounds like I see. I don't know. They they drew like a hundred names, so it sounds like what is is was everybody winning five hundred dollars? That doesn't sound that exciting. Or did they think if they're drawing a hundred names, there's a hundred people there, they're almost all going to get it? I I don't know. Whatever it is, people really believe they had a good shot, and they didn't. They had, like, no shot. What a mess. But not surprising coming from Caesars. Okay, second to last topic. I want to talk about Ignition. Not Bovada. They're the same network. You will play the same players at the same tables. But there are two differences on Ignition. And uh, one of them is better and one of them is worse. Uh and I will explain both. I'll tell you the better thing first. There is a Royal Flush bonus on Ignition that I do not believe exists on Bovada anymore. It once did, but it, as far as I know, it does not anymore. And there's some discussion on 2 Plus 2 recently about this that uh, came to the same conclusion. I have claimed the Royal Flush bonus in the past on Bovada, but I guess it's only on Ignition now. But it's definitely on Ignition. I've gotten it on Ignition in 2020. So here's here's what it says on Ignition. And it's, it's very important you know this because you may be leaving this money on the table. I, and I, you, by the way, you only have 48 hours. So if you haven't claimed it, it's probably too late for you by now. But there will be other Royal Flushes at cash games for you, most likely. So keep this in mind if you're on Ignition. And keep this in mind if you're considering playing... Bovada instead of Ignition. This is a little bonus from Ignition that you'll get every so often. It says, uh, the only thing better than landing a pot-winning Royal Flush is pocketing a bonus too. That's exactly what happens when playing Texas Hold'em cash games at Ignition Casino. Hit this powerhouse hand, and you'll be rewarded with a bonus that's 50 times the game's big blind, up to $200, with no rollover requirements. So let me stop really quickly. They're, they're making this sound a little too complicated. But basically, if you're playing Hold'em, not Omaha, but only Hold'em, if you're playing Hold'em cash games on there, not tournaments, you're playing Hold'em cash games, and you get a Royal, and you use both whole cards to make the Royal, then they will give you either 50 times what the big blind is of the game, or $200, whichever one is less. So, for example, if you're playing 3060 limit hold'em where the big blind is $30, 50 times the big blind would be $1,500. You're not getting that, so you'll get $200, which is the maximum. But let's say you're playing 1-2 no limit, and you, the, you know, the big blind being $2, and you hit a Royal Flush with both whole cards, then you'll get 100 bucks 50 times 2. So you get 50 times the big blind or $200, whichever is less. If you use both whole cards for the Royal, one card Royal will not do it, a royal on the board will not do it. Got to be both whole cards. Also, you only get this if there's three or more people sitting in the hand. Heads up won't get it. Uh, a game that's not heads up, but where everybody else is sitting out besides you and one other player, you won't get it. But let's say there's no showdown. Let's say you bet the turn, the guy folds. You go, no, 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 I want my bonus. Now, don't worry. doesn't have to go to showdown. As long as a flop is dealt, as long as you have a two-card royal, you are eligible for the bonus. 
does not have to go to showdown. Does not even have to make the turn. Pretty hard to flap a royal, but if you do, you qualify. You turn the royal to qualify. You river the royal to qualify. Just got to be two-card royal. And it has to be Texas Hold'em. And it has to be at least three-handed. That is, three people or more sitting into that hand. It has to be a cash game, too. But how do you claim it? Does it happen automatically? The answer is no. If you do not follow the procedure to claim it within 20, within 48 hours, then instead of getting your $200 or 50 times the big blind, you will be receiving 0.0. You have to note the hand number and then email poker at ignitioncasino.eu. And you have to do this within 48 hours of when the hand takes place. Actually, they want the hand number and table number. Now, how do you get this? Well, at the top left of the screen, there's like a little thing that looks like a book that you can click. If you click that, it will open up on the main ignition window. The hand history of the last hand. you got to wait till the next hand gets dealt. So wait till the next hand gets dealt. And then click on that little thing that looks like a book on the top left of the game screen. And then go to the main ignition client screen and you'll see it'll list the hand number and table number. So email them both from the whatever email address you use to log into Ignition. So give them the hand number, give them the table number, poker at ignitioncasino.eu, and they will give you either 50 times the big blind or $200. And when they say roll over free, that means you just get it. You don't, you don't have to do anything else to be able to cash out that money. It's, it's instantly your money you can cash out right now if you want. It's just money for you for nothing. They claim they'll process it within 48 hours. If you do not hear from them within 48 hours, call up and say, uh, guys, you forgot this. Make sure to watch for it. Because guess what happened to me in 2020 when I hit a royal flush? They did not process it. They ignored my email. So the next day, I called them up and I'm like, uh, guys, where's my $200? And they said, hold on, please, sir. Okay, sir, the 200 is in your account. I went to go take a look. They put the 200 in my account, and that was that. Had I not called, this would not have been put in. The previous time I hit a royal, they did give me the 200 by email. The time before that, I had to call. So I would suggest that if more than 24 hours pass after you've sent that email, if they don't do it, you should call. Why shouldn't you give the full 48? Because if they claim they never received the email, then they can claim it's too late. If you call after 24 hours, then at least you're getting on record that you hit it. And uh, if necessary, if another 24 passes, if they want you to wait another day, fine. But if another 24 hours passes and they don't respond, then they have record of the call. They, they note down every single call. So they'll have record of the call and see that you did let them know about this. But again, this is something you have to let them know to claim. But only call if they don't. First, you have to email. First, you have to email pokerignitioncasino.eu and uh, give them the hand number, the table number within 48 hours. And if you don't get a response within a day, call them up. What is the phone number of Ignition? They don't make that public. They do not make it public. So how are you going to call them if they don't make it public? Well, I will give it to you. The 
top secret number of ignition. Uh, oddly, they, they, like, they staff the number like it's a regular number, but then they don't give it out publicly. You just have to know it. They're not going to be mad at you for calling or saying, don't call this number or you shouldn't call this number. They just don't give it out publicly. Why, I don't know. But here's the number. 855-370-0600. That's the number to ignition. 855-370-0600. Write it down somewhere. You may need it. I, a listener to this show messaged me recently and said, I heard you have the ignition phone number. Can you please give it to me? I need to call them about some problems there. And I gave it to him and he got his problems resolved because the email support is fail, which it really is. And he thanked me. He said, thank you. That helped me a lot. So keep it around. I keep it around. I don't, I don't have this number memorized, but I, I keep it around. I refer to it whenever I need to call them about something. 855-370-0600 is the ignition phone number. All right. We're going to give a final topic. Oh, no, wait, we're not to the final topic. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Second part of this topic here. So that's about the raw flesh bonus, but there's something else. There's the ignition miles, which are kind of tricky. Now, Bovada has something similar. Bovada has points. Ignition has miles. They work in a similar fashion where they're, they're basically points you're earning and you can cash out for money. The difference is that since Bovada has a sports book, you can roll it over in sports pretty easily. I think it's like a five times rollover in sports. It's something pretty easy to clear. But Ignition does not have a sports book. So, uh, and also from what I've seen on Bovada, their points don't expire. So when you're ready to cash out the points, you can. Now, why not just cash out the points as soon as you earn them? Because as you earn more and more points, you, you raise tier levels. And with a higher tier level, you get more money per point. And same with Ignition. So you, it's, it's to your benefit to wait to cash them out unless you really need it. But the difference is on Bovada, number one, I haven't seen them expire. Maybe they do, but I haven't seen it happen. Number two, as I said, you can clear them in the sports book where there is no sports book to clear them on Ignition. On Ignition, your only option to clear them is in the casino, and it's like 20 times rollover, which is kind of hard to do. Most of the time, you're just going to lose your money trying to roll it over 20 times, especially because if you play a decent game like Blackjack, it's more than 20 times rollover because you only get 30% credit towards the rollover, which means it's it's more than 60 times rollover. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's well over 60 times rollover, truthfully, if you play blackjack. And usually if you try that, you're, you're going to lose it before you roll it over. So I would not suggest cashing out your ignition miles to... Uh, just, just normally by, you, I, you wouldn't hit like get my bonus. There's like a get my bonus button. I wouldn't suggest hitting that button because what it's going to do is uh, it's going to ask you how much you want, but then it'll just put you in, uh, in that casino bonus, which is very hard to roll over. What I suggest you do with it is buy tournament tickets with it. You'll see if you scroll down past that, there are tournament tickets you can buy with ignition miles and just buy whichever one you want. And always check at the end of each month if ignition miles are expiring. Because that's a new thing they're doing. They're starting to make ignition miles expire. And once they expire, there is no way to get them back. So it'll show you how many are expiring if you go to the the, the bonus page or the rewards page. It'll say how many ignition miles and it'll say how many are expiring. And whatever number is expiring, spend them. Otherwise, they're gone. On Ignition, I would suggest spending them on tournament tickets. 
And then if there's a remainder, then spend it on uh, the casino bonus. Keep in mind, when rolling over casino bonuses, it will take the regular funds in your account first, trying to roll it over, then the bonus funds. That's another reason the casino bonus sucks. So I would suggest using them for tournament tickets. Just check at the end of every month, every calendar month, that your miles are not going to expire, and those that are expiring, try to spend them on tournament tickets. On Bovada, I'm not sure. They may expire too. I haven't seen it before, but you can check and make sure to roll those over, uh, to, to cash those out uh, if they are expiring. And when you do take your Bovada points out, not Ignition, but saying Bovada now, I would suggest rolling them in the sports book. I remember it was a pretty lax policy as far as rolling it on the sports book, like five times or something, nothing bad at all. So that's where Bovada is better with the points. Those are better than Ignition Miles because of the existence of the sports book and maybe because they don't expire. And the Royal Flesh bonus, better on Ignition because they have it. Bovada does not. But these are all things you have to know to claim or they will disappear. Just wanted you to know that if you play on Ignition. Final topic. I want to talk about the Democratic primary, which I didn't vote in because I am not a Democrat, but I've been watching it. Now, back in November 2019, I made a bold statement about Joe Biden. I said, despite all of Joe Biden's faults, he is going to be the nominee. Not only did I think he was going to be the nominee, I said, I'm fairly sure he's going to be the the nominee. I said, I can't picture any of the other candidates beating him. And in fact, I saw that there was uh, the, the best line I could find on him at the time was plus 500, meaning you get five times your money if you bet on him and win. So every $100 you bet, you're going to win $500 plus get your $100 back. I said, that's tremendous value. I said this back in November. I think I talked about it on this radio show about Joe Biden plus 500 in November being a tremendous value. I said, I think, and this is when Elizabeth Warren was the favorite, believe it or not, but Elizabeth Warren was the big time front runner. And I said, you know, I could see Warren taking it too. This is before we saw more of Elizabeth Warren and realized how awful she was. But I think that Joe Biden has as good of a chance to win it as Elizabeth Warren. He should not be plus 500. I said, I think it's going to be Warren or it's going to be Biden. Admittedly, I didn't give Bernie much of a chance. But I said, I think that uh, plus 500 is tremendous value in something that uh, kind of looks like a 50-50 proposition at this point. And my gut feeling, actually, is it's going to go to Biden. I also stated something which ended up being incredibly accurate, and that was that Biden is probably going to lose Iowa and that Iowa is probably going to go to Pete Buttigieg. He's probably going to lose New Hampshire, which is going to go to Bernie Sanders, and that when he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, people are going to say, oh, wow, Biden has no chance. He just got beaten these two. He's not going to be the nominee. And then his odds will get even longer, and that's a time to buy Biden again at even better odds. And if Biden's odds increase and you can't get plus 500 anymore, don't worry. 
Just wait until he loses New Hampshire, which is going to be the second uh, contest after Iowa. And when he's lost them both, everyone's going to get very negative on him and say he can't win. His odds are going to get long again and buy him again at that point. So I said, I'm buying him now in November. And I placed several bets on Biden at plus 500 in November. I did do that. Put my money where my mouth was. A lot of people mocked me. A lot of people said, Biden sucks. He's not, he's senile. He's never going to be the nominee. You're throwing your money away. You're crazy. I said, no, I think he's got a good chance. They said, I don't think he's going to win Iowa and New Hampshire. I said, he won't. <laughs> he's not going to win them, but uh, that's going to be a second opportunity when he loses those. Well, wow. Well, wasn't that pretty accurate? I mean, aside from not giving Bernie a chance and thinking Warren would be the, the main challenger, but other than that, where I said he's going to lose Iowa and New Hampshire and everyone's going to get negative and say that he's not going to be the nominee and that the odds on him are going to get even longer, and that's even a better time to buy him, and then he's going to end up winning the nomination. I was like, I was Nostradamus there. That's exactly what happened. So the actual order of events was that Biden was slowly considered more and more of the front runner as time wore on from that point in November when I said that, and the odds got shorter and shorter to where it went from like plus 500 to like plus 150 on Biden. It was a big change, and I said, wow, look at this. Look, look how good my bet was. Look how much value I got. And people were saying, yeah, but it doesn't matter value. It matters if you win. I said, no, I could buy out now if I wanted, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to, I'm going to stay. I'll stay the course. I think he's going to win. I can't see anyone else getting it, especially because his odds increased because Warren has collapsed. So who's going to beat him now? Bernie? Come on. Bernie's not going to beat him. He's got it. Biden's got it. I can't see how he's going to lose. I also said at the time, the reason he will not lose is because he's the only one with black support. The black people don't like Bernie. They definitely don't like Buttigieg. They can't relate to Warren. So who are they going to vote for? The black people are all going to go for Biden. There's a very large percentage of black people who are Democrats in the South. They make a big portion of the Democrat electorate in the South. and the Southern states, he's going to kick ass. So after losing Iowa, after losing New Hampshire, after possibly losing Nevada, and everyone's going to be real negative on him. He's going to crush it in South Carolina, and then he's going to sweep the South, and then he's going to become the nominee. I mean, that's I said these things. This is exactly what happened. Now, yeah, I didn't predict that uh, a night and two nights before Super Tuesday that we were going to lose Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, and they're going to endorse him together. No, I didn't predict that. Nobody could have predicted that. I, I didn't predict he was going to win Massachusetts. No one could have predicted that either. But as far as the basics of the whole thing, boy, did I get that right. That Biden was the front runner, that the plus 500 was huge value, that he was going to lose Iowa. He was going to lose New Hampshire. He might lose Nevada. Everyone's going to be negative on him. He's going to kill it in the South, and that's going to reinvigorate his campaign, and he's going to be the nominee. And that the two times to bet it were number one in November when he was plus 500, and number two right after losing New Hampshire or after losing Nevada. All came true. So given that I felt very strongly all that was going to happen, the smart thing would have been done, or would have been to do the following. Number one, bet a lot on him in November at plus 500. Check. I did do that. Number two, bet a lot on him on all the southern states individually. Every single southern state bet 
what you can on Biden because he's going to win every single one of them. I did not do that. I only bet South Carolina. The rest I didn't do. Why? I just I just kind of didn't. My plan was to wait till he lost Nevada and then do it. If I did it, then I could have gotten better than even odds in every single southern state, even South Carolina. And the only one I did was South Carolina. Every other one I just didn't do. Why? I'm not even sure. I kind of meant to and just didn't. A lot of southern states, I left them all on the table except for South Carolina. That was mistake number one. What about buying Biden overall after he lost Nevada and his campaign was looking very bad? Could have gotten like 15 to 1 on him at that point. Like plus 15, forget plus 500. Could have gotten, could have gotten plus 1,500. Did I do it? No. I was, I was talked into believing he had no chance by all the talking heads on TV and on YouTube. I thought he. I thought my money I bet in November was sunk money; that it was gone. It was dead money. I wasn't going to throw good money after bad, even at plus fifteen hundred. I didn't do it. Another mistake. I predicted that would exactly be what happened, but I didn't follow through because I, I just listened to the hysteria that Biden was dead. So I didn't do that. Another mistake. Even though I had planned to do so and told everybody back in November to do that. Then Super Tuesday came. Super Tuesday, in addition to not betting the southern states, I started to bet on stupid long shots. I started saying, you know, I see that I can get almost 5-1 to one on Elizabeth Warren in uh, Massachusetts. I'm seeing she's only running two points behind in the polls, behind Bernie Sanders. Everybody else looks like they have no chance, including Biden. I'm going to bet Warren in Massachusetts. You saw how that went. Big mistake, big zero. Next. I think that Bloomberg is not going to do well, but he's the one state he's going to do well is in Oklahoma because he's polling well in Oklahoma. I think he's going to upset them. I can get like seven to one here. So I'm going to bet on Bloomberg in Oklahoma. I did. You saw how that went. Now, I did bet some of it back on Biden there. So uh, that one wasn't as bad, but I should have put it all on Biden. And uh, then in Texas, on Super Tuesday itself, I put a bet on Bernie carrying that one. I thought the Hispanics were going to push him over, even though he had a horrible day everywhere else. And that didn't happen, and I lost that one too. So I ended up losing on Super Tuesday. I did poorly on Super Tuesday. In fact, I didn't even make any... Real correct calls on Super Tuesday. Pretty much everything I touched on Super Tuesday lost. I also bet uh, Biden in Nevada before he had his comeback. I, I didn't follow my own rules about Biden. To uh, Now, that one's not so bad because that one I got like 10 to 1. And Nevada's a very hard state to predict for many reasons. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion Bernie was going to win it, but I just kind of had a feeling it wasn't going to go through, but I couldn't resist the 10-to-1, so I bet him 10-to-1 and lost. So that one was... I, I don't regret that one so much. That one just didn't come through. But my kind of gut feeling was that one wasn't going to do it. And it didn't. But I should have just... I should have blanketed the South on Biden. Because I said, all, I said all this back in November. I'm not Monday morning quarterbacking. I said this back in November. 
I said the way it's going to go, and it went that way. I should have just covered my ears, not let people like Ben Shapiro convince me I'm wrong, and just gone with what I knew was going to happen, that the South was going to save Biden. He was going to kill it in the South, and that would energize his campaign, and he'd become the nominee. I didn't think it would be this resounding. This turnaround he had, which happened within a period of a few days, he went from dead in the water to the overwhelming frontrunner that's almost surely going to be the nominee. I mean, that was a, I've never seen anything like this in my life so quickly. So I, I can't say I predicted that, and that was orchestrated a lot by the DNC, is my belief. But the basics of it I got. And not many people said this. Back in November, not many people said this. Not many people said that this is what's going to happen, that Biden's going to lose these first few states. And I had people arguing with me, you're not going to lose... You, you, you're telling me that your candidate that you're backing, and by the way, I'm not backing him politically. I'm just saying for betting. When I bet on someone, I don't take my personal feelings about their politics into consideration. I'm not a Biden fan. I, I'd rather have him as president than Bernie, but I'm not a Biden fan. But I felt that he was going to be the winner of the Democratic primary. And I felt he was going to do it by first losing Iowa, first losing New Hampshire, possibly losing Nevada, and then the South would save him. And I pinpointed the right two times to bet him in maximum value. And then only did one of them. So frustrating. Exactly what happened. And to me, it wasn't hard to predict because of the black people. Because the black people were the... They overwhelmingly liked Biden and didn't like any of the other candidates who made it that far. Because Kamala Harris didn't make it. Cory Booker didn't make it. It was a bunch of white people remaining... I don't count Andrew Yang. A bunch of white people remaining, only one of whom they liked. The rest of them they couldn't relate to. So I knew you get to the black states and Biden's going to kick ass and that's going to turn everything around. And I said, Iowa and New Hampshire, they're just not going to matter. They'll, they'll be in the rearview mirror by that point. So not only am I just complaining about it here, just to, just to say what I could have done, But I want to give you a piece of advice that if you have a strong feeling about the way something's going to go and you're thinking kind of out of the box and away from what the crowd thinks and you can place a really good bet on something and you have a strong feeling it's going to go that way, just do it. I'm not saying bet an amount of money that can hurt you, but if you've got a real strong feeling about some underdog that can make you a lot of money or a series of bets that could really turn out well for you and you got a real strong feeling to come, come through, don't let other people talk you out of it. Just just do it. Go with your gut. Go with the plan. Stick to the plan. I'm not talking about bet every feeling you have. I mean something like this. Where I, when I saw the Biden plus 500, I'm like, this is the best. this is the best value political bet I've ever seen. It really was. I said, he's nowhere near plus 500. Nowhere near it. And I said, this is why, and I knew exactly why, and I was right. Now, am I going to lose money on the Democratic primary, the betting? No, because I, of the bets I placed in November at plus 500, I'm going to not just be a winner, I'll be a, a decent-sized winner, because those dwarf the bets I lost on Super Tuesday. But I could have won a lot more money. And that's what pisses me off, because... If I just followed my own 
statements in November of the way it's going to go and didn't let the hysteria around that, which I predicted too, sway me, then I would have done a lot better and I could be bragging to you guys all the money I met made betting on Joe Biden when everyone counted him out. It will be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I know that's not a tremendous prediction at this point. Also, it looks like it won't even be a brokered convention. It looks like Joe Biden will get more than uh, 2,000 delegates. And this is now being predicted by 538.com. Looking pretty likely that's going to happen. Big turnaround for Joe Biden. And that will be a strange presidential election. (laughs) Donald Trump and all his baggage versus Joe Biden, who is pretty clearly senile at this point. I will say that Joe Biden, at least, is not going to upend anything or make any kind of radical change. I'm not saying I agree with him. I'm not saying that he's the candidate I want to see win. But if Bernie won, and especially if the Democrats got all three houses, we'd see a lot of changes in this country, a lot of major things changed. And in my opinion, not for the better. Even things people think would be for the better, such as socialized health care, would not be for the better. So at least if Biden wins, we're going to see mostly the same. We'll see some some changes to things and some undoing of things Trump did, but day-to-day life will be the same for the most part, whereas with Bernie it would not be. So I'm happy that he's not going to possibly be president. Biden, I could stomach being president. Even though I don't prefer it, I could stomach it. And truthfully, as as much as some of you hate Trump... I want you to think about something. How much different is day-to-day life in the U.S. now than at the end of 2016 before he took office? Think of someone on December 31st, 2016, got in a time machine or was in a coma. They had no alertness to everything that's occurred during the Trump administration. It was just dropped into today and was fully lucid again and got to experience life most of the way through Trump's first administration. How much is really different? Has America collapsed? No. Has the economy collapsed? No, it's gotten better. Are there just major, major changes to policies or day-to-day life under Trump? No. Does the president sometimes act like a clown on Twitter and act unpresidential and immature? Yes, but... Does that really affect you? No. Are we in a new war? No. What would be the things that someone would notice who was transported from the end of December 2016 into March 2020? The biggest thing would be the coronavirus. The biggest thing would be, hey, there's this coronavirus that's kind of scaring everybody, which is not Trump's fault. Trump has not handled it well which is a whole different subject, but I will agree Trump has not handled it well, but he's not, he hasn't caused it. Like we'd still have the coronavirus in the U S if somebody else was president, he just hasn't handled it well so far. 
But th- that would be the big thing everyone would notice is, oh, wow, a coronavirus. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> like, we, we've got to worry about a pandemic. I, I haven't had that in my lifetime. Like, we've had talk of things, but this is the farthest it's ever gone in, in our lifetime. As I can tell you I'm close to 50 years old. There, I never saw anything like this so far. I know there's been worse before I was born, but not since I was born. That would be the biggest difference one would notice if transported from the end of 2016. The second thing is you go, Oh wow, Kobe Bryant is dead. Oh wait, that's sad. Like that's like what else? What else are you going to notice? And these are both things that happened in the beginning of 2020. Really, from 2017 to 2019, despite all of Trump's bluster, there there wasn't radical change to day to day life in the U.S. Nothing shocking happened. That's the thing about Trump. He makes a lot of noise, but and like he'll he'll make some small changes here there to things and he'll he'll take certain positions and uh push for certain things to happen and he he passed some tax cuts but i mean substitute trump for some other republican president it's not that much different substitute trump for uh for hillary it it wouldn't be that much different but i i think it's better with trump than it would have been under hillary I really do. I don't think I don't think Trump has messed things up. Some of it is, is doing well despite him. Some of it he's lucked into. Seems like he always lucks into everything. Lucked into facing Joe Biden, <laughs> or a choice between Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, if which Bernie would have been even easier to beat. But uh, he lucked into facing Hillary Clinton four years ago. He lucks into everything. It seems everything just falls his way. This guy runs better than any poker player I've ever known. But uh, think of the dire predictions for this country as Trump was elected. Think of people, people thought life was over. People thought that America is going to collapse. People thought, oh, my God, is that guy in charge? Can you imagine? And, and look where we are today. And, and forget just the economy. Like our, um, you may say, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, problems, between, uh, racial problems. With, uh, well, those started before Trump was in office. That that started during Obama's administration. Some increased racial disharmony, and it's too bad because it was increasing for for decades. Or every decade, there is more and more racial harmony in the U.S., and we're going more and more towards that. And then it changed, and I think it started to change right around that the, the Ferguson shooting. And I don't think Obama handled it right, and I think it all went from there. But it was definitely not Trump's fault. It was, it was some people say, "Oh, white supremacists got uh, emboldened by Trump." No, the white supremacists have, have caused very little trouble overall in the country. It makes big news when they do, but they're they're not a persistent problem in the country at all. The typical black person has no contact ever with a white supremacist, other than like online. So. Uh, uh, you know, there's oh, Trump's going to take away rights from gay people, from minorities. He's going to you know, turn the, the the country into. Uh, he's going to ruin the economy. He's going to get us into wars. He's going to uh, uh, do all the kinds of terrible other things. I forgot what the other things they're claiming are going to happen. All these things that are claimed they're going to happen, they didn't. If you look objectively, they really didn't. I'm not saying you necessarily agree with everything he's done. There may be. Laws that have been passed under him and positions he's taken that you strongly disagree with. 
But if you look the day-to-day life in the U.S., it's either not changed or gotten better for the most part under Trump. And I, I kind of feel like if Biden gets elected, it'll be kind of the same. Kind of the same meaning that it's, it's not, he's, not, he's not going to be similar to Trump in personality or even in, in a lot of policies, but that we're not going to see radical change in day-to-day life in the U.S. And that's why I'm not like, oh my God, what if Biden's president? No. Like, I'll be disappointed, but only mildly disappointed. Bernie, I, I would have really worried. Bernie, I think, would upend a lot of things in attempt to fix things and just screw things up further. It would be like uh, your, your house has some problems and you have an incompetent contractor who thinks he knows what he's doing but just keeps breaking more things as he tries to fix them. That's what I think Bernie would do as president of this country. So I'm, I'm very happy that he's mostly out of this. So, uh, and, and you know, Trump personally, I think a lot of the criticisms of his personality and character are valid. And I don't think he's a good guy. I don't think he's a nice guy. I think he's a narcissist. I think he has a lot of character and personality flaws. I think he has some psychological problems. <laughs> if you read his Twitter, it's clear. His Twitter's sometimes funny, but. You don't want the president to be funny on Twitter. That's not his role. He's not a comedian. Trump would be a good Twitter troll, but that's not the role of the president. I see his faults, believe me. But uh, I actually, I'll, I'll tell you what I posted recently on Poker Fraud Alert. I said that when Trump was elected in 2016, or not when he was elected, when he was the nominee for the Republicans, I was very upset. I said, I, this is who I don't want. I don't like him. And I, I was really very upset that he was going to be the Republican nominee. In fact, I refused to even vote for him. I didn't vote for Hillary, but I didn't vote for, did not vote for him. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he I feel he was actually the right guy for the Republicans to have to oppose the growing extremism from the left because the American left was rapidly getting more extreme and more militant. And if you didn't have someone on the other side who was kind of uh, uh, aggressive and obnoxious himself to counter it, then he was going to get run over. You, you, You couldn't have a polite president on the Republican side the way a lot of the American left has behaved recently in the last few years. You needed someone like Trump to just say, nope, nope, I'm not listening. No, I don't care what you say. F you. Tough luck. Like That's really what you needed. That's really what the Republicans needed was someone just to completely stand up to the insanity coming from the left and just say, no, no, I, I give you guys no validation. The media, I know you're biased against me. F you. I give you guys no credit either. F all of you. Like They kind of needed that. They kind of needed someone to just not give a crap and just give none of this any validation and stand up to all of it. it. It was one of these cases where you need obnoxiousness to face obnoxiousness. And we actually may have less of a need for Trump now that the DNC has decided enough is enough. 
with the extreme left wing of the party, which which is kind of what happened here. What happened here, what turned it around so fast for Biden was not that Joe Biden was a tremendous candidate and everyone realized three days before Super Tuesday that he was a great presidential candidate and they just came to realize it right then. It wasn't people had an epiphany about Biden being a tremendous candidate they need support. It was that the party finally had enough. Talk about the Democrats now. The DNC, as corrupt as they are, as shady as they can be, I have to give them credit for one thing, and that is they finally realized that they had to take their party back from the extreme lunatics on the left. That they, they've been hijacked by that vocal minority that grew from a small vocal minority to a much larger vocal minority, that, that it wasn't even that small of a minority anymore. And that the party was getting swallowed up by extremism that was being validated as normal because they weren't standing up to it. It, it became normalized. A lot of the craziness being promoted was being normalized. Like, like forgiving all student loan debt. Crazy. Like supporting uh, three-year-olds to become transgender. Crazy. Like a, a lot of craziness from the left that was normalized. That people started to accept more and more as okay. And finally, the, the more sensible Democrats said, enough is enough. We're not going to be afraid to stop this. We've been afraid for all this time. We're, that's it. That's it. Bernie's about to become the presidential candidate, and he's going to drag our whole party down. This is a guy who actually says he's a socialist. This is a guy with, with these extreme policies. He wants to reshape America. And it's going to scare everybody. It's, it's not only going to lose us the election against Trump, it's, it's going to ruin a lot of the other candidates running for other offices, like for Congress, for Senate, for governor. All these down-ticket races are going to get dragged down by him as well. And in general, it's going to harm the party because we're going to look insane as a party. If this is what's representing the party, we're, and with more and more people finding this is okay, and more and more, more people have been normalized to believe this is all okay, we, we, we're going to become this, and all these people in the center, or even center-left, are going to go, no, I can't, I can't be part of this, I'm going to the Republicans. <laughs> so so the, the DNC realized they had a problem. They realized that they, they have to stand up to this. They've been afraid to say anything for all this time. They've kind of just done things uh, passive-aggressively, hoping it would work, but no, it just got bigger and bigger. They said, we've got to squash this, that's it. And so they, they used their influence, and Obama made phone calls, the Clintons made phone calls, Harry Reid made phone calls. They, they got everybody that was on the side of stopping this, who was influential in the party, to make phone calls and to kind of silently coalesce everybody behind Biden. And they not only got Klobuchar and Buttigieg, most of whose voters would have otherwise gone to Biden, they, they not only got them to drop out, they actually got them to endorse Biden before Super Tuesday. And that changed everything. They just had to see that Biden could win, which he did in South Carolina by almost 30 points. They said, okay, we see Biden isn't dead, so we're going to squash Bernie and everybody who supports him. That's it. We're, that wing of the party is not going to control us anymore. They're not, they're not going to define us anymore. We're, we're going to cut off the head of this whole thing, which is Bernie Sanders. And they did. Now, you can say that was interfering with the will of the people. 
And and some people say, oh, no, this this wasn't orchestrated. It just – Buttigieg dropped out because he had no chance. The same with Klobuchar. No. Buttigieg, I thought maybe, but then when Klobuchar did, she was going to win her own state. She stuck around all this time with no chance, and then she drops out the day before she can win her own state? There's no way. She would have won her state and then dropped out. If she drops out the day before to win her own state, there's something fishy going on. And then she and Buttigieg run to go endorse Biden. Definitely it was orchestrated. Definitely phone calls were made. There's been reports that phone calls were made, like credible reports. And it was basically the DNC saying, we're, we're going to take back the party and try to make it sensible again. All the people we've been scaring away in recent years, uh, we're going to try to stop doing that. We're going to try to put up Democrats that are more sensible, that the average person can more relate to. And that's smart. That's smart on their part. And they should have done this years ago. Bernie was almost the nominee because they, they let this go unchecked. Even after Trump got elected, in part because of this, they sat for years and just left, let the extreme wing of the party take over more and more. And they were afraid to challenge it because the, the problem is the extreme militant left, it's always you're either 100% with us or you're against us. If you disagree with anything we say, then you're just as bad as the Republicans. Then you're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're an Islamophobe. You're a transphobe. You're, you're a horrible person who's just as bad as the Republicans if you don't agree and go along with everything we say and demand. If, if, if you don't support socialized health care, then... Uh, you're a horrible person who thinks that poor people should die. If you go, you don't support student loan forgiveness, then you're a horrible person who believes that uh, people should be crushed by student loan for life uh, just because they're trying to get an education. Like, uh, and, and they are so militant, they don't just say we agree to disagree. They say, if you don't agree with this, you're, you're a terrible person. And finally, they said, we, we can't do this anymore. And days before Super Tuesday, they realized what was about to happen. They realized that Bernie was about to be the nominee and that he was going to be basically like the head of the party, like Trump became for the Republicans. And they said, we don't want this. We don't, we don't want some outsider to come in and take over and, and ruin our party. Now, the Republican Party survived Trump, but the difference is that Trump, as much bluster as he has – uh, he basically has been following a typical Republican agenda as president. And Bernie would not, as far as the Democrats are concerned. He wouldn't be following a typical Democratic agenda. He would be doing something radical, and they knew it. And Bernie, he just always says out loud what he feels. He's not even the typical politician who says one thing and does another. <laughs> he, he admires Castro and, and, and uh, just... Days before the the South Carolina votes uh, and, and close to Super Tuesday, he actually comes out and says, yeah, yeah, Castro did some good things. Yeah, Castro, he taught people how to read. Yeah, he, he did some things I don't agree with, killing people, imprisoning people, but uh, he taught people how to read. Isn't that good? Like a, a talented politician would never say something like that, especially just before the primary. But Bernie does. Bernie just speaks out what he feels. So they said, oh, my God, this is going to be the head of the party, basically. This is going to be the face of the party. This is going to be a disaster. So they, they took it back. And if they take it back, if this really is them taking it back, which I think it is, and if they're, they're really going to kind of squash the 
vocal uh, extreme left, then having someone like Trump on the other side is less important. Then having more of a typical Republican president would be better. Because Trump brings a lot of negatives to the table, too, with his crazy tweeting and and kind of his shoot shoot from the hip, just do things and not think about them too carefully style. There's, There's things he does that are not right and not good. But I felt for the environment in America in 2016 that was going on from 2016 to 2020, I thought he was the right guy to be there to counter what was happening. And I'll say, if the Repub- if the Democrats really are taking the party back, if that's what this was, then good for them. And it's about time. I saw so many extreme things out of the left, I just... It even surprised me of what uh, became mainstream acceptable from the Democratic Party, from... I like just a lot of things were just crazy to me. I couldn't get them. The nine month abortions, transgender three year olds, the student loan forgiveness, the uh, socialized medicine. Now, some of these things may exist in the countries you're listening. I'd like the socialized medicine, I know, agree, uh, exists in every first world country except the U.S. But uh, if you're used to that system, it's okay. But once you experience a system where you can see a specialist right away and not wait four months, get a test right away and not wait four months, you're not going to want to go back to the socialized system. And not only that, I don't think the U.S. can do a socialized system as well as the other countries do, which still have a lot of flaws, because the U.S. system was not set up for that. So converting it would have a big problem too. So that, that would be a disaster. I'm convinced that would be an absolute disaster if we switched to that. Especially in, in the, in the uh, years they're, they're kind of converting it over. And I'm starting to get older. I don't want to deal with this crap. My parents are especially getting older. I don't want them to deal with this crap. But uh, you know, some of the things, that, at least the socialized medicine, I understand why people want it. I don't agree with it, but I understand... I understand the arguments for it. I understand why people find it appealing. I understand it's done in the rest of the world, in first world countries. But some of these other things, these nine-month abortions, I mean, how, how do you defend that? But these became normal. These became talking points that made no sense to me. Like we're even, if I tried to think like the other side, I couldn't come up with reasonable arguments of why it's okay. And I think a lot of people who are in the Democratic Party also felt the same way and just couldn't say it out loud, that some of these things were just crazy. And I remember in 2010, I felt the same way about some of the Republicans. I, I felt there were some real crazy things coming out of the Republican Party during the Tea Party years. And I wanted to see that end. And I saw a lot of weird extremism I didn't agree with then either. So you, you can't let... Uh, the extreme wing of the party take it over. And Trump is not extreme right. He's just he's just Trump. <laughs> he's not extreme right, though. If you think he's extreme right, you don't understand Trump. He's just uh, 
He's just Donald Trump. He's just different from anyone that you've ever seen. Okay, that was a longer political rant than I expected to do. I was just going to expect. I, I was just going to explain my betting, but somehow I went into a long political rant. When I do go into political rants, I keep it to the end of the show so you can turn it off if you don't like politics. I understand there's a lot of people listen to the show who are on the left, and I appreciate that uh, some of you can listen with an open mind, and even if you don't agree, that you can understand where I'm coming from. As, as a conservative. And uh, I have to imagine some of you who are Democrats probably agree with some of the things I said about the some of the craziness that took over your party recently. And even if you don't agree with me, I, I hope you can at least follow my train of thought on all this. And it, it's easy for people to dismiss conservatives as either uh, greedy, uh, unempathetic, stupid, ignorant, uh, too old-fashioned. There's a lot of stereotypes of conservatives and what drives them, or overly religious and there are, of course, some that meet those stereotypes, but there's a lot that don't, including me. And, yeah, there's, you, you got to look at the other side and why they're, why they are taking the positions they are. And I try to look at that. I, I read so many pieces written by Democrats in the left to try to understand where they're coming from. So you should always read pieces and watch videos from the other side as long as well as the the side that you support so you can get a full understanding so I hope I can provide that on this show to those who are not on the right and I, I know some of you are also not in the US and this is probably a boring segment to you but a lot of people outside the US follow US politics uh, pretty closely and I just think that uh it's helpful to hear. And if I heard someone who was on the left having this type of discussion from their point of view, I, I would listen. I'd be interested. Even if I came away saying, yeah, I don't agree with much of what he said. Well, that's it. The show has been over six hours. I think that's enough. And we will be back next week. Uh, I'll try to remember a few things. I'm going to try to remember to get the guy from Rounder Life on here. It'll be an interesting interview if I can. If he's willing to come on. As I said, I know he listens to segments of this show. Try to call the casino on Wendover. A prank call, that is. Try to do that before 11 next time. And I'll try to look into that thing in Australia that our Australian caller wants me to look into and comment on. If I had to guess, I'd say our show for next week will either be on Thursday night or Saturday night. I think I have something to do on Friday night, so I don't think it's going to happen Friday night. 
So don't count on it on Friday the 13th. As much as I'd like to do a Friday the 13th show, I just... I can't do it this Friday. But uh, there will be a show next week unless... Something else weird happens to my health, which hopefully does not. Hold on, I want to stop this for a second. I just... I just realized something. Not realized, I remembered something. Um... Something I do when I take a break here and play the Eric Benzamokin ad is I rinse my mouth out with a biotin dry mouth rinse. And it does help. It does help my throat not hurt as much. I do a lot of talking here for all these hours. So that helps in the middle to do that. My throat hurts now, by the way. We're just about done. But I had some people on the forum in part of the discussion about my ER visit saying that the biotin rinse is just a placebo. It's just in my head that I, I've i gotten to be able to tolerate the LPR lump in my throat by using that because it's like a security blanket, but in reality it's not doing anything. And th- these things are so annoying to hear because they're so not true. And it's it's really obnoxious to hear from other people about your own health and what you know about your own health and about what works for you and what doesn't and why they work. And you have other people positioning themselves as expert when they have no expertise in that subject. But the the reason the rinse works for me is because I've determined that a lot of the cause of that lump feeling in my throat is a dry throat. That for whatever reason, my throat's been getting dry. I don't know why it's gotten much worse since 2018, but it has. So I noticed if my throat is dry, and I figured this out after that rinse worked for me. But I, I noticed that if my throat is dry, then I have more of that lump feeling. And uh, that takes it away. Not permanently. It takes it away for a few hours and it comes back. And sometimes it feels worse than others. I, I don't know what's causing it, but I know that helps bring it down. And that's what allows me to get to sleep. And it's, it's not just a placebo. In fact, let me tell you about what could have been a placebo. I tried so many things. Some traditional medications, some alternative supplement type things you buy on Amazon that people were recommending on the internet. And so many of these things I had such high hopes for because you had people saying, I had this lump in my throat and I started doing such and such uh, treatment or medication and it got all better. Nothing else worked until this. And I was desperate for a solution and I would buy into the hype. And these weren't expensive things to try. It'd be about 25 or 30 bucks to buy each of them. It wasn't that much for me, but I'd enter each one of them with high hopes, believing maybe this will be the one to solve it. And every time, it failed. I came in very optimistic, very hopeful, and if ever a placebo effect could have taken place, it would have been there, but it did not. Because it just didn't help. It was something that was useless to me because none of them were helping with what was my main problem, which was a dry throat. And when I tried the dry mouth rinse, I didn't even think that was the solution. My girlfriend got it for me because I had mentioned, oh, among other problems, my throat feels kind of dry. So when she was out of the store, she saw a dry mouth rinse and bought it for me. And she's like, oh, I I heard you mention a dry throat, so I got this for you. I go, okay, cool, thanks. Thanks for thinking of me. So then I try it one night, and... I lie down to sleep and I'm sure I'm going to choke. I'm sure I'm going to have that same BS that was keeping me up and torturing me for weeks. 
and I lie down and I don't choke and I fall asleep. And I wake up in the morning and I say to my girlfriend, this is going to sound weird, but this is the first night I didn't choke. And the only thing I did different was I used that rinse beforehand. I wasn't even thinking that would affect it. I thought I'm just going to be making my throat not feel as dry, but for some reason it stopped the choking. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. I tried it the next night, no choking. The next night, no choking. I said, wait a minute, this is it. And I looked all over the internet and there was not one post about dry mouth rinse stopping LPR, or at least temporarily stopping LPR in that lump feeling. And I thought, that's weird. This was just something I lucked into. This was not a treatment anyone recommended. No doctors recommended, nobody on the internet recommended. I just happened to have this and this happened to do the trick. So it was not a placebo effect, it was the opposite. It was something I backed into without even thinking and then just noticed it happened to work. And then I thought about it more and I realized it makes sense why it works. And I've since suggested it to other people on the internet who have the same symptoms as me and a number of them have come back and said, wow, that was it. Did it for me too. So I I try to help others who have the same problem. But something I can be proud of is I solved these things myself. Doctors didn't do it for me. I figured out what would work for me. I figured out what was a likely solution, what wasn't. And when I tried something and it wasn't working or was causing other things to get worse, I would quit it. And I logically analyzed everything and I knew myself and I knew what could help and what wouldn't help. And I tried some things that didn't work and I tried some things and when they did work, then I would do them again. And I solved this myself. If I, if I left this up to just doctors, I wouldn't have solved it. The show probably wouldn't even be here anymore. I wouldn't be playing poker anymore. Wouldn't be sleeping. I solved this myself. And that's something I'm proud of. It's not a placebo effect and it's not, uh, nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of. Now, I don't always make the right decision. There's decisions I make in my life that I regret. There's things I do that I wish I didn't do. There's things I don't do that I wish I did. But with what happened to me a year and a half ago, for the most part, I'm very proud of how I handled it and proud of how I solved it. I took something really, really life-altering and terrible that was happening and turned it around. And that's why I get annoyed when people question it or try to tear down what I did or what I didn't do or what I figured out or they feel I didn't figure out or say that uh, it was just all in my head and that just uh, placebo made the whole thing work. It's just, it's annoying to hear because there's a point I felt I was never going to come back from it. There's a point I felt I'd have no quality of life ever again. It was that bad. I'm not exaggerating. And there's times that I just sit and think where I am today and where it could have, where it was, and how much I would have given back then to just get where I am today, or even where I was a year ago. 
So that uh, that's a sensitive subject to me. It's a sensitive subject, and I, I think more people should do the type of things I did with it, and people should do less of just blindly following what they're told to do. The smart thing is to do what you know is right for you, and to not do what you know is wrong for you. To not just blindly go along with treatments that everybody does. To have an open mind to trying things, but at the same time, always thinking to yourself, is this helping why is it helping? Why am I doing this? Why does this make sense? And if it's not working out or if it's causing other problems, is this worth continuing or should I just stop? And I think that's the right approach to problems like that. Otherwise, they can eat you alive. Okay, that's all. Poker Fraud Alert had its eight-year anniversary on March 2nd, five days ago. I say five five days ago because it's March 7th now. But we had our eight-year anniversary. We started on uh, March 2nd, 2012. So we've been here for eight years, and we will continue for the foreseeable future. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for co-hosting once again. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin and Willie McFML for your donations tonight. And I'm always happy to have all listeners text me anytime, especially if I've never heard from you before. Good night. Good morning. Shalom. <laughs>